Chapter 9. Inflation and the Business Cycle. The Collapse of the Keynesian Paradigm. Until the years 1973 to 1974, the Keynesians, who had formed the ruling economic orthodoxy since the late 1930s, had been riding high, wide, and handsome. Virtually everyone had accepted the Keynesian view that there is something in the free market economy that makes it subject to swings of under- and overspending. In practice, the Keynesian concern is almost exclusively with alleged underspending, and that hence it is the function of the government to compensate for this market defect. The government was to compensate for this alleged imbalance by manipulating its spending and deficits, in practice, to increase them. Guiding this vital macroeconomic function of government, of course, was to be a board of Keynesian economists, the Council of Economic Advisers, who would be able to fine-tune the economy so as to prevent either inflation or recession, and to regulate the proper amount of total spending so as to ensure continuing full employment without inflation. It was in 1973 and 1974 that even the Keynesians finally realized that something was very, very wrong with this confidence scenario, that it was time to go back in confusion to their drawing boards. For not only had forty-odd years of Keynesian fine-tuning not eliminated a chronic inflation that had set in with World War II— but it was in those years that inflation escalated temporarily into double-digit figures, to about 13% per annum. Not only that, it was also in 1973 and 1974 that the United States plunged into its deepest and longest recession since the 1930s. It would have been called a depression if the term hadn't long since been abandoned as impolitic by economists. This curious phenomenon of a vaunting inflation occurring at the same time as a steep recession was simply not supposed to happen in the Keynesian view of the world. Economists had always known that either the economy is in a boom period, in which case prices are rising, or else the economy is in a recession or depression marked by high unemployment, in which case prices are falling. In the boom, the Keynesian government was supposed to sop up excess purchasing power by increasing taxes, according to the Keynesian prescription. That is, it was supposed to take spending out of the economy. In the recession, on the other hand, the government was supposed to increase its spending and its deficits in order to pump spending into the economy. But if the economy should be in an inflation and a recession with heavy unemployment at the same time, what in the world was government supposed to do? How could it step on the economic accelerator and break at the same time? As early as the recession of 1958, things had started to work peculiarly. For the first time in the midst of a recession, consumer goods prices rose, if only slightly. It was a cloud no bigger than a man's hand, and it seemed to give Keynesians little to worry about. Consumer prices again rose in the recession of 1966, but this was such a mild recession that no one worried about that either. 
The sharp inflation of the recession of 1969 to 1971, however, was a considerable jolt. But it took the steep recession that began in the midst of the double-digit inflation of 1973 and 1974 to throw the Keynesian economic establishment into permanent disarray. It made them realize that not only had fine-tuning failed, not only was the supposedly dead and buried cycle still with us, but now the economy was in a state of chronic inflation and getting worse, and it was also subject to continuing bouts of recession, of inflationary recession, or stagflation. It was not only a new phenomenon, it was one that could not be explained, that could not even exist in the theories of economic orthodoxy. And the inflation appeared to be getting worse. Approximately 1 to 2 percent per annum in the Eisenhower years, up to 3 to 4 percent during the Kennedy era, to 5 to 6 percent in the Johnson administration, then up to about 13 percent in 1973 and 1974, and then falling back to about 6 percent, but only under the hammer blows of a steep and prolonged depression approximately 1973 to 1976. There are several things, then, which need almost desperately to be explained. 1. Why the chronic and accelerating inflation? 2. Why an inflation even during deep depressions? And, while we are at it, it would be important to explain, if we could, 3. Why the business cycle at all? Why the seemingly unending round of boom and bust? Fortunately, the answers to these questions are at hand, provided by the tragically neglected Austrian School of Economics and its theory of the money and business cycle, developed in Austria by Ludwig von Mises and his follower Friedrich A. Hayek, and brought to the London School of Economics by Hayek in the early 1930s. Actually, Hayek's Austrian business cycle theory swept the younger economists in Britain precisely because it alone offered a satisfactory explanation of the Great Depression of the 1930s. Such future Keynesian leaders as John R. Hicks, Abba P. Lerner, Lionel Robbins, and Nicholas Caldor in England, as well as Alvin Hansen in the United States, had been Hayekians only a few years earlier. Then, Keynes general theory swept the boards after 1936 in a veritable Keynesian revolution, which arrogantly proclaimed that no one before it had presumed to offer any explanation whatever of the business cycle or of the Great Depression. It should be emphasized that the Keynesian theory did not win out by carefully debating and refuting the Austrian position. On the contrary, as often happens in the history of social science, Keynesianism simply became the new fashion, and the Austrian theory was not refuted, but only ignored and forgotten. For four decades, the Austrian theory was kept alive, unwept, unhonored, and unsung by most of the world of economics. Only Mises at NYU and Hayek at Chicago themselves and a few followers still clung to the theory. Surely it is no accident that the current renaissance of Austrian economics has coincided with the phenomenon of stagflation and its consequent shattering of the Keynesian paradigm for all to see.
In 1974, the first conference of Austrian school economists in decades was held at Royalton College in Vermont. Later that year, the economics profession was astounded by the Nobel Prize being awarded to Hayek. Since then, there have been notable Austrian conferences at the University of Hartford, at Windsor Castle in England, and at New York University, with even Hicks and Lerner showing signs of at least partially returning to their own long-neglected position. Regional conferences have been held on the East Coast, on the West Coast, in the Middle West, and in the Southwest. Books are being published in this field. And, perhaps most important, a number of extremely able graduate students and young professors devoted to Austrian economics have emerged and will undoubtedly be contributing a great deal in the future. Money and Inflation What, then, does this resurgent Austrian theory have to say about our problem? The first thing to point out is that inflation is not ineluctably built into the economy nor is it a prerequisite for a growing and thriving world. During most of the 19th century, apart from the years of the War of 1812 and the Civil War, prices were falling, and yet the economy was growing and industrializing. Falling prices put no damper whatsoever on business or economic prosperity. Thus, falling prices are apparently the normal functioning of a growing market economy, so how is it that the very idea of steadily falling prices is so counter to our experience that it seems a totally unrealistic dream world? Why, since World War II, have prices gone up continuously and even swiftly in the United States and throughout the world? Before that point, prices had gone up steeply during World War I and World War II, in between, they fell slightly, despite the great boom of the 1920s, and then fell steeply during the Great Depression of the 1930s. In short, apart from wartime experiences, the idea of inflation as a peacetime norm really arrived after World War II. The favorite explanation of inflation is that greedy businessmen persist in putting up prices in order to increase their profits. But surely the quotient of business greed has not suddenly taken a great leap forward since World War II. Weren't businesses equally greedy in the 19th century and up to 1941? So why was there no inflation trend then? Moreover, if businessmen are so avaricious as to jack up prices 10% per year, why do they stop there? Why do they wait? Why don't they raise prices by 50% or double or triple them immediately? What holds them back? A similar flaw rebuts another favorite explanation of inflation, that unions insist on higher wage rates, which in turn leads businessmen to raise prices. Apart from the fact that inflation appeared as long ago as ancient Rome, and long before unions arrived on the scene, and apart from the lack of evidence that union wages go up faster than non-union, or that prices of unionized products rise faster than of non-unionized, a similar question arises. Why don't businesses raise their prices anyway? What is it that permits them to raise prices by a certain amount, but not by more? 
If unions are that powerful and businesses that responsive, why don't wages and prices rise by 50% or 100% per year? What holds them back? A government-inspired TV propaganda campaign a few years ago got a bit closer to the mark. Consumers were blamed for inflation by being too piggy, by eating and spending too much. We have here at least the beginning of an explanation of what holds businesses or unions back from demanding still higher prices. Consumers won't pay them. Coffee prices zoomed upward a few years ago. A year or two later, they fell sharply because of consumer resistance. To some extent, from a flashy consumer boycott, but more importantly, from a shift in consumer buying habits, away from coffee and toward lower-priced substitutes. So, a limit on consumer demand holds them back. But this pushes the problem one step backward. For if consumer demand, as seems logical, is limited at any given time, how come it keeps going up year after year and validating or permitting price and wage increases? And if it can go up by 10%, what keeps it from going up by 50%? In short, what enables consumer demand to keep going up year after year and yet keeps it from going up any further? To go any further in this detective hunt, we must analyze the meaning of the term price. What exactly is a price? The price of any given quantity of a product is the amount of money the buyer must spend on it. In short, if someone must spend $7 on 10 loaves of bread, then the price of those 10 loaves is $7. Or, since we usually express price per unit of product, the price of bread is 70 cents per loaf. So there are two sides to this exchange the buyer with money, and the seller with bread. It should be clear that the interaction of both sides brings about the ruling price in the market. In short, if more bread comes on to the market, the price of bread will be bid down. Increased supply lowers the price. While, on the other hand, if the bread buyers have more money in their wallets, the price of bread will be bid higher. Increased demand raises the price. We have now found the crucial element that limits and holds back the amount of consumer demand, and hence the price, the amount of money in the consumer's possession. If the money in their pockets increases by 20%, then the limitation on their demand is relaxed by 20%, and other things remaining equal, prices will tend to rise by 20% as well. We have found the crucial factor the stock, or the supply of money. If we consider prices across the board for the entire economy, then the crucial factor is the total stock or supply of money in the whole economy. In fact, the importance of the money supply in analyzing inflation may be seen in extending our treatment from the bread or coffee market to the overall economy. For all prices are determined inversely by the supply of the good and directly by the demand for it. But the supplies of goods are, in general, going up year after year in our still-growing economy. So that, from the point of view of the supply side of the equation, most prices should be falling, 
and we should right now be experiencing a 19th-century-style steady fall in prices. Deflation. If chronic inflation were due to the supply side, to activities by producers, such as business firms or unions, then the supply of goods overall would necessarily be falling, thereby raising prices. But since the supply of goods is manifestly increasing, the source of inflation must be the demand side, and the dominant factor on the demand side, as we have indicated, is the total supply of money. And indeed, if we look at the world, past and present, we find that the money supply has been going up at a rapid pace. It rose in the 19th century, too, but at a much slower pace, far slower than the increase of goods and services. But since World War II, the increase in the money supply, both here and abroad, has been much faster than in the supply of goods. Hence, inflation. The crucial question then becomes who or what controls and determines the money supply and keeps increasing its amount, especially in recent decades. To answer this question, we must first consider how money arises to begin with in the market economy. For money first arises on the market as individuals begin to choose one or several useful commodities to act as a money. The best money commodities are those that are in high demand, that have a high value per unit weight, that are durable so they can be stored a long time, mobile so they can be moved readily from one place to another, and easily recognizable, and that can be readily divisible into small parts without losing their value. Over the centuries, various markets and societies have chosen a large number of commodities as money from salt to sugar to cowrie shells to cattle to tobacco down to cigarettes and POW camps during World War II. But over all these centuries, two commodities have always won out in the competitive race to become monies when they have been available, gold and silver. Metals always circulate by their weight, a ton of iron, a pound of copper, etc., and their prices are reckoned in terms of these units of weight. Gold and silver are no exception. Every one of the modern currency units originated as units of weight of either gold or silver. Thus, the British unit, the pound sterling, is so named because it originally meant simply one pound of silver. To see how the pound has lost value in the centuries since, we should note that the pound sterling is now worth two-fifths of an ounce of silver on the market. This is the effect of British inflation, of the debasement of the value of the pound. The dollar was originally a bohemian coin, consisting of an ounce of silver. Later on, the dollar came to be defined as one-twentieth of an ounce of gold. When a society or a country comes to adopt a certain commodity as a money, and its unit of weight then becomes the unit of currency, the unit of reckoning in everyday life, then that country is said to be, on that particular commodity, standard. Since markets have universally found gold or silver to be the best standards whenever they are available, the natural course of these economies is to be on the gold or silver standard. In that case, the supply of gold is determined by market forces, 
by the technological conditions of supply, the prices of other commodities, etc. From the beginning of market adoption of gold and silver as money, the state has been moving in to seize control of the money supply function, the function of determining and creating the supply of money in the society. It should be obvious why the state should want to do so. This would mean seizing control over the money supply from the market and turning it over to a group of people in charge of the state apparatus. Why they should want to do so is clear. Here would be an alternative to taxation, which the victims of a tax always consider onerous. For now, the rulers of the state can simply create their own money and spend it or lend it out to their favorite allies. None of this was easy until the discovery of the art of printing. After that, the state could contrive to change the definition of the dollar, the pound, the mark, etc., from units of weight of gold or silver into simply the names for pieces of paper printed by the central government. Then that government could print them costlessly and virtually ad lib, and then spend or lend them out to its heart's content. It took centuries for this complex movement to be completed, but now the stock and the issuance of money is totally in the hands of every central government. The consequences are increasingly visible all around us. Consider what would happen if the government should approach one group of people, say the Jones family, and say to them, Here, we give you the absolute and unlimited power to print dollars, to determine the number of dollars in circulation, and you will have an absolute monopoly power. Anyone else who presumes to use such power will be jailed for a long, long time as an evil and subversive counterfeiter. We hope you use this power wisely. We can pretty well predict what the Jones family will do with this newfound power. At first, it will use the power slowly and carefully to pay off its debts, perhaps buy itself a few particularly desired items. But then, habituated to the heady wine of being able to print their own currency, they will begin to use the power to the hilt, to buy luxuries, reward their friends, etc., the result will be continuing and even accelerated increases in the money supply, and therefore continuing and accelerated inflation. But this is precisely what governments, all governments, have done. Except that instead of granting the monopoly power to counterfeit to the Jones or other families, government has granted the power to itself. Just as the state arrogates to itself a monopoly power over legalized kidnapping and calls it conscription, just as it has acquired a monopoly over legalized robbery and calls it taxation, so too it has acquired the monopoly power to counterfeit and calls it increasing the supply of dollars or francs, marks, or whatever. Instead of a gold standard, instead of a money that emerges from and whose supply is determined by the free market, we are living under a fiat paper standard. That is, the dollar, franc, etc. are simply pieces of paper with such names stamped upon them, issued at will by the central government, by the state apparatus. Furthermore, since the interest of a counterfeiter is to print as much money as he can get away with, so too will the state print as much money as it can get away with, just as it will employ the power to tax in the same way, 
to extract as much money as it can without raising too many howls of protest. Government control of money supply is inherently inflationary, then, for the same reason that any system in which a group of people obtains control over the printing of money is bound to be inflationary. The Federal Reserve and Fractional Reserve Banking Inflating by simply printing more money, however, is now considered old-fashioned. For one thing, it is too visible. With a lot of high-denomination bills floating around, the public might get the troublesome idea that the cause of the unwelcome inflation is the government's printing of all the bills, and the government might be stripped of that power. Instead, governments have come up with a much more complex and sophisticated and much less visible means of doing the same thing, of organizing increases in the money supply to give themselves more money to spend and to subsidize favored political groups. The idea was this. Instead of stressing the printing of money, retain the paper dollars or marks or francs as the basic money, the legal tender, and then pyramid on top of that a mysterious and invisible, but no less potent, checkbook money, or bank demand deposits. The result is an inflationary engine controlled by government, which no one but bankers, economists, and government central bankers understands, and designedly so. First, it must be realized that the entire commercial banking system in the United States or elsewhere is under the total control of the central government, a control that the banks welcome, for it permits them to create money. The banks are under the complete control of the central bank, a government institution, a control stemming largely from the central bank's compulsory monopoly over the printing of money. In the United States, the Federal Reserve System performs this central banking function. The Federal Reserve, the Fed, then permits the commercial banks to pyramid bank demand deposits, checkbook money, on top of their own reserves, deposits at the Fed, by a multiple of approximately six to one. In other words, if bank reserves at the Fed increase by $1 billion, the banks can and do pyramid their deposits by $6 billion. That is, the banks create $6 billion worth of new money. Why do bank demand deposits constitute the major part of the money supply? Officially, they are not money or legal tender in the way that Federal Reserve notes are money but they constitute a promise by a bank that it will redeem its demand deposits in cash, Federal Reserve notes, any time that the deposit holder, the owner of the checking account, may desire. The point, of course, is that the banks don't have the money. They cannot, since they owe six times their reserves, which are their own checking account at the Fed. The public, however, is induced to trust the banks by the penumbra of soundness and sanctity laid about them by the Federal Reserve System. For the Fed can and does bail out banks in trouble. If the public understood the process and descended in a storm upon the banks demanding their money, the Fed, in a pinch, if it wanted, could always print enough money to tide the banks over. The Fed, then, controls the rate of monetary inflation by adjusting the multiple 
6 to 1, of bank money creation, or, more importantly, by determining the total amount of bank reserves. In other words, if the Fed wishes to increase the total money supply by $6 billion, instead of actually printing the $6 billion, it will contrive to increase bank reserves by $1 billion, and then leave it up to the banks to create $6 billion of new checkbook money. The public, meanwhile, is kept ignorant of the process, or of its significance. How do the banks create new deposits? simply by lending them out in the process of creation. Suppose, for example, that the banks receive the $1 billion of new reserves. The banks will lend out $6 billion and create the new deposits in the course of making these new loans. In short, when the commercial banks lend money to an individual, a business firm, or the government, they are not re-lending existing money that the public laboriously had saved and deposited in their vaults, as the public usually believes. They lend out new demand deposits that they create in the course of the loan, and they are limited only by the reserve requirements, by the required maximum multiple of deposit to reserves, for example, 6 to 1. For after all, they are not printing paper dollars or digging up pieces of gold. They are simply issuing deposit or checkbook claims upon themselves for cash, claims which they wouldn't have a prayer of honoring if the public as a whole should ever rise up at once and demand such a settling of their accounts. How, then, does the Fed contrive to determine, almost always to increase, the total reserves of the commercial banks? It can and does lend reserves to the banks, and it does so at an artificially cheap rate, the rediscount rate. But still, the banks do not like to be heavily in debt to the Fed, and so the total loans outstanding from the Fed to the banks is never very high. By far the most important route for the Fed's determining of total reserves is little known or understood by the public, the method of open market purchases. What this simply means is that the Federal Reserve Bank goes out into the open market and buys an asset. Strictly, it doesn't matter what kind of an asset the Fed buys. It could, for example, be a pocket calculator for $20. Suppose that the Fed buys a pocket calculator from XYZ Electronics for $20. The Fed acquires a calculator. But the important point for our purposes is that XYZ Electronics acquires a check for $20 from the Federal Reserve Bank. Now, the Fed is not open to checking accounts from private citizens, only from banks and the federal government itself. XYZ Electronics, therefore, can only do one thing with its $20 check, deposit it at its own bank, say, the Acme Bank. At this point, another transaction takes place. XYZ gets an increase of $20 in its checking account, in its demand deposits. In return, Acme Bank gets a check made over to itself from the Federal Reserve Bank. Now, the first thing that has happened is that XYZ's money stock has gone up by $20, its newly increased account at the Acme Bank, and nobody else's money stock has changed at all. 
So at the end of this initial phase, phase 1, the money supply has increased by $20, the same amount as the Fed's purchase of an asset. If one asks where did the Fed get the $20 to buy the calculator, then the answer is it created the $20 out of thin air by simply writing out a check upon itself. No one, neither the Fed nor anyone else, had the $20 before it was created in the process of the Fed's expenditure. But this is not all. For now, the Acme Bank, to its delight, finds it has a check on the Federal Reserve. It rushes to the Fed, deposits it, and acquires an increase of $20 in its reserves, that is, in its demand deposits with the Fed. Now that the banking system has an increase in $20, it can and does expand credit, that is, create more demand deposits in the form of loans to business or to consumers or government, until the total increase in checkbook money is $120. At the end of Phase 2, then, we have an increase of $20 in bank reserves generated by Fed purchase of a calculator for that amount an increase in $120 in bank demand deposits, and an increase of $100 in bank loans to business or others. The total money supply has increased by $120, of which $100 was created by the banks in the course of lending out checkbook money to business, and $20 was created by the Fed in the course of buying the calculator. In practice, of course, the Fed does not spend much of its time buying haphazard assets. Its purchases of assets are so huge in order to inflate the economy that it must settle on a regular, highly liquid asset. In practice, this means purchases of U.S. government bonds and other U.S. government securities. The U.S. government bond market is huge and highly liquid, and the Fed does not have to get into the political conflicts that would be involved in figuring out which private stocks or bonds to purchase. For the government, this process also has the happy consequence of helping to prop up the government security market and keep up the price of government bonds. Suppose, however, that some bank, perhaps under the pressure of its depositors, might have to cash in some of its checking account reserves in order to acquire hard currency. What would happen to the Fed, then, since its checks had created new bank reserves out of thin air? Wouldn't it be forced to go bankrupt, or the equivalent? No, because the Fed has a monopoly on the printing of cash— and it could and would simply redeem its demand deposit by printing whatever Federal Reserve notes are needed. In short, if a bank came to the Fed and demanded $20 in cash for its reserve, or indeed if it demanded $20 million, all the Fed would have to do is print that amount and pay it out. As we can see, being able to print its own money places the Fed in a uniquely enviable position. So here we have, at long last, the key to the mystery of the modern inflationary process. It is a process of continually expanding the money supply through continuing Fed purchases of government securities on the open market.
Let the Fed wish to increase the money supply by $6 billion, and it will purchase government securities on the open market to a total of $1 billion. If the money multiplier of demand deposits to reserves is 6 to 1, and the goal will be speedily accomplished. In fact, week after week, even as these lines are being read, the Fed goes into the open market in New York and purchases whatever amount of government bonds it has decided upon, and thereby helps decide upon the amount of monetary inflation. The monetary history of this century has been one of repeated loosening of restraints on the state's propensity to inflate, the removal of one check after another, until now the government is able to inflate the money supply, and therefore prices, at will. In 1913, the Federal Reserve System was created to enable this sophisticated pyramiding process to take place. The new system permitted a large expansion of the money supply and of inflation to pay for war expenditures in World War I. In 1933, another fateful step was taken. The United States government took the country off the gold standard. That is, dollars, while still legally defined in terms of a weight of gold, were no longer redeemable in gold. In short, before 1933, there was an important shackle upon the Fed's ability to inflate and expand the money supply. Federal Reserve notes themselves were payable in the equivalent weight of gold. There is, of course, a crucial difference between gold and Federal Reserve notes. The government cannot create new gold at will. Gold has to be dug in a costly process out of the ground. But Federal Reserve notes can be issued at will, at virtually zero cost in resources. In 1933, the United States government removed the gold restraint on its inflationary potential by shifting to fiat money, to making the paper dollar itself the standard of money, with government the monopoly supplier of dollars. It was going off the gold standard that paved the way for the mighty U.S. money and price inflation during and after World War II. But there was still one fly in the inflationary ointment, one restraint left on the U.S. government's propensity for inflation. While the United States had gone off gold domestically, it was still pledged to redeem any paper dollars and, ultimately, bank dollars held by foreign governments in gold, should they desire to do so. We were, in short, still on a restricted and aborted form of gold standard internationally. Hence, as the United States inflated the money supply and prices in the 1950s and 1960s, the dollars and dollar claims in paper and checkbook money piled up in the hands of European governments. After a great deal of economic finagling and political arm-twisting to induce foreign governments not to exercise their right to redeem dollars in gold, the United States in August 1971 declared national bankruptcy by repudiating its solemn contractual obligations and closing the gold window. It is no coincidence that this tossing off of the last vestige of gold restraint upon the governments of the world was followed by the double-digit inflation of 1973 and 1974, and by similar inflation in the rest of the world. 
We have now explained the chronic and worsening inflation in the contemporary world and in the United States. The unfortunate product of a continuing shift in this century from gold to government-issued paper as the standard money, and of the development of central banking and the pyramiding of checkbook money on top of inflated paper currency. Both interrelated developments amount to one thing, the seizure of control over the money supply by government. If we have explained the problem of inflation, we have not yet examined the problem of the business cycle, of recessions, and of inflationary recession or stagflation. Why the business cycle, and why the new mysterious phenomenon of stagflation? Bank Credit and the Business Cycle The business cycle arrived in the Western world in the latter part of the 18th century. It was a curious phenomenon, because there seemed to be no reason for it, and, indeed, it had not existed before. The business cycle consisted of a regularly recurring, though not strictly periodical, series of booms and busts, of inflationary periods marked by increased business activity, higher employment, and higher prices, followed sharply by recessions or depressions marked by declining business activity, higher unemployment, and price declines. And then, after a term of such recession, recovery takes place and the boom phase begins again. A priori, there is no reason to expect this sort of cyclical pattern of economic activity. There will be cyclical waves in specific types of activity, of course. Thus, the cycle of the seven-year locust will cause a seven-year cycle in locust-fighting activity, in the production of anti-locust sprays and equipment, etc., but there is no reason to expect boom-bust cycles in the overall economy. In fact, there is reason to expect just the opposite, for usually the free market works smoothly and efficiently, and especially with no massive cluster of error such as becomes evident when boom turns suddenly to bust and severe losses are incurred. And indeed, before the late 18th century, there were no such overall cycles. Generally, business went along smoothly and evenly, until a sudden interruption occurred. A wheat famine would cause a collapse in an agricultural country. The king would seize most of the money in the hands of financiers, causing a sudden depression. A war would disrupt trading patterns. In each of these cases, there was a specific blow to trade brought about by an easily identifiable one-shot cause, with no need to search further for explanation. So why the new phenomenon of the business cycle? It was seen that the cycle occurred in the most economically advanced areas of each country, in the port cities, in the areas engaged in trade with the most advanced world centers of production and activity. Two different and vitally important phenomena began to emerge on a significant scale in Western Europe during this period, precisely in the most advanced centers of production and trade, industrialization and commercial banking. The commercial banking was the same sort of fractional reserve banking we have analyzed above, with London, the site of the world's first central bank, the Bank of England, which originated at the turn of the 18th century. 
By the 19th century, in the new discipline of economics and among financial writers and commentators, two types of theories began to emerge in an attempt to explain the new and unwelcome phenomenon, those focusing the blame on the existence of industry and those centering upon the banking system. The former, in sum, saw the responsibility for the business cycle to lie deep within the free market economy, and it was easy for such economists to call either for the abolition of the market, for example, Karl Marx, or for its drastic control and regulation by the government in order to alleviate the cycle, for example, Lord Keynes. On the other hand, those economists who saw the fault to lie in the fractional reserve banking system placed the blame outside the market economy and onto an area, money and banking, which even English classical liberalism had never taken away from tight government control. Even in the 19th century, then, blaming the banks meant essentially blaming government for the boom-bust cycle. We cannot go into details here on the numerous fallacies of the schools of thought that blame the market economy for the cycles. Suffice it to say that these theories cannot explain the rise in prices in the boom or the fall in the recession, or the massive cluster of error that emerges suddenly in the form of severe losses when the boom turns to bust. The first economists to develop a cycle theory centering on the money and banking system were the early 19th century English classical economist David Ricardo and his followers, who developed the monetary theory of the business cycle. The Ricardian theory went somewhat as follows. The fractional reserve banks, spurred and controlled by the government and its central bank, expand credit. As credit is expanded and pyramided on top of paper money and gold, the money supply in the form of bank deposits, or in that historical period, bank notes, expands. The expansion of the money supply raises prices and sets the inflationary boom into motion. As the boom continues, fueled by the pyramiding of banknotes and deposits on top of gold, domestic prices also increase. But this means that domestic prices will be higher, and still higher, than the prices of imported goods, so that imports will increase and exports to foreign lands will decline. A deficit in the balance of payments will emerge and widen, and it will have to be paid for by gold flowing out of the inflating country and into the hard money countries. But as gold flows out, the expanding money and banking pyramid will become increasingly top-heavy, and the banks will find themselves in increasing danger of going bankrupt. Finally, the government and banks will have to stop their expansion, and, to save themselves, the banks will have to contract their bank loans and checkbook money. The sudden shift from bank credit expansion to contraction reverses the economic picture, and bust quickly follows boom. The banks must pull in their horns, and businesses and economic activity suffer as the pressure mounts for debt repayment and contraction. The fall in the supply of money, in turn, leads to a general fall in prices, deflation. The recession or depression phase has arrived. However, as the money supply and prices fall, goods again become more competitive with foreign products, and the balance of payments reverses itself, with a surplus replacing the deficit. 
Gold flows into the country, and as banknotes and deposits contract on top of an expanding gold base, the condition of the banks becomes much sounder, and recovery gets underway. The Ricardian theory had several notable features. It accounted for the behavior of prices by focusing on changes in the supply of bank money, which indeed always increased in booms and declined in busts. It also accounted for the behavior of the balance of payments, and, moreover, it linked the boom and the bust, so that the bust was seen to be the consequence of the preceding boom. And not only the consequence, but the salutary means of adjusting the economy to the unwise intervention that created the inflationary boom. In short, for the first time, the bust was seen to be neither a visitation from hell nor a catastrophe generated by the inner workings of the industrialized market economy. The Ricardians realized that the major evil was the preceding inflationary boom caused by government intervention in the money and banking system, and that the recession, unwelcome though its symptoms may be, is really the necessary adjustment process by which that interventionary boom gets washed out of the economic system. The depression is the process by which the market economy adjusts, throws off the excesses and distortions of the inflationary boom, and reestablishes a sound economic condition. The depression is the unpleasant but necessary reaction to the distortions and excesses of the previous boom. Why, then, does the business cycle recur? Why does the next boom-and-bust cycle always begin? To answer that, we have to understand the motivations of the banks and the government. The commercial banks live and profit by expanding credit and by creating a new money supply. So they are naturally inclined to do so, to monetize credit if they can. The government also wishes to inflate, both to expand its own revenue, either by printing money or so that the banking system can finance government deficits, and to subsidize favored economic and political groups through a boom and cheap credit. So we know why the initial boom began. The government and the banks had to retreat when disaster threatened and the crisis point had arrived. But as gold flows into the country, the condition of the banks becomes sounder, and when the banks have pretty well recovered, they are then in the confident position to resume their natural tendency of inflating the supply of money and credit. And so, the next boom proceeds on its way, sowing the seeds for the next inevitable bust. Thus, the Ricardian theory also explained the continuing recurrence of the business cycle. But two things it did not explain. First, and most important, it did not explain the massive cluster of error that businessmen are suddenly seen to have made when the crisis hits and bust follows boom. For businessmen are trained to be successful forecasters, and it is not like them to make a sudden cluster of grave error that forces them to experience widespread and severe losses. Second, another important feature of every business cycle has been the fact that both booms and busts have been much more severe in the capital goods industries, the industries making machines, equipment, plant or industrial raw materials, than in consumer goods industries. And the Ricardian theory had no way of explaining this feature of the cycle. 
The Austrian or Misesian theory of the business cycle built on the Ricardian analysis and developed its own monetary overinvestment, or more strictly, monetary malinvestment theory of the business cycle. The Austrian theory was able to explain not only the phenomena explicated by the Ricardians, but also the cluster of error and the greater intensity of capital goods cycles. And, as we shall see, it is the only one that can comprehend the modern phenomenon of stagflation. Mises begins, as did the Ricardians, Government and its central bank stimulate bank credit expansion by purchasing assets and thereby increasing bank reserves. The banks proceed to expand credit, and hence the nation's money supply, in the form of checking deposits, private banknotes having virtually disappeared. As with the Ricardians, Mises sees that this expansion of bank money drives up prices and causes inflation. But, as Mises pointed out, the Ricardians understated the unfortunate consequences of bank credit inflation. For something even more sinister is at work. Bank credit expansion not only raises prices, it also artificially lowers the rate of interest, and thereby sends misleading signals to businessmen, causing them to make unsound and uneconomic investments. For on the free and unhampered market, the interest rate on loans is determined solely by the time preferences of all the individuals that make up the market economy. For the essence of any loan is that a present good, money which can be used at present, is being exchanged for a future good, an IOU which can be used at some point in the future. Since people always prefer having money right now to the present prospect of getting the same amount of money at some point in the future, present goods always command a premium over future goods in the market. That premium, or agio, is the interest rate, and its height will vary according to the degree to which people prefer the present to the future, that is, the degree of their time preferences. People's time preferences also determine the extent to which people will save and invest for future use, as compared to how much they will consume now. If people's time preferences should fall, that is, if their degree of preference for present over future declines, then people will tend to consume less now and save and invest more. At the same time, and for the same reason, the rate of interest, the rate of time discount, will also fall. Economic growth comes about largely as the result of falling rates of time preference, which bring about an increase in the proportion of saving and investment to consumption, as well as a falling rate of interest. But what happens when the rate of interest falls not because of voluntary lower time preferences and higher savings on the part of the public, but from government interference that promotes the expansion of bank credit and bank money? For the new checkbook money created in the course of bank loans to business will come onto the market as a supplier of loans, and will therefore at least initially lower the rate of interest. What happens, in other words, when the rate of interest falls artificially due to intervention, rather than naturally, from changes in the valuations and preferences of the consuming public? What happens is trouble.
For businessmen, seeing the rate of interest fall, will react as they always must to such a change of market signals. They will invest more in capital goods. Investments, particularly in lengthy and time-consuming projects, which previously looked unprofitable, now seem profitable because of the fall in the interest charge. In short, businessmen react as they would have if savings had genuinely increased. They move to invest those supposed savings. They expand their investment in durable equipment, in capital goods, in industrial raw material, and in construction, as compared with their direct production of consumer goods. Thus, businesses happily borrow the newly expanded bank money that is coming to them at cheaper rates. They use the money to invest in capital goods, and eventually this money gets paid out in higher wages to workers in the capital goods industries. The increased business demand bids up labor costs, but businesses think they will be able to pay these higher costs because they have been fooled by the government and bank intervention in the loan market and by its vitally important tampering with the interest rate signal of the marketplace, the signal that determines how many resources will be devoted to the production of capital goods and how many to consumer goods. Problems surface when the workers begin to spend the new bank money that they have received in the form of higher wages. For the time preferences of the public have not really gotten lower. The public doesn't want to save more than it has. So the workers set about to consume most of their new income. In short, to re-establish their old consumer saving proportions. This means that they now redirect spending in the economy back to the consumer goods industries, and that they don't save and invest enough to buy the newly produced machines, capital equipment, industrial raw materials, etc. This lack of enough saving and investment to buy all the new capital goods at expected and existing prices reveals itself as a sudden sharp depression in the capital goods industries. For once the consumers re-establish their desired consumption investment proportions, it is thus revealed that business had invested too much in capital goods, hence the term monetary overinvestment theory, and had also underinvested in consumer goods. Business had been seduced by the governmental tampering and artificial lowering of the rate of interest, and acted as if more savings were available to invest than were really there. As soon as the new bank money filtered through the system and the consumers re-established their old time preference proportions, it became clear that there were not enough savings to buy all the producers' goods, and that business had misinvested the limited savings available. Monetary Malinvestment Theory Business had over-invested in capital goods and under-invested in consumer goods. The inflationary boom thus leads to distortions of the pricing and production system. Prices of labor, raw materials, and machines in the capital goods industries are bid up too high during the boom to be profitable once the consumers are able to reassert their old consumption investment preferences. The depression is thus seen, even more than in the Ricardian theory, as the necessary and healthy period in which the market economy sloughs off and liquidates the unsound, uneconomic investments of the boom 
and re-establishes those proportions between consumption and investment that are truly desired by the consumers. The depression is the painful but necessary process by which the free market rids itself of the excesses and errors of the boom, and re-establishes the market economy in its function of efficient service to the mass of consumers. Since the prices of factors of production, land, labor, machines, raw materials, have been bid too high in the capital goods industries during the boom, this means that these prices must be allowed to fall in the recession until proper market proportions of prices and production are restored. Put another way, the inflationary boom will not only increase prices in general, it will also distort relative prices, will distort relations of one type of price to another. In brief, inflationary credit expansion will raise all prices, but prices and wages in the capital goods industries will go up faster than the prices of consumer goods industries. In short, the boom will be more intense in the capital goods than in the consumer goods industries. On the other hand, the essence of the depression adjustment period will be to lower prices and wages in the capital goods industries relative to consumer goods, in order to induce resources to move back from the swollen capital goods to the deprived consumer goods industries. All prices will fall because of the contraction of bank credit, but prices and wages in capital goods will fall more sharply than in consumer goods. In short, both the boom and the bust will be more intense in the capital than in the consumer goods industries. Hence, we have explained the greater intensity of business cycles in the former type of industry. There seems to be a flaw in the theory, however. For since workers receive the increased money in the form of higher wages fairly rapidly, and then begin to reassert their desired consumer investment proportions, how is it that booms go on for years without facing retribution, without having their unsound investments revealed, or their errors caused by bank tampering with market signals made evident? In short, why does it take so long for the depression adjustment process to begin its work? The answer is that the booms would indeed be very short-lived, say a few months, if the bank credit expansion and the subsequent pushing of interest rates below the free market level were just a one-shot affair. But the crucial point is that the credit expansion is not one-shot. It proceeds on and on, never giving the consumers the chance to re-establish their preferred proportions of consumption and saving, never allowing the rise in cost in the capital goods industries to catch up to the inflationary rise in prices. Like the repeated doping of a horse, the boom is kept on its way and ahead of its inevitable comeuppance by repeated and accelerating doses of the stimulant of bank credit. It is only when bank credit expansion must finally stop or sharply slow down, either because the banks are getting shaky or because the public is getting restive at the continuing inflation, that retribution finally catches up with the boom. As soon as credit expansion stops, the piper must be paid, 
and the inevitable readjustments must liquidate the unsound overinvestments of the boom and redirect the economy more toward consumer goods production. And, of course, the longer the boom is kept going, the greater the malinvestments that must be liquidated, and the more harrowing the readjustments that must be made. Thus the Austrian theory accounts for the massive cluster of error, overinvestments in capital goods industries suddenly revealed as such by the stopping of the artificial stimulant of credit expansion, and for the greater intensity of boom and bust in the capital goods than in the consumer goods industries. Its explanation for the recurrence, for the inauguration of the next boom, is similar to the Ricardian. Once the liquidations and bankruptcies are undergone, and the price and production adjustments completed, the economy and the banks begin to recover, and the banks can set themselves to return to their natural and desired course of credit expansion. What of the Austrian explanation, the only proffered explanation, of stagflation? How is it that, in recent recessions, prices continue to go up? We must amend this first by pointing out that it is particularly consumer goods prices that continue to rise during recessions, and that confound the public by giving them the worst of both worlds at the same time, high unemployment and increases in the cost of living. Thus, during the most recent 1974 to 1976 depression, consumer goods prices rose rapidly, but wholesale prices remained level while industrial raw material prices fell rapidly and substantially. So how is it that the cost of living continues to rise in current recessions? Let us go back and examine what happened to prices in the classic or old-fashioned boom-bust cycle, pre-World War II vintage. In the booms, the money supply went up. Prices in general, therefore, went up. But the prices of capital goods rose by more than consumer goods, drawing resources out of consumer and into capital goods industries. In short, abstracting from general price increases relative to each other, capital goods prices rose and consumer prices fell in the boom. What happened in the bust? The opposite situation. The money supply went down, Prices in general therefore fell, but the prices of capital goods fell by more than consumer goods, drawing resources back out of capital goods into consumer goods industries. In short, abstracting from general price declines relative to each other, capital goods prices fell and consumer prices rose during the bust. The Austrian point is that this scenario in relative prices in boom and bust is still taking place unchanged. During the booms, capital goods prices still rise and consumer goods prices still fall relative to each other, and vice versa during the recession. The difference is that a new monetary world has arrived, as we have indicated earlier in this chapter. For now that the gold standard has been eliminated, the Fed can and does increase the money supply all the time, whether it be boom or recession. There hasn't been a contraction of the money supply since the early 1930s, and there is not likely to be another in the foreseeable future. So now that the money supply always increases, 
Prices in general are always going up, sometimes more slowly, sometimes more rapidly. In short, in the classic recession, consumer goods prices were always going up relative to capital goods. Thus, if consumer goods prices fell by 10% in a particular recession and capital goods prices fell by 30%, consumer prices were rising substantially in relative terms. But from the point of view of the consumer, the fall in the cost of living was highly welcome and indeed was the blessed sugar coating on the pill of recession or depression. Even in the Great Depression of the 1930s, with very high rates of unemployment, the 75 to 80 percent of the labor force still employed enjoyed bargain prices for their consumer goods. But now, with Keynesian fine-tuning at work, the sugar coating has been removed from the pill. Now that the supply of money, and hence general prices, is never allowed to fall, the rise in relative consumer goods prices during a recession will hit the consumer as a visible rise in nominal prices as well. His cost of living now goes up in a depression, and so he reaps the worst of both worlds. In the classical business cycle, before the rule of Keynes and the Council of Economic Advisers, he at least had to suffer only one calamity at a time. What then are the policy conclusions that arise rapidly and easily from the Austrian analysis of the business cycle? They are the precise opposite from those of the Keynesian establishment. For since the virus of distortion of production and prices stems from inflationary bank credit expansion, the Austrian prescription for the business cycle will be, first, if we are in a boom period, the government and its banks must cease inflating immediately. It is true that this cessation of artificial stimulant will inevitably bring the inflationary boom to an end and will inaugurate the inevitable recession or depression. But the longer the government delays this process, the harsher the necessary readjustments will have to be. For the sooner the depression readjustment is gotten over with, the better. This also means that the government must never try to delay the depression process. The depression must be allowed to work itself out as quickly as possible so that real recovery can begin. This means, too, that the government must particularly avoid any of the interventions so dear to Keynesian hearts. It must never try to prop up unsound business situations. It must never bail out or lend money to business firms in trouble. For doing so will simply prolong the agony and convert a sharp and quick depression phase into a lingering and chronic disease. The government must never try to prop up wage rates or prices, especially in the capital goods industries. Doing so will prolong and delay indefinitely the completion of the depression adjustment process. It will also cause indefinite and prolonged depression and mass unemployment in the vital capital goods industries. The government must not try to inflate again in order to get out of the depression. For even if this reinflation succeeds, which is by no means assured, it will only sow greater trouble and more prolonged and renewed depression later on. The government must do nothing to encourage consumption, 
and it must not increase its own expenditures, for this will further increase the social consumption investment ratio, when the only thing that could speed up the adjustment process is to lower the consumption savings ratio, so that more of the currently unsound investments will become validated and become economic. The only way the government can aid in this process is to lower its own budget, which will increase the ratio of investment to consumption in the economy, since government spending may be regarded as consumption spending for bureaucrats and politicians. Thus, what the government should do, according to the Austrian analysis of the depression and the business cycle, is absolutely nothing. It should stop its own inflating, and then it should maintain a strict, hands-off, laissez-faire policy. Anything it does will delay and obstruct the adjustment processes of the market. The less it does, the more rapidly will the market adjustment process do its work and sound economic recovery ensue. The Austrian prescription for a depression is thus the diametric opposite of the Keynesian. It is for the government to keep absolute hands off the economy and to confine itself to stopping its own inflation and to cutting its own budget. It should be clear that the Austrian analysis of the business cycle meshes handsomely with the libertarian outlook toward government and a free economy. Since the state would always like to inflate and to interfere in the economy, a libertarian prescription would stress the importance of absolute separation of money and banking from the state. This would involve, at the very least, the abolition of the Federal Reserve System and the return to a commodity money, for example gold or silver, so that the money unit would once again be a unit of weight of a market-produced commodity, rather than the name of a piece of paper printed by the state's counterfeiting apparatus. Chapter 10. The Public Sector. 1. Government in Business. People tend to fall into habits and into unquestioned ruts, especially in the field of government. On the market, in society in general, we expect and accommodate rapidly to change, to the unending marvels and improvements of our civilization. New products, new lifestyles, new ideas are often embraced eagerly. But in the area of government, we follow blindly in the path of centuries, content to believe that whatever has been must be right. In particular, government in the United States and elsewhere, for centuries, and seemingly from time immemorial, has been supplying us with certain essential and necessary services, services which nearly everyone concedes are important. Defense, including army, police, judicial, and legal. Firefighting, streets and roads, water, sewage and garbage disposal, postal service, etc. So identified has the state become in the public mind with the provision of these services that an attack on state financing appears to many people as an attack on the service itself. Thus, if one maintains that the state should not supply court services and that private enterprise on the market could supply such service more efficiently as well as more morally, people tend to think of this as denying the importance of courts themselves, 
The libertarian who wants to replace government by private enterprises in the above areas is thus treated in the same way as he would be if the government had, for various reasons, been supplying shoes as a tax-financed monopoly from time immemorial. If the government, and only the government, had had a monopoly of the shoe manufacturing and retailing business, how would most of the public treat the libertarian who now came along to advocate that the government get out of the shoe business and throw it open to private enterprise? He would undoubtedly be treated as follows. People would cry, How could you? You are opposed to the public and to poor people wearing shoes. And who would supply shoes to the public if the government got out of the business? Tell us that. Be constructive. It's easy to be negative and smart-alecky about government, but tell us who would supply shoes? Which people? How many shoe stores would be available in each city and town? How would the shoe firms be capitalized? How many brands would there be? What material would they use? What lasts? What would be the pricing arrangements for shoes? Wouldn't regulation of the shoe industry be needed to see to it that the product is sound? And who would supply the poor with shoes? Suppose a poor person didn't have the money to buy a pair. These questions, ridiculous as they seem to be, and are, with regard to the shoe business, are just as absurd when applied to the libertarian who advocates a free market in fire, police, postal service, or any other government operation. The point is that the advocate of a free market in anything cannot provide a constructive blueprint of such a market in advance. The essence and the glory of the free market is that individual firms and businesses competing on the market provide an ever-changing orchestration of efficient and progressive goods and services, continually improving products and markets, advancing technology, cutting costs, and meeting changing consumer demands as swiftly and as efficiently as possible. The libertarian economist can try to offer a few guidelines on how markets might develop where they are now prevented or restricted from developing, but he can do little more than point the way toward freedom, to call for government to get out of the way of the productive and ever-inventive energies of the public as expressed in voluntary market activity. No one can predict the number of firms, the size of each firm, the pricing policies, etc., of any future market in any service or commodity. We just know, by economic theory and by historical insight, that such a free market will do the job infinitely better than the compulsory monopoly of bureaucratic government. How will the poor pay for defense, fire protection, postal service, etc.? can basically be answered by the counter-question, how do the poor pay for anything they now obtain on the market? The difference is that we know that the free market will supply these goods and services far more cheaply, in greater abundance, and of far higher quality than monopoly government does today. Everyone in society would benefit, and especially the poor. And we also know that the mammoth tax burden to finance these and other activities would be lifted from the shoulders of everyone in society, including the poor. We have seen above that the universally acknowledged pressing problems of our society are all wrapped up in government operations. 
We have also seen that the enormous social conflicts entwined in the public school system would all disappear when each group of parents was allowed to finance and support whichever education it preferred for their children. The grave inefficiencies and the intense conflicts are all inherent in government operation. If the government, for example, provides monopoly services, for example in education or in water supply, then whichever decisions the government makes are coercively imposed on the hapless minority, whether it is a question of educational policies for the schools, integration or segregation, progressive or traditional, religious or secular, etc., or even for the kind of water to be sold, for example, fluoridated or unfluoridated. It should be clear that no such fierce arguments occur where each group of consumers can purchase the goods or services they demand. There are no battles between consumers, for example, over what kind of newspapers should be printed, churches established, books printed, records marketed, or automobiles manufactured. Whatever is produced on the market reflects the diversity as well as the strength of consumer demand. On the free market, in short, the consumer is king, and any business firm that wants to make profits and avoid losses tries its best to serve the consumer as efficiently and at as low a cost as possible. In a government operation, in contrast, everything changes. Inherent in all government operation is a grave and fatal split between service and payment between the providing of a service and the payment for receiving it. The government bureau does not get its income, as does the private firm, from serving the consumer well or from consumer purchases of its products exceeding its costs of operation. No, the government bureau acquires its income from mulcting the long-suffering taxpayer. Its operations therefore become inefficient, and costs zoom, since government bureaus need not worry about losses or bankruptcy, they can make up their losses by additional extractions from the public till. Furthermore, the consumer, instead of being courted and wooed for his favor, becomes a mere annoyance to the government, someone who is wasting the government's scarce resources. In government operations, the consumer is treated like an unwelcome intruder, an interference in the quiet enjoyment by the bureaucrat of his steady income. Thus, if consumer demand should increase for the goods or services of any private business, the private firm is delighted. It woos and welcomes the new business and expands its operations eagerly to fill the new orders. Government, in contrast, generally meets this situation by sourly urging or even ordering consumers to buy less and allows shortages to develop, along with deterioration in the quality of its service. Thus the increased consumer use of government streets in the cities is met by aggravated traffic congestion and by continuing denunciations and threats against people who drive their own cars. The New York City administration, for example, is continually threatening to outlaw the use of private cars in Manhattan, where congestion has been most troublesome. It is only government, of course, that would ever think of bludgeoning consumers in this way, 
It is only government that has the audacity to solve traffic congestion by forcing private cars, or trucks, or taxis, or whatever, off the road. According to this principle, of course, the ideal solution to traffic congestion is simply to outlaw all vehicles. But this sort of attitude toward the consumer is not confined to traffic on the streets. New York City, for example, has suffered periodically from a water shortage. Here is a situation where, for many years, the city government has had a compulsory monopoly of the supply of water to its citizens. Failing to supply enough water, and failing to price that water in such a way as to clear the market, to equate supply and demand, which private enterprise does automatically, New York's response to water shortages has always been to blame not itself, but the consumer, whose sin has been to use too much water. The city administration could only react by outlawing the sprinkling of lawns, restricting use of water, and demanding that people drink less water. In this way, government transfers its own failings to the scapegoat user, who is threatened and bludgeoned, instead of being served well and efficiently. There has been similar response by government to the ever-accelerating crime problem in New York City. Instead of providing efficient police protection, the city's reaction has been to force the innocent citizen to stay out of crime-prone areas. Thus, after Central Park in Manhattan became a notorious center for muggings and other crime in the night hours, New York City's solution to the problem was to impose a curfew, banning use of the park in those hours. In short, if an innocent citizen wants to stay in Central Park at night, it is he who is arrested for disobeying the curfew. It is, of course, easier to arrest him than to rid the park of crime. In short, while the long-held motto of private enterprise is that the customer is always right, the implicit maxim of government operation is that the customer is always to be blamed. Of course, the political bureaucrats have a standard response to the mounting complaints of poor and inefficient service. The taxpayers must give us more money. It is not enough that the public sector and its corollary in taxation has been growing far more rapidly in this century than the national income. It is not enough that the flaws and headaches of government operation have multiplied along with the increased burden of the government budget. We are supposed to pour still more money down the governmental rat hole. The proper counter-argument to the political demand for more tax money is the question, how is it that private enterprise doesn't have these problems? How is it that hi-fi manufacturers or photocopy companies or computer firms or whatever do not have trouble finding capital to expand their output? Why don't they issue manifestos denouncing the investing public for not providing them with more money to serve consumer needs? The answer is that consumers pay for the hi-fi sets or the photocopy machines or the computers, and that investors, as a result, know that they can make money by investing in those businesses. On the private market, firms that successfully serve the public find it easy to obtain capital for expansion. Inefficient, unsuccessful firms do not, and eventually have to go out of business. But there is no profit and loss mechanism in government 
to induce investment in efficient operations, and to penalize and drive the inefficient or obsolete ones out of business. There are no profits or losses in government operations, inducing either expansion or contraction of operations. In government, then, no one truly invests, and no one can ensure that successful operations will expand and unsuccessful ones disappear. In contrast, government must raise its capital by literally conscripting it through the coercive mechanism of taxation. Many people, including some government officials, think that these problems could be solved if only government were run like a business. The government then sets up a pseudo-corporate monopoly run by government, which is supposed to set affairs on a business basis. This has been done, for example, in the case of the post office, now the U.S. Postal Service, and in the case of the ever-crumbling and decaying New York City Transit Authority. The corporations are enjoined to end their chronic deficits and are allowed to float bonds on the bond market. It is true that direct users then would be taking some of the burden off the mass of taxpayers, which include users and non-users alike. But there are fatal flaws inherent in any government operation which cannot be avoided by this pseudo-business device. In the first place, government service is always a monopoly or semi-monopoly. Often, as in the case of the Postal Service or the Transit Authority, it is a compulsory monopoly. All or nearly all private competition is outlawed. The monopoly means that government service will be far more costly, higher-priced, and poorer in quality than would be the case in the free market. Private enterprise gains a profit by cutting costs as much as it can. Government, which cannot go bankrupt or suffer losses in any case, need not cut costs. Protected from competition as well as losses, it need only cut its service or simply raise prices. A second fatal flaw is that, try as it may, a government corporation can never be run as a business because its capital continues to be conscripted from the taxpayer. There is no way of avoiding that. The fact that the government corporation may raise bonds on the market still rests on the ultimate power of taxation to redeem these bonds. Finally, there is another critical problem inherent in any government operation of a business. One of the reasons that private firms are models of efficiency is because the free market establishes prices which permit them to calculate, to figure out what their costs are, and therefore what they must do to make profits and avoid losses. It is through this price system, as well as through the motivation to increase profits and avoid losses, that goods and services are properly allocated in the market, among all the intricate branches and areas of production that make up the modern industrial capitalist economy. It is economic calculation that makes this marvel possible. In contrast, central planning, such as is attempted under socialism, is deprived of accurate pricing, and therefore cannot calculate costs and prices. This is the major reason that central socialist planning has increasingly proved to be a failure, as the communist countries have become industrialized.
It is because central planning cannot determine prices and costs with any accuracy that the communist countries of Eastern Europe have been moving rapidly away from socialist planning and toward a free market economy. If central planning, then, thrusts the economy into hopeless calculational chaos and into irrational allocations and production operations, the advance of government activities inexorably introduces ever greater islands of such chaos into the economy and makes calculation of costs and rational allocation of production resources more and more difficult. As government operations expand and the market economy withers, the calculational chaos becomes more and more disruptive and the economy increasingly unworkable. The ultimate libertarian program may be summed up in one phrase, the abolition of the public sector, the conversion of all operations and services performed by the government into activities performed voluntarily by the private enterprise economy. Let us now turn from general considerations of government, as contrasted with private activity, to some of the major areas of government operation, and how they could be performed by the free market economy. Chapter 11. The Public Sector. 2. Streets and Roads. Protecting the Streets. Abolition of the public sector means, of course, that all pieces of land, all land areas, including streets and roads, would be owned privately by individuals, corporations, cooperatives, or any other voluntary groupings of individuals and capital. The fact that all streets and land areas would be private would by itself solve many of the seemingly insoluble problems of private operation. What we need to do is to reorient our thinking to consider a world in which all land areas are privately owned. Let us take, for example, police protection. How would police protection be furnished in a totally private economy? Part of the answer becomes evident if we consider a world of totally private land and street ownership. Consider the Times Square area of New York City, a notoriously crime-ridden area where there is little police protection furnished by the city authorities. Every New Yorker knows, in fact, that he lives and walks the streets, and not only Times Square, virtually in a state of anarchy, dependent solely on the normal peacefulness and goodwill of his fellow citizens. Police protection in New York is minimal, a fact dramatically revealed in a recent week-long police strike when, lo and behold, crime in no way increased from its normal state when the police are supposedly alert and on the job. At any rate, suppose that the Times Square area, including the streets, was privately owned, say by the Times Square Merchants Association. The merchants would know full well, of course, that if crime was rampant in their area, if muggings and hold-ups abounded, then their customers would fade away and would patronize competing areas and neighborhoods. Hence, it would be to the economic interest of the Merchants' Association to supply efficient and plentiful police protection, so that customers would be attracted to, rather than repelled from, their neighborhood. Private business, after all, is always trying to attract and keep its customers. 
but what good would be served by attractive store displays and packaging, pleasant lighting and courteous service, if the customers may be robbed or assaulted if they walk through the area? The Merchants' Association, furthermore, would be induced by their drive for profits and for avoiding losses to supply not only sufficient police protection, but also courteous and pleasant protection. Governmental police have not only no incentive to be efficient or worry about their customers' needs, they also live with the ever-present temptation to wield their power of force in a brutal and coercive manner. Police brutality is a well-known feature of the police system, and it is held in check only by remote complaints of the harassed citizenry. But if the private merchant's police should yield to the temptation of brutalizing the merchant's customers, those customers will quickly disappear and go elsewhere. Hence, the Merchants Association will see to it that its police are courteous as well as plentiful. Such efficient and high-quality police protection would prevail throughout the land, throughout all the private streets and land areas. Factories would guard their street areas, merchants their streets, and road companies would provide safe and efficient police protection for their toll roads and other privately owned roads. The same would be true for residential neighborhoods. We can envision two possible types of private street ownership in such neighborhoods. In one type, all the landowners in a certain block might become the joint owners of that block, let us say as the 85th Street Block Company. This company would then provide police protection, the costs being paid either by the homeowners directly or out of tenants' rent if the street includes rental apartments. Again, homeowners will of course have a direct interest in seeing that their block is safe while landlords will try to attract tenants by supplying safe streets in addition to the more usual services such as heat, water, and janitorial service. To ask why landlords should provide safe streets in the libertarian, fully private society is just as silly as asking now why they should provide their tenants with heat or hot water. The force of competition and of consumer demand would make them supply such services. Furthermore, whether we are considering homeowners or rental housing, in either case the capital value of the land and the house will be a function of the safety of the street as well as of the other well-known characteristics of the house and the neighborhood. Safe and well-patrolled streets will raise the value of the landowner's land and houses in the same way as well-tended houses do. Crime-ridden streets will lower the value of the land and houses as surely as dilapidated housing itself does. Since landowners always prefer higher to lower market values for their property, there is a built-in incentive to provide efficient, well-paved, and safe streets. Another type of private street ownership in residential areas might be private street companies, which would own only the streets, not the houses or buildings on them. The street companies would then charge landowners for the service of maintaining, improving, and policing their streets. Once again, safe, well-lit, and well-paved streets will induce landowners and tenants to flock to those streets. Unsafe, badly lit, and badly maintained streets will drive those owners and users away. 
A happy and flourishing use of the streets by landlords and automobiles will raise the profits and stock values of the street companies. An unhappy and decaying regard for streets by their owners will drive the users away and lower the profits and the stock values of the private street companies. Hence, the street-owning companies will do their best to provide efficient street service, including police protection, to secure happy users. They will be driven to do this by their desire to make profits and to increase the value of their capital, and by their equally active desire not to suffer losses and erosion of their capital. It is infinitely better to rely on the pursuit of economic interest by landowners or street companies than to depend on the dubious altruism of bureaucrats and government officials. At this point in the discussion, someone is bound to raise the question, if streets are owned by street companies, and granting that they generally would aim to please their customers with maximum efficiency, what if some kooky or tyrannical street owner should suddenly decide to block access to his street to an adjoining homeowner? How could the latter get in or out? Could he be blocked permanently or be charged an enormous amount to be allowed entrance or exit? The answer to this question is the same as to a similar problem about land ownership. Suppose that everyone owning homes surrounding someone's property would suddenly not allow him to go in or out. The answer is that everyone, in purchasing homes or street service in a libertarian society, would make sure that the purchase or lease contract provides full access for whatever term of years is specified. With this sort of easement provided in advance by contract, no such sudden blockade would be allowed, since it would be an invasion of the property right of the landowner. There is, of course, nothing new or startling in the principle of this envisioned libertarian society. We are already familiar with the energizing effects of interlocation and intertransportation competition. For example, when the private railroads were being built throughout the nation in the 19th century, the railroads and their competition provided a remarkable energizing force for developing their respective areas. Each railroad tried its best to induce immigration and economic development in its area in order to increase its profits, land values, and value of its capital and each hastened to do so, lest people and markets leave their area and move to the ports, cities, and lands served by competing railroads. The same principle would be at work if all streets and roads were private as well. Similarly, we are already familiar with police protection provided by private merchants and organizations. Within their property, stores provide guards and watchmen, Banks provide guards, factories employ watchmen, shopping centers retain guards, etc. The libertarian society would simply extend this healthy and functioning system to the streets as well. It is scarcely accidental that there are far more assaults and muggings on the streets outside stores than in the stores themselves. This is because the stores are supplied with watchful private guards while on the streets we must all rely on the anarchy of government police protection. 
Indeed, in various blocks of New York City there has already arisen in recent years, in response to the galloping crime problem, the hiring of private guards to patrol the blocks by voluntary contributions of the landlords and homeowners on that block. Crime on these blocks has already been substantially reduced. The problem is that these efforts have been halting and inefficient because those streets are not owned by the residents, and hence there is no effective mechanism for gathering the capital to provide efficient protection on a permanent basis. Furthermore, the patrolling street guards cannot legally be armed because they are not on their owner's property and they cannot, as store and other property owners can, challenge anyone acting in a suspicious but not yet criminal manner. They cannot, in short, do the things, financially or administratively, that owners can do with their property. Furthermore, police paid for by the landowners and residents of a block or neighborhood would not only end police brutality against customers, This system would end the current spectacle of police being considered by many communities as alien imperial colonizers, there not to serve, but to oppress the community. In America today, for example, we have the general rule in our cities of black areas patrolled by police hired by central urban governments, governments that are perceived to be alien to the black communities. Police supplied, controlled, and paid for by the residents and landowners of the communities themselves would be a completely different story. They would be supplying, and perceived to be supplying, services to their customers, rather than coercing them on behalf of an alien authority. A dramatic contrast of the merits of public versus private protection is provided by one block in Harlem, On West 135th Street, between 7th and 8th Avenues, is the station house of the 82nd Precinct of the New York City Police Department. Yet the august presence of the station house did not prevent a rash of night robberies of various stores on the block. Finally, in the winter of 1966, 15 merchants on the block banded together to hire a guard to walk the block all night. The guard was hired from the Leroy V. George Protection Company to provide the police protection not forthcoming from their property taxes. The most successful and best organized private police forces in American history have been the railway police, maintained by many railroads to prevent injury or theft to passengers or freight. The modern railway police were founded at the end of World War I by the protection section of the American Railway Association. So well did they function that by 1929, freight claim payments for robberies had declined by 93%. Arrests by the railway police, who at the time of the major study of their activities in the early 1930s totaled 10,000 men, resulted in a far higher percentage of convictions than earned by police departments, ranging from 83% to 97%. Railway police were armed, could make normal arrests, and were portrayed by an unsympathetic criminologist as having a widespread reputation for good character and ability. Street Rules 
One of the undoubted consequences of all land areas in the country being owned by private individuals and companies would be a greater richness and diversity of American neighborhoods. The character of the police protection and the rules applied by the private police would depend on the wishes of the landowners or street owners, the owners of the given area. Thus, suspicious residential neighborhoods would insist that any people or cars entering the area have a prior appointment with a resident, or else be approved by a resident with a phone call from the gate. In short, the same rules for street property would be applied as are now often applied in private apartment buildings or family estates. In other, more raffish areas, everyone would be permitted to enter at will and there might be varying degrees of surveillance in between. Most probably, commercial areas, anxious not to rebuff customers, would be open to all. All this would give full scope to the desires and values of the residents and owners of all the numerous areas in the country. It might be charged that all this will allow freedom to discriminate in housing or use of the streets. There is no question about that. Fundamental to the libertarian creed is every man's right to choose who shall enter or use his own property, provided, of course, that the other person is willing. Discrimination, in the sense of choosing favorably or unfavorably in accordance with whatever criteria a person may employ, is an integral part of freedom of choice, and hence of a free society. But, of course, in the free market, any such discrimination is costly and will have to be paid for by the property owner concerned. Suppose, for example, that someone in a free society is a landlord of a house or a block of houses. He could simply charge the free market rent and let it go at that. But then there are risks. He may choose to discriminate against renting to couples with young children, figuring that there is a substantial risk of defacing his property. On the other hand, he may well choose to charge extra rent to compensate for the higher risk, so that the free market rent for such families will tend to be higher than otherwise. This, in fact, will happen in most cases on the free market. But what of personal rather than strictly economic discrimination by the landlord? Suppose, for example, that the landlord is a great admirer of six-foot Swedish-Americans and decides to rent his apartments only to families of such a group. In the free society, it would be fully in his right to do so, but he would clearly suffer a large monetary loss as a result. For this means that he would have to turn away tenant after tenant in an endless quest for very tall Swedish-Americans. While this may be considered an extreme example, the effect is exactly the same, though differing in degree, for any sort of personal discrimination in the marketplace. If, for example, the landlord dislikes redheads and determines not to rent his apartments to them, he will suffer losses, although not as severely as in the first example. In any case, any time anyone practices such discrimination in the free market, he must bear the costs, either of losing profits or of losing services as a consumer. If a consumer decides to boycott goods sold by people he does not like, whether the dislike is justified or not, he then will go without goods or services which he otherwise would have purchased. 
All property owners, then, in a free society, would set down the rules for use of or admission to their property. The more rigorous the rules, the fewer the people who will engage in such use, and the property owner will then have to balance rigor of admission as against loss of income. A landlord might discriminate, for example, by insisting, as George Pullman did in his company town in Illinois in the late 19th century, that all his tenants appear at all times dressed in jacket and tie. He might do so, but it is doubtful that many tenants would elect to move into or remain in such a building or development, and the landlord would suffer severe losses. The principle that property is administered by its owners also provides the rebuttal to a standard argument for government intervention in the economy. The argument holds that, after all, the government sets down traffic rules, red and green lights, driving on the right-hand side, maximum speed limits, etc. Surely everyone must admit that traffic would degenerate into chaos if not for such rules. Therefore, why should government not intervene in the rest of the economy as well? The fallacy here is not that traffic should be regulated. Of course, such rules are necessary. But the crucial point is that such rules will always be laid down by whoever owns, and therefore administers, the roads. Government has been laying down traffic rules because it is the government that has always owned, and therefore run, the streets and roads. In a libertarian society of private ownership, the private owners would lay down the rules for the use of their roads. However, might not the traffic rules be chaotic in a purely free society? Wouldn't some owners designate red for stop, others green or blue, etc.? Wouldn't some roads be used on the right-hand side and others on the left? Such questions are absurd. Obviously, it would be to the interest of all road owners to have uniform rules in these matters, so that road traffic could mesh smoothly and without difficulty. Any maverick road owner who insisted on a left-hand drive or green for stop instead of go would soon find himself with numerous accidents and the disappearance of customers and users. The private railroads in 19th century America faced similar problems and solved them harmoniously and without difficulty. Railroads allowed each other's cars on their tracks. They interconnected with each other for mutual benefit. The gauges of the different railroads were adjusted to be uniform, and uniform regional freight classifications were worked out for 6,000 items. Furthermore, it was the railroads, and not government, that took the initiative to consolidate the unruly and chaotic patchwork of time zones that had existed previously. In order to have accurate scheduling and timetables, the railroads had to consolidate, and in 1883 they agreed to consolidate the existing 54 time zones across the country into the four which we have today. The New York Financial Paper, the Commercial and Financial Chronicle, exclaimed that the laws of trade and the instinct for self-preservation effect reforms and improvements that all the legislative bodies combined could not accomplish. Pricing Streets and Roads If, in contrast, we examine the performance of governmental streets and highways in America, 
It is difficult to see how private ownership could pile up a more inefficient or irrational record. It is now widely recognized, for example, that federal and state governments, spurred by the lobbying of automobile companies, oil companies, tire companies, and construction contractors and unions, have indulged in a vast overexpansion of highways. The highways grant gross subsidies to the users and have played the major role in killing railroads as a viable enterprise. Thus, trucks can operate on a right-of-way constructed and maintained by the taxpayer, while railroads had to build and maintain their own trackage. Furthermore, the subsidized highway and road programs led to an overexpansion of automobile-using suburbs, the coerced bulldozing of countless homes and businesses, and an artificial burdening of the central cities. The cost to the taxpayer and to the economy has been enormous. Particularly subsidized has been the urban auto-using commuter, and it is precisely in the cities where traffic congestion has burgeoned along with this subsidy to overaccumulation of their traffic. Professor William Vickery of Columbia University has estimated that urban expressways have been built at a cost of from $0.06 cents to $0.27 cents per vehicle mile while users pay in gasoline and other auto taxes only about one cent per vehicle mile. The general taxpayer, rather than the motorist, pays for maintenance of urban streets. Furthermore, the gasoline tax is paid per mile, regardless of the particular street or highway being used, and regardless of the time of day of the ride. Hence, when highways are financed from the general gasoline tax fund, the users of the low-cost rural highways are being taxed in order to subsidize the users of the far higher-cost urban expressways. Rural highways typically cost only two cents per vehicle mile to build and maintain. In addition, the gasoline tax is scarcely a rational pricing system for the use of the roads, and no private firms would ever price the use of roads in that way. Private business prices its goods and services to clear the market, so that supply equals demand, and there are neither shortages nor goods going unsold. The fact that gasoline taxes are paid per mile, regardless of the road, means that the more highly demanded urban streets and highways are facing a situation where the price charged is far below the free market price. The result is enormous and aggravated traffic congestion on the heavily traveled streets and roads, especially in rush hours, and a virtually unused network of roads in rural areas. A rational pricing system would at the same time maximize profits for road owners and always provide clear streets free of congestion. In the current system, the government holds the price to users of congested roads extremely low and far below the free market price. The result is a chronic shortage of road space reflected in traffic congestion. The government has invariably tried to meet this growing problem not by rational pricing, but by building still more roads, socking the taxpayer for yet greater subsidies to drivers, and thereby making the shortage still worse. Frantically increasing the supply while holding the price of use far below the market simply leads to chronic and aggravated congestion. It is like a dog chasing a mechanical rabbit, 
Thus, the Washington Post has traced the impact of the federal highway program in the nation's capital. Washington's Capital Beltway was one of the first major links in the system to be completed. When the last section was opened in the summer of 1964, it was hailed as one of the finest highways ever built. It was expected to a. relieve traffic congestion in downtown Washington by providing a bypass for north-south traffic, and b. knit together the suburban counties and cities ringing the capital. What the Beltway actually became was a. a commuter highway and local traffic circulator, and b. the cause of an enormous building boom that accelerated the flight of the white and the affluent from the central city. Instead of relieving traffic congestion, the Beltway has increased it. Along with I-95, 70 South, and I-66, it has made it possible for commuters to move farther and farther from their downtown jobs. It has also led to relocation of government agencies and retail and service firms from downtown to the suburbs, putting the jobs they create out of reach of many inner-city dwellers. What would a rational pricing system, a system instituted by private road owners, look like? In the first place, highways would charge tolls, especially at such convenient entrances to cities as bridges and tunnels, but not as is charged now. For example, toll charges would be much higher at rush hour and other peak hour traffic, for example, Sundays in the summer, than in off hours. In a free market, the greater demand at peak hours would lead to higher toll charges, until congestion would be eliminated and the flow of traffic steady. But people have to go to work, the reader will ask. Surely, but they don't have to go in their own cars. Some commuters will give up altogether and move back to the city. Others will go in carpools. Still others will ride in express buses or trains. In this way, use of the roads at peak hours would be restricted to those most willing to pay the market-clearing price for their use. Others, too, will endeavor to shift their times of work so as to come in and leave at staggered hours. Weekenders would also drive less or stagger their hours. Finally, the higher profits to be earned from, say, bridges and tunnels, will lead private firms to build more of them. Road-building will be governed not by the clamor of pressure groups and users for subsidies, but by the efficient demand and cost calculations of the marketplace. While many people can envision the working of private highways, they boggle at the thought of private urban streets. How would they be priced? Would there be toll gates at every block? Obviously not, for such a system would be clearly uneconomic prohibitively costly to the owner and driver alike. In the first place, the street owners will price parking far more rationally than at present. They will price parking on congested downtown streets very heavily in response to the enormous demand. And contrary to common practice nowadays, they will charge proportionately far more rather than less for longer all-day parking. In short, the street owners will try to induce rapid turnover in the congested areas. All right for parking, again, this is readily understandable, 
But what about driving on congested urban streets? How could this be priced? There are numerous possible ways. In the first place, the downtown street owners might require anyone driving on their streets to buy a license, which could be displayed on the car as licenses and stickers are now. But furthermore, they might require anyone driving at peak hours to buy and display an extra very costly license. There are other ways. Modern technology may make feasible the requirement that all cars equip themselves with a meter, a meter which will not only click away per mile, but may speed up in a predetermined manner on congested streets and roads at peak hours. Then the car owner could receive a bill at the end of the month. A similar plan was set forth a decade ago by Professor A. A. Walters. The particular administrative instruments which might be used include special myelometers, similar to those used by taxis. The special myelometers would record mileage when the flag is up, and a charge would be levied on this mileage. This would be suitable for large urban areas such as New York, London, Chicago, etc. Flag-up streets could be specified for certain hours of the day. Vehicles might be allowed to travel on those streets without a special myelometer, provided that they bought and displayed a daily sticker. The occasional traffic on sticker authority would have been charged more than the maximum amount paid by those on myelometer authority. The supervision of the scheme would be fairly simple. Cameras could be set up to record those cars without sticker or flag, and a suitable fine could be levied for contravention. Professor Vickery has also suggested that TV cameras at the intersections of the most congested streets could record the license numbers of all cars, with motorists sent a bill each month in proportion to all the times that they crossed the intersection. Alternatively, he proposed that each car could be equipped with the Oxford electronic metering device. Each car would then emit its own unique signal, which would be picked up by the device placed at the given intersection. In any case, the problem of rational pricing for streets and highways would be an easy one for private enterprise and modern technology to solve. Businessmen on the free market have readily solved far more difficult problems. All that is needed is to allow them the room to function. If all transportation were set completely free, if the roads, airlines, railroads, and waterways were freed of their labyrinthine networks of subsidies, controls, and regulations in a purely private system, how would the consumers allocate their transportation dollars? Would we return to railroad travel, for example? The best estimates of cost and demand for transportation predict that railroads would become the main staple for long-haul freight, airlines for long-range passenger service, trucks for short-haul freight, and buses for public commuter travel. While railroads, in short, would stage a comeback for long-haul freight, they would not be revivified for much passenger service. In recent years, many liberals who have become disenchanted with the overbuilding of highways have been calling for massive discouragement of highway use and the subsidizing and building of subways and commuter railways on a vast scale for urban traffic. But these grandiose schemes ignore the enormous expense and waste that would be involved.
For even if many of these highways should not have been built, they are there, and it would be folly not to take advantage of them. In recent years, some intelligent transportation economists have raised their voices against the massive waste involved in constructing new rapid transit railroads, such as in the San Francisco Bay Area, and have called instead for making use of the existing highways through employing express buses for commuting. It is not difficult to envision a network of private, unsubsidized, and unregulated railroads and airlines. But could there be a system of private roads? Could such a system be at all feasible? One answer is that private roads have worked admirably in the past. In England, before the 18th century, for example, roads, invariably owned and operated by local governments, were badly constructed and even more badly maintained. These public roads could never have supported the mighty industrial revolution that England experienced in the 18th century the revolution that ushered in the modern age. The vital task of improving the almost impassable English roads was performed by private turnpike companies, which, beginning in 1706, organized and established the great network of roads which made England the envy of the world. The owners of these private turnpike companies were generally landowners, merchants, and industrialists in the area being served by the road and they recouped their costs by charging tolls at selected toll gates. Often the collection of tolls was leased out for a year or more to individuals selected by competitive bids at auction. It was these private roads that developed an internal market in England, and that greatly lowered the costs of transport of coal and other bulky material. And since it was mutually beneficial for them to do so, the turnpike companies linked up with each other to form an interconnected road network throughout the land, all a result of private enterprise in action. As in England, so in the United States a little later in time. Faced again with virtually impassable roads built by local government units, Private companies built and financed a great turnpike network throughout the northeastern states from approximately 1800 to 1830. Once again, private enterprise proved superior in road building and ownership to the backward operations of government. The roads were built and operated by private turnpike corporations, and tolls were charged to the users. Again, the turnpike companies were largely financed by merchants and property owners along the routes, and they voluntarily linked themselves into an interconnected network of roads, and these turnpikes constituted the first really good roads in the United States. Chapter 12. The Public Sector. 3. Police, Law, and the Courts. Police Protection The market and private enterprise do exist, and so most people can readily envision a free market in most goods and services. Probably the most difficult single area to grasp, however, is the abolition of government operations in the service of protection, police, the courts, etc., the area encompassing defense of person and property against attack or invasion. How could private enterprise and the free market possibly provide such service? 
How could police, legal systems, judicial services, law enforcement, prisons, how could these be provided in a free market? We have already seen how a great deal of police protection, at the least, could be supplied by the various owners of streets and land areas. But we now need to examine this entire area systematically. In the first place, there is a common fallacy, held even by most advocates of laissez-faire, that the government must supply police protection, as if police protection were a single, absolute entity, a fixed quantity of something which the government supplies to all. But in actual fact, there is no absolute commodity called police protection, any more than there is an absolute single commodity called food or shelter. It is true that everyone pays taxes for a seemingly fixed quantity of protection, but this is a myth. In actual fact, there are almost infinite degrees of all sorts of protection. For any given person or business, the police can provide everything from a policeman on the beat who patrols once a night, to two policemen patrolling constantly on each block, to cruising patrol cars, to one or even several round-the-clock personal bodyguards. Furthermore, there are many other decisions the police must make, the complexity of which becomes evident as soon as we look beneath the veil of the myth of absolute protection. How shall the police allocate their funds, which are, of course, always limited, as are the funds of all other individuals, organizations, and agencies? How much shall the police invest in electronic equipment, fingerprinting equipment, detectives as against uniformed police, patrol cars as against foot police, etc.? The point is that government has no rational way to make these allocations. The government only knows that it has a limited budget. Its allocations of funds are then subject to the full play of politics, boondoggling, and bureaucratic inefficiency, with no indication at all as to whether the police department is serving the consumers in a way responsive to their desires, or whether it is doing so efficiently. The situation would be different if police services were supplied on a free, competitive market. In that case, consumers would pay for whatever degree of protection they wish to purchase. The consumers who just want to see a policeman once in a while would pay less than those who want continuous patrolling, and far less than those who demand 24-hour bodyguard service. On the free market, protection would be supplied in proportion and in whatever way that the consumers wish to pay for it. A drive for efficiency would be ensured, as it always is on the market, by the compulsion to make profits and avoid losses and thereby to keep costs low and to serve the highest demands of the consumers. Any police firm that suffers from gross inefficiency would soon go bankrupt and disappear. One big problem a government police force must always face is, what laws really to enforce? Police departments are theoretically faced with the absolute injunction, enforce all laws, but in practice, a limited budget forces them to allocate their personnel and equipment to the most urgent crimes. But the absolute dictum pursues them and works against a rational allocation of resources. 
On the free market, what would be enforced is whatever the customers are willing to pay for. Suppose, for example, that Mr. Jones has a precious gem he believes might soon be stolen. He can ask and pay for round-the-clock police protection at whatever strength he may wish to work out with the police company. He might, on the other hand, also have a private road on his estate he doesn't want many people to travel on. But he might not care very much about trespassers on that road. In that case, he won't devote any police resources to protecting the road. As on the market in general, it is up to the consumer. And since all of us are consumers, this means each person individually decides how much and what kind of protection he wants and is willing to buy. All that we have said about landowners' police applies to private police in general. Free market police would not only be efficient, they would have a strong incentive to be courteous and to refrain from brutality against either their clients or their clients' friends or customers. A private central park would be guarded efficiently in order to maximize park revenue rather than have a prohibitive curfew imposed on innocent and paying customers. A free market in police would reward efficient and courteous police protection to customers and penalize any falling off from this standard. No longer would there be the current disjunction between service and payment inherent in all government operations, a disjunction which means that police, like all other government agencies, acquire their revenue not voluntarily and competitively from consumers, but from the taxpayers coercively. In fact, as government police have become increasingly inefficient, consumers have been turning more and more to private forms of protection. We have already mentioned block or neighborhood protection. There are also private guards, insurance companies, private detectives, and such increasingly sophisticated equipment as safes, locks, and closed-circuit TV and burglar alarms. The President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice estimated in 1969 that government police cost the American public $2.8 billion a year, while it spends $1.35 billion on private protection service and another $200 million on equipment, so that private protection expenses amounted to over half the outlay on government police. These figures should give pause to those credulous folk who believe that police protection is somehow, by some mystic right or power, necessarily and forevermore an attribute of state sovereignty. Every reader of detective fiction knows that private insurance detectives are far more efficient than the police in recovering stolen property. Not only is the insurance company impelled by economics to serve the consumer— and thereby try to avoid paying benefits. But the major focus of the insurance company is very different from that of the police. The police, standing as they do for a mythical society, are primarily interested in catching and punishing the criminal. Restoring the stolen loot to the victim is strictly secondary. To the insurance company and its detectives, on the other hand, the prime concern is recovery of the loot, and apprehension and punishment of the criminal is secondary to the prime purpose of aiding the victim of crime. 
Here we see again the difference between a private firm impelled to serve the customer, victim of crime, and the public police, which is under no such economic compulsion. We cannot blueprint a market that exists only as an hypothesis, but it is reasonable to believe that police service in the libertarian society would be supplied by the landowners or by insurance companies. Since insurance companies would be paying benefits to victims of crime, it is highly likely that they would supply police service as a means of keeping down crime and hence their payment of benefits. It is certainly likely in any case that police service would be paid for in regular monthly premiums, with the police agency, whether insurance company or not, called on whenever needed. This supplies what should be the first simple answer to a typical nightmare question of people who first hear about the idea of a totally private police. Why, that means that if you're attacked or robbed, you have to rush over to a policeman and start dickering on how much it will cost to defend you. A moment's reflection should show that no service is supplied in this way on the free market. Obviously, the person who wants to be protected by Agency A or Insurance Company B will pay regular premiums rather than wait to be attacked before buying protection. But suppose an emergency occurs and a Company A policeman sees someone being mugged. Will he stop to ask if the victim has bought insurance from Company A? In the first place, this sort of street crime will be taken care of, as we noted above, by the police hired by whoever owns the street in question. But what of the unlikely case that a neighborhood does not have street police, and a policeman of Company A happens to see someone being attacked? Will he rush to the victim's defense? That, of course, would be up to Company A. But it is scarcely conceivable that private police companies would not cultivate goodwill by making it a policy to give free aid to victims in emergency situations, and perhaps ask the rescued victim for a voluntary donation afterward. In the case of a homeowner being robbed or attacked, then of course he will call on whatever police company he has been using. He will call Police Company A, rather than the police he calls upon now. Competition ensures efficiency, low price, and high quality, and there is no reason to assume a priori, as many people do, that there is something divinely ordained about having only one police agency in a given geographical area. Economists have often claimed that the production of certain goods or services is a natural monopoly, so that more than one private agency could not long survive in a given area. Perhaps, although only a totally free market could decide the matter once and for all, only the market can decide what and how many firms and of what size and quality can survive in active competition. But there is no reason to suppose in advance that police protection is a natural monopoly. After all, insurance companies are not, and if we can have metropolitan, equitable, prudential, etc., insurance companies coexisting side by side, why not metropolitan, equitable, and prudential police protection companies? Gustave de Molinari, the 19th century French free market economist, was the first person in history to contemplate and advocate a free market for police protection. 
Molinari estimated that there would eventually turn out to be several private police agencies side-by-side in the cities, and one private agency in each rural area. Perhaps, but we must realize that modern technology makes much more feasible branch offices of large urban firms in even the most remote rural areas. A person living in a small village in Wyoming, therefore, could employ the services of a local protection company, or he might use a nearby branch office of the Metropolitan Protection Company. But how could a poor person afford private protection he would have to pay for, instead of getting free protection as he does now? There are several answers to this question, one of the most common criticisms of the idea of totally private police protection. One is that this problem, of course, applies to any commodity or service in the libertarian society, not just the police. But isn't protection necessary? Perhaps. But then so is food of many different kinds, clothing, shelter, etc. Surely these are at least as vital, if not more so, than police protection. And yet almost nobody says that, therefore, the government must nationalize food, clothing, shelter, etc., and supply these free as a compulsory monopoly. Very poor people would be supplied, in general, by private charity, as we saw in our chapter on welfare. Furthermore, in the specific case of police, there would undoubtedly be ways of voluntarily supplying free police protection to the indigent, either by the police companies themselves for goodwill, as hospitals and doctors do now, or by special police aid societies that would do work similar to legal aid societies today. Legal aid societies voluntarily supply free legal counsel to the indigent in trouble with the authorities. There are important supplementary considerations. As we have seen, police service is not free. It is paid for by the taxpayer, and the taxpayer is very often the poor person himself. He may very well be paying more in taxes for police now than he would in fees to private and far more efficient police companies. Furthermore, the police companies would be tapping a mass market, with the economies of such a large-scale market, police protection would undoubtedly be much cheaper. No police company would wish to price itself out of a large chunk of its market, and the cost of protection would be no more prohibitively expensive than, say, the cost of insurance today. In fact, it would tend to be much cheaper than current insurance, because the insurance industry today is heavily regulated by government to keep out low-cost competition. There is a final nightmare, which most people who have contemplated private protection agencies consider to be decisive in rejecting such a concept. Wouldn't the agencies always be clashing? Wouldn't anarchy break out? with perpetual conflicts between police forces, as one person calls in his police, while a rival calls in his. There are several levels of answers to this crucial question. In the first place, since there would be no overall state, no central or even single local government, we would at least be spared the horror of interstate wars, with their plethora of massive, super-destructive and now nuclear weapons. As we look back through history, isn't it painfully clear that the number of people killed in isolated neighborhood rumbles or conflicts is as nothing 
to the total mass devastation of interstate wars? There are good reasons for this. To avoid emotionalism, let us take two hypothetical countries, Ruritania and Waldavia. If both Ruritania and Waldavia were dissolved into a libertarian society, with no government and innumerable private individuals, firms, and police agencies, the only clashes that could break out would be local, and the weaponry would necessarily be strictly limited in scope and devastation. Suppose that in a Ruritanian city two police agencies clash and start shooting it out. At worst, they could not use mass bombing or nuclear destruction or germ warfare, since they themselves would be blown up in the Holocaust. It is the slicing off of territorial areas into single governmental monopolies that leads to mass destruction. For then, if the single monopoly government of Waldavia confronts its ancient rival, the government of Ruritania, each can wield weapons of mass destruction and even nuclear warfare, because it will be the other guy and the other country they will hurt. Furthermore, now that every person is a subject of a monopoly government, in the eyes of every other government, he becomes irretrievably identified with his government. The citizen of France is identified with his government, and therefore, if another government attacks France, it will attack the citizenry as well as the government of France. But if Company A battles with Company B, the most that can happen is that the respective customers of each company may be dragged into the battle, but no one else. It should be evident, then, that even if the worst happened, and a libertarian world would indeed become a world of anarchy, we would still be much better off than we are now, at the mercy of rampant, anarchic nation-states, each possessing a fearsome monopoly of weapons of mass destruction. We must never forget that we are all living, and always have lived, in a world of international anarchy in a world of coercive nation-states unchecked by any overall world government, and there is no prospect of this situation changing. A libertarian world, then, even if anarchic, would still not suffer the brutal wars, the mass devastation, the A-bombing, that our state-ridden world has suffered for centuries. Even if local police clash continually, there would be no more Dresdens, no more Hiroshimas, but there is far more to be said. We should never concede that this local anarchy would be likely to occur. Let us separate the problem of police clashes into distinct and different parts. Honest disagreements and the attempt of one or more police forces to become outlaws and to extract funds or impose their rule by coercion. Let us assume for a moment that the police forces will be honest and that they are only riven by honest clashes of opinion. We will set aside for a while the problem of outlaw police. Surely one of the very important aspects of protection service the police can offer their respective customers is quiet protection. Every consumer, every buyer of police protection, would wish above all for protection that is efficient and quiet, with no conflicts or disturbances. Every police agency would be fully aware of this vital fact. To assume that police would continually clash and battle with each other is absurd, 
for it ignores the devastating effect that this chaotic anarchy would have on the business of all the police companies. To put it bluntly, such wars and conflicts would be bad, very bad, for business. Therefore, on the free market, the police agencies would all see to it that there would be no clashes between them, and that all conflicts of opinion would be ironed out in private courts, decided by private judges or arbitrators. To get more specific, in the first place, as we have said, clashes would be minimal because the street owner would have his guards, the storekeeper his, the landlord his, and the homeowner his own police company. Realistically, in the everyday world, there would be little room for direct clashes between police agencies. But suppose, as will sometimes occur, two neighboring homeowners get into a fight. Each accuses the other of initiating assault or violence, and each calls on his own police company, should they happen to subscribe to different companies. What then? Again, it would be pointless and economically as well as physically self-destructive for the two police companies to start shooting it out. Instead, every police company, to remain in business at all, would announce as a vital part of its service the use of private courts or arbitrators to decide who is in the wrong. The Courts Suppose, then, that the judge or arbitrator decides Smith was in the wrong in a dispute, and that he aggressed against Jones. If Smith accepts the verdict, then whatever damages or punishment is levied, there is no problem for the theory of libertarian protection. But what if he does not accept it? Or suppose another example. Jones is robbed. He sets his police company to do detective work in trying to track down the criminal. The company decides that a certain Brown is the criminal. Then what? If Brown acknowledges his guilt, then again, there is no problem, and judicial punishment proceeds, centering on forcing the criminal to make restitution to the victim. But again, what if Brown denies his guilt? These cases take us out of the realm of police protection and into another vital area of protection, judicial service that is, the provision, in accordance with generally accepted procedures, of a method of trying as best as one can to determine who is the criminal, or who is the breaker of contracts in any sort of crime or dispute. Many people, even those who acknowledge that there could be privately competitive police service supplied on a free market, balk at the idea of totally private courts. How in the world could courts be private? How would courts employ force in a world without government? Wouldn't eternal conflicts and anarchy then ensue? In the first place, the monopoly courts of government are subject to the same grievous problems, inefficiencies, and contempt for the consumer as any other government operation. We all know that judges, for example, are not selected according to their wisdom, probity, or efficiency in serving the consumer, but are political hacks chosen by the political process. Furthermore, the courts are monopolies. If, for example, the courts in some town or city should become corrupt, venal, oppressive, or inefficient, the citizen at present has no recourse. The aggrieved citizen of Deep Falls, Wyoming, must be governed by the local Wyoming court, or not at all. 
In a libertarian society, there would be many courts, many judges to whom he could turn. Again, there is no reason to assume a natural monopoly of judicial wisdom. The Deep Falls citizen could, for example, call upon the local branch of the Prudential Judicial Company. How would courts be financed in a free society? There are many possibilities. Possibly each individual would subscribe to a court service, paying a monthly premium, and then calling upon the court if he is in need. Or, since courts will probably be needed much less frequently than policemen, he may pay a fee whenever he chooses to use the court, with the criminal or contract breaker eventually recompensing the victim or plaintiff. Or, in still a third possibility, the courts may be hired by the police agencies to settle disputes. Or there may even be vertically integrated firms supplying both police and judicial service, the Prudential Judicial Company might have a police and a judicial division. Only the market will be able to decide which of these methods will be most appropriate. We should all be more familiar with the increasing use of private arbitration even in our present society. The government courts have become so clogged, inefficient, and wasteful that more and more parties to disputes are turning to private arbitrators as a cheaper and far less time-consuming way of settling their disputes. In recent years, private arbitration has become a growing and highly successful profession. Being voluntary, furthermore, the rules of arbitration can be decided rapidly by the parties themselves, without the need for a ponderous, complex legal framework applicable to all citizens. Arbitration therefore permits judgments to be made by people expert in the trade or occupation concerned. Currently, the American Arbitration Association, whose motto is, The hand clasp is mightier than the fist, has 25 regional offices throughout the country, with 23,000 arbitrators. In 1969, the association conducted over 22,000 arbitrations. In addition, the insurance companies adjust over 50,000 claims a year through voluntary arbitration. There is also a growing and successful use of private arbitrators in automobile accident claim cases. It might be protested that while performing an ever greater proportion of judicial functions, the private arbitrator's decisions are still enforced by the courts, so that once the disputing parties agree on an arbitrator, his decision becomes legally binding. This is true, but it was not the case before 1920, and the arbitration profession grew at as rapid a rate from 1900 to 1920 as it has since. In fact, the modern arbitration movement began in full force in England during the time of the American Civil War, with merchants increasingly using the private courts provided by voluntary arbitrators, even though the decisions were not legally binding. By 1900, voluntary arbitration began to take hold in the United States. In fact, in medieval England, the entire structure of merchant law which was handled clumsily and inefficiently by the government's courts, grew up in private merchants' courts. The merchants' courts were purely voluntary arbitrators, and the decisions were not legally binding. How, then, were they successful? The answer is that the merchants, in the Middle Ages and down to 1920, relied solely on ostracism and boycott by the other merchants in the area. 
In other words, should a merchant refuse to submit to arbitration or ignore a decision, the other merchants would publish this fact in the trade and would refuse to deal with the recalcitrant merchant, bringing him quickly to heel. Wooldridge mentions one medieval example. Merchants made their courts work simply by agreeing to abide by the results. The merchant who broke the understanding would not be sent to jail, to be sure, but neither would he long continue to be a merchant, for the compliance exacted by his fellows and their power over his goods proved, if anything, more effective than physical coercion. Take John of Homing, who made his living marketing wholesale quantities of fish, when John sold a lot of herring on the representation that it conformed to a three-barrel sample, but which his fellow merchants found was actually mixed with sticklebacks and putrid herring, he made good the deficiency on pain of economic ostracism. In modern times, ostracism became even more effective, and it included the knowledge that anyone who ignored an arbitrator's award could never again avail himself of an arbitrator's services. Industrialist Owen D. Young, head of General Electric, concluded that the moral censure of other businessmen was a far more effective sanction than legal enforcement. Nowadays, modern technology, computers, and credit ratings would make such nationwide ostracism even more effective than it has ever been in the past. Even if purely voluntary arbitration is sufficient for commercial disputes, however, what of frankly criminal activities? The mugger, the rapist, the bank robber? In these cases, it must be admitted that ostracism would probably not be sufficient, even though it would also include, we must remember, refusal of private street owners to allow such criminals in their areas. For the criminal cases, then, courts and legal enforcement become necessary. How, then, would the courts operate in the libertarian society? In particular, how could they enforce their decisions? In all their operations, furthermore, they must observe the critical libertarian rule that no physical force may be used against anyone who has not been convicted as a criminal. Otherwise, the users of such force, whether police or courts, would be themselves liable to be convicted as aggressors if it turned out that the person they had used force against was innocent of crime. In contrast to statist systems, no policeman or judge could be granted special immunity to use coercion beyond what anyone else in society could use. Let us now take the case we mentioned before. Mr. Jones is robbed. His hired detective agency decides that one Brown committed the crime, and Brown refuses to concede his guilt. What then? In the first place, we must recognize that there is at present no overall world court or world government enforcing its decrees. Yet, while we live in a state of international anarchy, there is little or no problem in disputes between private citizens of two countries. Suppose that right now, for example, a citizen of Uruguay claims that he has been swindled by a citizen of Argentina. Which court does he go to? He goes to his own that is, the victim's or the plaintiff's court. The case proceeds in the Uruguayan court, and its decision is honored by the Argentinian court. The same is true if an American feels he has been swindled by a Canadian, and so on. In Europe after the Roman Empire, when German tribes lived side by side and in the same areas, 
If a Visigoth felt that he had been injured by a Frank, he took the case to his own court, and the decision was generally accepted by the Franks. Going to the plaintiff's court is the rational libertarian procedure as well, since the victim or plaintiff is the one who is aggrieved, and who naturally takes the case to his own court. So, in our case, Jones would go to the Prudential Court Company to charge Brown with theft. It is possible, of course, that Brown is also a client of the Prudential Court, in which case there is no problem. The Prudential's decision covers both parties and becomes binding. But one important stipulation is that no coercive subpoena power can be used against Brown, because he must be considered innocent until he is convicted. But Brown would be served with a voluntary subpoena, a notice that he is being tried on such and such a charge, and inviting him or his legal representative to appear. If he does not appear, then he will be tried in absentia, and this will obviously be less favorable for Brown, since his side of the case will not be pleaded in court. If Brown is declared guilty, then the court and its marshals will employ force to seize Brown and exact whatever punishment is decided upon, a punishment which, obviously, will focus first on restitution to the victim. What, however, if Brown does not recognize the prudential court? What if he is a client of the Metropolitan Court Company? Here the case becomes more difficult. What will happen then? First, victim Jones pleads his case in the prudential court. If Brown is found innocent, this ends the controversy. Suppose, however, that defendant Brown is found guilty. If he does nothing, the court's judgment proceeds against him. Suppose, however, Brown then takes the case to the Metropolitan Court Company, pleading inefficiency or venality by Prudential. The case will then be heard by Metropolitan. If Metropolitan also finds Brown guilty, this too ends the controversy, and Prudential will proceed against Brown with dispatch. Suppose, however, that Metropolitan finds Brown innocent of the charge. Then what? Will the two courts and their arms-wielding marshals shoot it out in the streets? Once again, this would clearly be irrational and self-destructive behavior on the part of the courts. An essential part of their judicial service to their clients is the provision of just, objective, and peacefully functioning decisions, the best and most objective way of arriving at the truth of who committed the crime. Arriving at a decision and then allowing chaotic gunplay would scarcely be considered valuable judicial service by their customers. Thus, an essential part of any court's service to its clients would be an appeals procedure. In short, every court would agree to abide by an appeals trial, as decided by a voluntary arbitrator to whom Metropolitan and Prudential would now turn. The appeals judge would make his decision, and the result of this third trial would be treated as binding on the guilty. The prudential court would then proceed to enforcement. An appeals court. But isn't this setting up a compulsory monopoly government once again? No, because there is nothing in the system that requires any one person or court to be the court of appeal. In short, in the United States at present, the Supreme Court is established as the Court of Final Appeal. So the Supreme Court judges become the final arbiters, regardless of the wishes of plaintiff or defendant alike.
In contrast, in the libertarian society, the various competing private courts could go to any appeals judge they think fair, expert, and objective. No single appeals judge or set of judges would be foisted upon society by coercion. How would the appeals judges be financed? There are many possible ways, but the most likely is that they will be paid by the various original courts who would charge their customers for appeals services in their premiums or fees. But suppose Brown insists on another appeals judge, and yet another. Couldn't he escape judgment by appealing ad infinitum? Obviously, in any society, legal proceedings cannot continue indefinitely. There must be some cut-off point. In the present statist society, where government monopolizes the judicial function, the Supreme Court is arbitrarily designated as the cut-off point. In the libertarian society, there would also have to be an agreed-upon cut-off point, and since there are only two parties to any crime or dispute, the plaintiff and the defendant, it seems most sensible for the legal code to declare that a decision arrived at by any two courts shall be binding. This will cover the situation when both the plaintiff's and the defendant's courts come to the same decision, as well as the situation when an appeals court decides on a disagreement between the two original courts. The Law and the Courts It is now clear that there will have to be a legal code in the libertarian society. How? How can there be a legal code? a system of law without a government to promulgate it, an appointed system of judges or a legislature to vote on statutes. To begin with, is a legal code consistent with libertarian principles? To answer the last question first, it should be clear that a legal code is necessary to lay down precise guidelines for the private courts. If, for example, Court A decides that all redheads are inherently evil and must be punished, it is clear that such decisions are the reverse of libertarian, that such a law would constitute an invasion of the rights of redheads. Hence, any such decision would be illegal in terms of libertarian principle and could not be upheld by the rest of society. It then becomes necessary to have a legal code which would be generally accepted and which the courts would pledge themselves to follow. The legal code simply would insist on the libertarian principle of no aggression against person or property, define property rights in accordance with libertarian principle, set up rules of evidence, such as currently apply, in deciding who are the wrongdoers in any dispute, and set up a code of maximum punishment for any particular crime. Within the framework of such a code, the particular courts would compete on the most efficient procedures, and the market would then decide whether judges, juries, etc. are the most efficient methods of providing judicial services. Are such stable and consistent law codes possible with only competing judges to develop and apply them, and without government or legislature? Not only are they possible, but over the years, the best and most successful parts of our legal system were developed precisely in this manner. Legislatures, as well as kings, have been capricious, invasive, and inconsistent. They have only introduced anomalies and despotism into the legal system, 
In fact, the government is no more qualified to develop and apply law than it is to provide any other service. And just as religion has been separated from the state, and the economy can be separated from the state, so can every other state function, including police, courts, and the law itself. As indicated above, for example, the entire law merchant was developed not by the state or in state courts, but by private merchant courts. It was only much later that government took over mercantile law from its development in merchants' courts. The same occurred with admiralty law, the entire structure of the law of the sea, shipping, salvages, etc., Here again, the state was not interested, and its jurisdiction did not apply to the high seas. So the shippers themselves took on the task of not only applying, but working out the whole structure of admiralty law in their own private courts. Again, it was only later that the government appropriated admiralty law into its own courts. Finally, the major body of Anglo-Saxon law The justly celebrated common law was developed over the centuries by competing judges applying time-honored principles, rather than the shifting decrees of the state. These principles were not decided upon arbitrarily by any king or legislature. They grew up over centuries by applying rational and very often libertarian principles to the cases before them. The idea of following precedent was developed not as a blind service to the past, but because all the judges of the past had made their decisions in applying the generally accepted common law principles to specific cases and problems. For it was universally held that the judge did not make law, as he often does today. The judge's task His expertise was in finding the law in accepted common law principles, and then applying that law to specific cases, or to new technological or institutional conditions. The glory of the centuries-long development of the common law is testimony to their success. The common law judges, furthermore, functioned very much like private arbitrators, as experts in the law to whom private parties went with their disputes. There was no arbitrarily imposed Supreme Court whose decision would be binding, nor was precedent, though honored, considered as automatically binding either. Thus the libertarian Italian jurist Bruno Leone has written, Courts of judicature could not easily enact arbitrary rules of their own in England, as they were never in a position to do so directly, that is to say, in the usual, sudden, widely-ranging, and imperious manner of legislators. Moreover, there were so many courts of justice in England, and they were so jealous of one another, that even the famous principle of the binding precedent was not openly recognized as valid by them until comparatively recent times. Besides, they could never decide anything that had not been previously brought before them by private persons. Finally, comparatively few people used to go before the courts to ask from them the rules deciding their cases. And on the absence of Supreme Courts, it cannot be denied that the lawyer's law or the judiciary law may tend to acquire the characteristics of legislation including its undesirable ones, whenever jurists or judges are entitled to decide ultimately on a case. 
In our time, the mechanism of the judiciary in certain countries where supreme courts are established results in the imposition of the personal views of the members of these courts, or of a majority of them, on all the other people concerned, whenever there is a great deal of disagreement between the opinion of the former and the convictions of the latter. But this possibility, far from being necessarily implied in the nature of lawyer's law or of judiciary law, is rather a deviation from it. Apart from such aberrations, the imposed personal views of the judges were kept to a minimum, a. by the fact that judges could only make decisions when private citizens brought cases to them, b. each judge's decisions applied only to the particular case, and c. because the decisions of the common law judges and lawyers always considered the precedence of the centuries. Furthermore, as Leone points out, in contrast to legislatures or the executive, where dominant majorities or pressure groups ride roughshod over minorities, judges, by their very position, are constrained to hear and weigh the arguments of the two contending parties in each dispute. Parties are equal as regards the judge, in the sense that they are free to produce arguments and evidence. They do not constitute a group in which dissenting minorities give way to triumphant majorities. And Leone points out the analogy between this process and the free market economy. Of course, arguments may be stronger or weaker, but the fact that every party can produce them is comparable to the fact that everybody can individually compete with everybody else in the market in order to buy and sell. Professor Leone found that in the private law area, the ancient Roman judges operated in the same way as the English common law courts. The Roman jurist was a sort of scientist. The objects of his research were the solutions to cases that citizens submitted to him for study, just as industrialists might today submit to a physicist or to an engineer a technical problem concerning their plants or their production. Hence, private Roman law was something to be described or to be discovered, not something to be enacted. A world of things that were there, forming part of the common heritage of all Roman citizens. Nobody enacted that law. Nobody could change it by any exercise of his personal will. This is the long-run concept, or, if you prefer, the Roman concept of the certainty of the law. Finally, Professor Leone was able to use his knowledge of the operations of ancient and common law to answer the vital question, In a libertarian society, who will appoint the judges to let them perform the task of defining the law? His answer is, the people themselves, people who would go to the judges with the greatest reputation of expertise and wisdom in knowing and applying the basic common legal principles of the society. In fact, it is rather immaterial to establish in advance who will appoint the judges, for in a sense, everybody could do so, as happens to a certain extent when people resort to private arbiters to settle their own quarrels. For the appointment of judges is not such a special problem as would be, for example, that of appointing physicists or doctors or other kinds of learned and experienced people. 
The emergence of good professional people in any society is only apparently due to official appointments, if any. It is in fact based on a widespread consent on the part of clients, colleagues, and the public at large, a consent without which no appointment is really effective. Of course, people can be wrong about the true value chosen as being worthy, but these difficulties in their choice are inescapable in any kind of choice. Of course, in the future libertarian society, the basic legal code would not rely on blind custom, much of which could well be anti-libertarian. The code would have to be established on the basis of acknowledged libertarian principle of non-aggression against the person or property of others. In short, on the basis of reason, rather than on mere tradition, however sound its general outlines. Since we have a body of common law principles to draw on, however, the task of reason in correcting and amending the common law would be far easier than trying to construct a body of systematic legal principles de novo, out of the thin air. The most remarkable historical example of a society of libertarian law and courts, however, has been neglected by historians until very recently. And this was also a society where not only the courts and the law were largely libertarian, but where they operated within a purely stateless and libertarian society. This was ancient Ireland, an Ireland which persisted in this libertarian path for roughly a thousand years until its brutal conquest by England in the 17th century. And in contrast to many similarly functioning primitive tribes, such as the Ebos in West Africa and many European tribes, pre-conquest Ireland was not in any sense a primitive society. It was a highly complex society that was, for centuries, the most advanced, most scholarly, and most civilized in all of Western Europe. For a thousand years, then, ancient Celtic Ireland had no state or anything like it. As the leading authority on ancient Irish law has written, there was no legislature, no bailiffs, no police, no public enforcement of justice. There was no trace of state-administered justice. How, then, was justice secured? The basic political unit of ancient Ireland was the Tuath. All freemen who owned land, all professionals and all craftsmen, were entitled to become members of a Tuath. Each Tuath's members formed an annual assembly, which decided all common policies, declared war or peace on other Tuatha, and elected or deposed their kings. An important point is that in contrast to primitive tribes, no one was stuck or bound to a given Tuath, either because of kinship or of geographical location. Individual members were free to, and often did, secede from a Tuath and join a competing Tuath. Often, two or more Tuatha decided to merge into a single, more efficient unit. As Professor Joe Peden states, the Tuath is thus a body of persons voluntarily united for socially beneficial purposes, and the sum total of the landed properties of its members constituted its territorial dimension. In short, they did not have the modern state with its claim to sovereignty over a given, usually expanding, territorial area, divorced from the landed property rights of its subjects. On the contrary, 
Tuatha were voluntary associations, which only comprised the landed properties of its voluntary members. Historically, about 80 to 100 Tuatha coexisted at any time throughout Ireland. But what of the elected king? Did he constitute a form of state ruler? Chiefly, the king functioned as a religious high priest, presiding over the worship rites of the Tuath, which functioned as a voluntary religious as well as a social and political organization. As in pagan pre-Christian priesthoods, the kingly function was hereditary, this practice carrying over to Christian times. The king was elected by the Tuath from within a royal kin group, which carried the hereditary priestly function. Politically, however, the king had strictly limited functions. He was the military leader of the Tuath, and he presided over the Tuath assemblies. But he could only conduct war or peace negotiations as agent of the assemblies, and he was in no sense sovereign and had no rights of administering justice over Tuath members. He could not legislate, and when he himself was party to a lawsuit, he had to submit his case to an independent judicial arbiter. Again, how then was law developed and justice maintained? In the first place, the law itself was based on a body of ancient and immemorial custom, passed down as oral and then written tradition through a class of professional jurists called the Brihans. The Brihans were in no sense public or governmental officials. They were simply selected by parties to disputes on the basis of their reputations for wisdom, knowledge of the customary law, and the integrity of their decisions. As Professor Peden states, the professional jurists were consulted by parties to disputes for advice as to what the law was in particular cases, and these same men often acted as arbitrators between suitors. They remained at all times private persons, not public officials. Their functioning depended upon their knowledge of the law and the integrity of their judicial reputations. Furthermore, the Brihans had no connection whatsoever with the individual Tuatha or with their kings. They were completely private, national in scope, and were used by disputants throughout Ireland. Moreover, and this is a vital point, in contrast to the system of private Roman lawyers, the Brihan was all there was. There were no other judges, no public judges of any kind in ancient Ireland. It was the Brihans who were schooled in the law, and who added glosses and applications to the law to fit changing conditions. Furthermore, there was no monopoly, in any sense, of the Brihan jurists. Instead, several competing schools of jurisprudence existed and competed for the custom of the Irish people. How were the decisions of the Brihans enforced? Through an elaborate, voluntarily developed system of insurance, or sureties. Men were linked together by a variety of surety relationships, by which they guaranteed one another for the righting of wrongs and for the enforcement of justice and the decisions of the Brihans. In short, the Brihans themselves were not involved in the enforcement of decisions, which rested again with private individuals linked through sureties. There were various types of surety. For example, the surety would guarantee with his own property the payment of a debt, 
and then join the plaintiff in enforcing a debt judgment if the debtor refused to pay. In that case, the debtor would have to pay double damages, one to the original creditor and another as compensation to his surety. And this system applied to all offenses, aggressions, and assaults, as well as commercial contracts. In short, it applied to all cases of what we would call civil and criminal law. All criminals were considered to be debtors, who owed restitution and compensation to their victims, who thus became their creditors. The victim would gather his sureties around him and proceed to apprehend the criminal or to proclaim his suit publicly and demand that the defendant submit to adjudication of their dispute with the Brihans. The criminal might then send his own sureties to negotiate a settlement or agree to submit the dispute to the Brihans. If he did not do so, he was considered an outlaw by the entire community. He could no longer enforce any claim of his own in the courts, and he was treated to the opprobrium of the entire community. There were occasional wars, to be sure, in the thousand years of Celtic Ireland, but they were minor brawls, negligible compared to the devastating wars that racked the rest of Europe. As Professor Peden points out, without the coercive apparatus of the state— which can, through taxation and conscription, mobilize large amounts of arms and manpower, the Irish were unable to sustain any large-scale military force in the field for any length of time. Irish wars were pitiful brawls and cattle raids, by European standards. Thus we have indicated that it is perfectly possible, in theory and historically, to have efficient and courteous police, competent and learned judges, and a body of systematic and socially accepted law, and none of these things being furnished by a coercive government. Government, claiming a compulsory monopoly of protection over a geographical area and extracting its revenues by force, can be separated from the entire field of protection. Government is no more necessary for providing vital protection service than it is necessary for providing anything else. And we have not stressed a crucial fact about government, that its compulsory monopoly over the weapons of coercion has led it over the centuries to infinitely more butcheries and infinitely greater tyranny and oppression than any decentralized private agencies could possibly have done. If we look at the black record of mass murder, exploitation, and tyranny levied on society by governments over the ages, we need not be loath to abandon the Leviathan state and try freedom. Outlaw Protectors We have saved for the last this problem. What if police or judges and courts should be venal and biased? What if they should bias their decisions, for example, in favor of particularly wealthy clients? We have shown how a libertarian legal and judicial system could work on the purely free market, assuming honest differences of opinion. But what if one or more police or courts should become, in effect, outlaws? What then? In the first place, libertarians do not flinch from such a question. In contrast to such utopians as Marxists or left-wing anarchists, anarcho-communists or anarcho-syndicalists, libertarians do not assume 
that the ushering in of the purely free society of their dreams will also bring with it a new, magically transformed libertarian man. We do not assume that the lion will lie down with the lamb, or that no one will have criminal or fraudulent designs upon his neighbor. The better that people will be, of course, the better any social system will work. In particular, the less work any police or courts will have to do. But no such assumption is made by libertarians. What we assert is that given any particular degree of goodness or badness among men, the purely libertarian society will be at once the most moral and the most efficient, the least criminal and the most secure of person or property. Let us first consider the problem of the venal or crooked judge or court. What of the court which favors its own wealthy client in trouble? In the first place, any such favoritism will be highly unlikely, given the rewards and sanctions of the free market economy. The very life of the court, the very livelihood of a judge, will depend on his reputation for integrity, fair-mindedness, objectivity, and the quest for truth in every case. This is his brand name. Should word of any venality leak out, he will immediately lose clients, and the courts will no longer have customers. For even those clients who may be criminally inclined will scarcely sponsor a court whose decisions are no longer taken seriously by the rest of society, or who themselves may well be in jail for dishonest and fraudulent dealings. If, for example, Joe Zilch is accused of a crime or breach of contract, and he goes to a court headed by his brother-in-law, no one, least of all other honest courts, will take this court's decision seriously. It will no longer be considered a court in the eyes of anyone but Joe Zilch and his family. Contrast this built-in corrective mechanism to the present-day government courts. Judges are appointed or elected for long terms, up to life, and they are accorded a monopoly of decision-making in their particular area. It is almost impossible, except in cases of gross corruption, to do anything about venal decisions of judges. Their power to make and to enforce their decisions continues unchecked year after year. Their salaries continue to be paid, furnished under coercion by the hapless taxpayer. But in the totally free society, any suspicion of a judge or court will cause their customers to melt away and their decisions to be ignored. This is a far more efficient system of keeping judges honest than the mechanism of government. Furthermore, the temptation for venality and bias would be far less for another reason. Business firms in the free market earn their keep not from wealthy customers, but from a mass market by consumers. Macy's earns its income from the mass of the population, not from a few wealthy customers. The same is true of metropolitan life insurance today, and the same would be true of any metropolitan court system tomorrow. It would be folly indeed for the courts to risk the loss of favor by the bulk of its customers, for the favors of a few wealthy clients, but contrast the present system, where judges, like all other politicians, may be beholden to wealthy contributors who finance the campaigns of their political parties. There is a myth that the American system provides a superb set of checks and balances, with the executive, the legislature, and the courts all balancing and checking one against the other, 
so that power cannot unduly accumulate in one set of hands. But the American checks and balances system is largely a fraud. For each one of these institutions is a coercive monopoly in its area, and all of them are part of one government, headed by one political party at any given time. Furthermore, at best there are only two parties, each one close to the other in ideology and personnel, often colluding, and the actual day-to-day -day business of government is headed by a civil service bureaucracy that cannot be displaced by the voters. Contrast to these mythical checks and balances, the real checks and balances provided by the free market economy. What keeps A&P honest is the competition, actual and potential, of Safeway, Pioneer, and countless other grocery stores. What keeps them honest is the ability of the consumers to cut off their patronage. What would keep the free market judges and courts honest is the lively possibility of heading down the block or down the road to another judge or court, if suspicion should descend on any particular one. What would keep them honest is the lively possibility of their customers cutting off their business. These are the real, active checks and balances of the free market economy and the free society. The same analysis applies to the possibility of a private police force becoming outlaw, of using their coercive powers to exact tribute, set up a protection racket to shake down their victims, etc. Of course, such a thing could happen. But in contrast to present-day society, there would be immediate checks and balances available. There would be other police forces who could use their weapons to band together to put down the aggressors against their clientele. If the Metropolitan Police Force should become gangsters and exact tribute, then the rest of society could flock to the prudential, equitable, etc. police forces, who could band together to put them down. And this contrasts vividly with the state. If a group of gangsters should capture the state apparatus with its monopoly of coercive weapons, there is nothing at present that can stop them, short of the immensely difficult process of revolution. In a libertarian society, there would be no need for a massive revolution to stop the depredation of gangster states. There would be a swift turning to the honest police forces to check and put down the force that had turned bandit. And indeed, what is the state anyway but organized banditry? What is taxation but theft on a gigantic, unchecked scale? What is war but mass murder on a scale impossible by private police forces? What is conscription but mass enslavement? Can anyone envision a private police force getting away with a tiny fraction of what states get away with, and do habitually, year after year, century after century? There is another vital consideration that would make it almost impossible for an outlaw police force to commit anything like the banditry that modern governments practice. One of the crucial factors that permits governments to do the monstrous things they habitually do is the sense of legitimacy on the part of the stupefied public. The average citizen may not like, may even strongly object to, the policies and exactions of his government, but he has been imbued with the idea carefully indoctrinated by centuries of governmental propaganda, that the government is his legitimate sovereign, and that it would be wicked or mad to refuse to obey its dictates. 
It is this sense of legitimacy that the state's intellectuals have fostered over the ages, aided and abetted by all the trappings of legitimacy, flags, rituals, ceremonies, awards, constitutions, etc. A bandit gang, even if all the police forces conspired together into one vast gang, could never command such legitimacy. The public would consider them purely bandits, Their extortions and tributes would never be considered legitimate, though onerous taxes, to be paid automatically. The public would quickly resist these illegitimate demands, and the bandits would be resisted and overthrown. Once the public had tasted the joys, prosperity, freedom, and efficiency of a libertarian, stateless society, it would be almost impossible for a state to fasten itself upon them once again. Once freedom has been fully enjoyed, it is no easy task to force people to give it up. But suppose, just suppose, that despite all these handicaps and obstacles, despite the love for their newfound freedom, despite the inherent checks and balances of the free market, suppose anyway that the state manages to reestablish itself. What then? Well, then, all that would have happened is that we would have a state once again. We would be no worse off than we are now with our current state. And, as one libertarian philosopher has put it, at least the world will have had a glorious holiday. Karl Marx's ringing promise applies far more to a libertarian society than to communism. In trying freedom, in abolishing the state, we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. National Defense We come now to what is usually the final argument against the libertarian position. Every libertarian has heard a sympathetic but critical listener say, All right, I see how this system could be applied successfully to local police and courts. But how could a libertarian society defend us against the Russians? There are, of course, several dubious assumptions implied in such a question. There is the assumption that the Russians are bent upon military invasion of the United States, a doubtful assumption at best. There is the assumption that any such desire would still remain after the United States had become a purely libertarian society. This notion overlooks the lesson of history that wars result from conflicts between nation-states, each armed to the teeth, each direly suspicious of attack by the other. But a libertarian America would clearly not be a threat to anyone, not because it had no arms, but because it would be dedicated to no aggression against anyone or against any country. Being no longer a nation-state, which is inherently threatening, there would be little chance of any country attacking us. One of the great evils of the nation-state is that each state is able to identify all of its subjects with itself, Hence, in any interstate war, the innocent civilians, the subjects of each country, are subject to aggression from the enemy state. But in a libertarian society there would be no such identification, and hence very little chance of such a devastating war. Suppose, for example, that our outlaw metropolitan police force has initiated aggression not only against Americans but also against Mexicans. If Mexico had a government, then clearly the Mexican government would know full well that Americans in general were not implicated in the Metropolitan's crimes, and had no symbiotic relationship with it. 
If the Mexican police engaged in a punitive expedition to punish the Metropolitan Force, they would not be at war with Americans in general, as they would be now. In fact, it is highly likely that other American forces would join the Mexicans in putting down the aggressor. Hence, the idea of interstate war against a libertarian country or geographical area would most likely disappear. There is, furthermore, a grave philosophical error in the very posing of this sort of question about the Russians. When we contemplate any sort of new system, whatever it may be, we must first decide whether we want to see it brought about. In order to decide whether we want libertarianism or communism or left-wing anarchism or theocracy or any other system, we must first assume that it has been established, and then consider whether the system could work, whether it could remain in existence, and just how efficient such a system would be. We have shown, I believe, that a libertarian system, once instituted, could work, be viable, and be at once far more efficient, prosperous, moral, and free than any other social system. But we have said nothing about how to get from the present system to the ideal, for these are two totally separate questions— the question of what is our ideal goal, and of the strategy and tactics of how to get from the present system to that goal. The Russian question mixes these two levels of discourse. It assumes not that libertarianism has been established everywhere throughout the globe, but that for some reason it has been established only in America and nowhere else. But why assume this? Why not first assume that it has been established everywhere, and see whether we like it? After all, the libertarian philosophy is an eternal one, not bound to time or place. We advocate liberty for everyone, everywhere, not just in the United States. If someone agrees that a world libertarian society once established is the best that he can conceive, that it would be workable, efficient, and moral— then let him become a libertarian. Let him join us in accepting liberty as our ideal goal, and then join us further in the separate and obviously difficult task of figuring out how to bring this ideal about. If we do move on to strategy, it is obvious that the larger an area in which liberty is first established, the better its chances for survival— and the better its chance to resist any violent overthrow that may be attempted. If liberty is established instantaneously throughout the world, then there will, of course, be no problem of national defense. All problems will be local police problems. If, however, only Deep Falls, Wyoming becomes libertarian, while the rest of America and the world remain statist, its chances for survival will be very slim, if Deep Falls, Wyoming, declares its secession from the United States government and establishes a free society, the chances are great that the United States, given its historical ferocity toward secessionists, would quickly invade and crush the new free society, and there is little that any Deep Falls police force could do about it. Between these two polar cases, there is an infinite continuum of degrees— and obviously the larger the area of freedom, the better it could withstand any outside threat. 
The Russian question is therefore a matter of strategy rather than a matter of deciding on basic principles and on the goal toward which we wish to direct our efforts. But after all this is said and done, let us take up the Russian question anyway. Let us assume that the Soviet Union would really be hell-bent on attacking a libertarian population within the present boundaries of the United States. Clearly, there would no longer be a United States government to form a single nation-state. In the first place, the form and quantity of defense expenditures would be decided upon by the American consumers themselves. Those Americans who favor Polaris submarines and fear a Soviet threat would subscribe toward the financing of such vessels. Those who prefer an ABM system would invest in such defensive missiles. Those who laugh at such a threat or those who are committed pacifists would not contribute to any national defense service at all. Different defense theories would be applied in proportion to those who agree with and support the various theories being offered. Given the enormous waste in all wars and defense preparations in all countries throughout history, it is certainly not beyond the bounds of reason to propose that private, voluntary defense efforts would be far more efficient than government boondoggles. Certainly these efforts would be infinitely more moral. But let us assume the worst. Let us assume the Soviet Union at last invades and conquers the territory of America. What then? We have to realize that the Soviet Union's difficulties will have only just begun. The main reason a conquering country can rule a defeated country is that the latter has an existing state apparatus to transmit and enforce the victor's orders onto a subject population. Britain, though far smaller in area and population, was able to rule India for centuries because it could transmit British orders to the ruling Indian princes, who, in turn, could enforce them on the subject population. But in those cases in history where the conquered had no government, the conquerors found rule over the conquered extremely difficult. When the British conquered West Africa, for example, they found it extremely difficult to govern the Igbo tribe, later to form Biafra, because that tribe was essentially libertarian and had no ruling government of tribal chiefs to transmit orders to the natives. And perhaps the major reason it took the English centuries to conquer ancient Ireland is that the Irish had no state, and that there was, therefore, no ruling governmental structure to keep treaties, transmit orders, etc., it is for this reason that the English kept denouncing the wild and uncivilized Irish as faithless, because they would not keep treaties with the English conquerors. The English could never understand that, lacking any sort of state, the Irish warriors who concluded treaties with the English could only speak for themselves. They could never commit any other group of the Irish population. Furthermore, the occupying Russians' lives would be made even more difficult by the inevitable eruption of guerrilla warfare by the American population. It is surely a lesson of the 20th century, a lesson first driven home by the successful American revolutionaries against the mighty British Empire, that no occupying force can long keep down a native population determined to resist. If the giant United States, armed with far greater productivity and firepower, could not succeed against a tiny and relatively unarmed Vietnamese population, how in the world could the Soviet Union succeed in keeping down the American people? 
No Russian occupation soldier's life would be safe from the wrath of a resisting American populace. Guerrilla warfare has proved to be an irresistible force precisely because it stems not from a dictatorial central government, but from the people themselves, fighting for their liberty and independence against a foreign state. And surely the anticipation of this sea of troubles, of the enormous costs and losses that would inevitably follow, would stop well in advance even a hypothetical Soviet government bent on military conquest. Chapter 13. Conservation, Ecology, and Growth Liberal Complaints Left liberal intellectuals are often a wondrous group to behold. In the last three or four decades, not a very long time in human history, they have, like whirling dervishes, let loose a series of angry complaints against free-market capitalism. The curious thing is that each of these complaints has been contradictory to one or more of their predecessors. But contradictory complaints by liberal intellectuals do not seem to phase them or serve to abate their petulance, even though it is often the very same intellectuals who are reversing themselves so rapidly. And these reversals seem to make no dent whatever in their self-righteousness or in the self-confidence of their position. Let us consider the record of recent decades. 1. In the late 1930s and early 1940s, the liberal intellectuals came to the conclusion that capitalism was suffering from inevitable secular stagnation, a stagnation imposed by the slowing down of population growth, the end of the old western frontier, and by the supposed fact that no further inventions were possible. All this spelled eternal stagnation permanent mass unemployment, and therefore the need for socialism, or thoroughgoing state planning, to replace free market capitalism. This on the threshold of the greatest boom in American history. 2. During the 1950s, despite the great boom in post-war America, the liberal intellectuals kept raising their sights. The cult of economic growth now entered the scene. To be sure, capitalism was growing, but it was not growing fast enough. Therefore, free market capitalism must be abandoned, and socialism or government intervention must step in and force-feed the economy, must build investments and compel greater saving in order to maximize the rate of growth, even if we don't want to grow that fast. Conservative economists such as Colin Clark attacked this liberal program as growthmanship, 3. Suddenly John Kenneth Galbraith entered the liberal scene with his best-selling The Affluent Society in 1958, and just as suddenly the liberal intellectuals reversed their indictments. The trouble with capitalism, it now appeared, was that it had grown too much. We were no longer stagnant, but too well off, and man had lost his spirituality amidst supermarkets and automobile tail fins. What was necessary, then, was for government to step in, either in massive intervention or as socialism, and tax the consumers heavily in order to reduce their bloated affluence. 4. The cult of excess affluence had its day to be superseded by a contradictory worry about poverty 
stimulated by Michael Harrington's The Other America in 1962. Suddenly, the problem with America was not excessive affluence, but increasing and grinding poverty. And once again, the solution was for the government to step in, plan mightily, and tax the wealthy in order to lift up the poor. And so we had the war on poverty for several years. 5. Stagnation, deficient growth, over-affluence, over-poverty. The intellectual fashions changed like ladies' hemlines. Then, in 1964, the happily short-lived Ad Hoc Committee on the Triple Revolution issued its then-famous manifesto, which brought us and the liberal intellectuals full circle. For two or three frenetic years, we were regaled with the idea that America's problem was not stagnation, but the exact reverse— in a few short years, all of America's production facilities would be automated and cybernated. Incomes and production would be enormous and superabundant, but everyone would be automated out of a job. Once again, free market capitalism would lead to permanent mass unemployment, which could only be remedied, you guessed it, by massive state intervention or by outright socialism. For several years in the mid-1960s, we thus suffered from what was justly named the automation hysteria. 6. By the late 1960s, it was clear to everyone that the automation hysteria had been dead wrong, that automation was proceeding at no faster a pace than old-fashioned mechanization, and, indeed, that the 1969 recession was causing a falling off in the rate of increase of productivity. One hears no more about automation danger nowadays. We are now in the seventh phase of liberal economic flip-flops. 7. Affluence is again excessive, and in the name of conservation, ecology, and the increasing scarcity of resources, free market capitalism is growing much too fast. State planning, or socialism, must, of course, step in to abolish all growth and bring about a zero-growth society and economy in order to avoid negative growth or retrogression sometime in the future. We are now back to a super-Galbraithian position, to which has been added scientific jargon about effluence, ecology, and spaceship Earth, as well as a bitter assault on technology itself as being an evil polluter. Capitalism has brought about technology, growth, including population growth, industry, and pollution, and government is supposed to step in and eradicate these evils. It is not at all unusual, in fact, to find the same people now holding a contradictory blend of positions 5 and 7, and maintaining at one and the same time that a we are living in a post-scarcity age where we no longer need private property, capitalism, or material incentives to production, and b. that capitalist greed is depleting our resources and bringing about imminent worldwide scarcity. The liberal answer to both, or indeed to all of these problems, turns out, of course, to be the same. Socialism, or state planning, to replace free market capitalism. The great economist Joseph Schumpeter put the whole shoddy performance of liberal intellectuals into a nutshell a generation ago. 
Capitalism stands its trial before judges who have the sentence of death in their pockets. They are going to pass it, whatever the defense they may hear. The only success victorious defense can possibly produce is a change in the indictment. And so, the charges, the indictments, may change and contradict previous charges, but the answer is always and wearily the same. The Attack on Technology and Growth The fashionable attack on growth and affluence is palpably an attack by comfortable, contented, upper-class liberals. Enjoying a material contentment and a living standard undreamt of by even the wealthiest men of the past, it is easy for upper-class liberals to sneer at materialism and to call for a freeze on all further economic advance. For the mass of the world's population still living in squalor, such a cry for the cessation of growth is truly obscene. But even in the United States, there is little evidence of satiety and superabundance. Even the upper-class liberals themselves have not been conspicuous for making a bonfire of their salary checks as a contribution to their war on materialism and affluence. The widespread attack on technology is even more irresponsible. If technology were to be rolled back to the tribe and to the pre-industrial era, the result would be mass starvation and death on a universal scale. The vast majority of the world's population is dependent for its very survival on modern technology and industry. The North American continent was able to accommodate approximately one million Indians in the days before Columbus, all living on a subsistence level. It is now able to accommodate several hundred million people, all living at an infinitely higher living standard. And the reason is modern technology and industry. Abolish the latter, and we will abolish the people as well. For all one knows to our fanatical anti-populationists, this solution to the population question may be a good thing. But for the great majority of us, this would be a draconian final solution indeed. The irresponsible attack on technology is another liberal flip-flop. It comes from the same liberal intellectuals who, thirty-odd years ago, were denouncing capitalism for not putting modern technology to full use in the service of state planning, and were calling for absolute rule by a modern technocratic elite. Yet now the very same intellectuals who not so long ago were yearning for a technocratic dictatorship over all of our lives are now trying to deprive us of the vital fruits of technology itself. Yet the various contradictory phases of liberal thought never completely die, and many of the same anti-technologists, in a 180-degree reversal of the automation hysteria, are also confidently forecasting technological stagnation from now on. They cheerily predict a gloomy future for mankind by assuming that technology will stagnate and not continue to improve and accelerate. This is the technique of pseudo-scientific forecasting of the widely touted anti-growth Club of Rome report. As Passel, Roberts, and Ross write in their critique of the report, if the telephone company were restricted to turn-of-the-century technology, 20 million operators would be needed to handle today's volume of calls. 
Or, as British editor Norman McRae has observed, an extrapolation of the trends of the 1880s would show today's cities buried under horse manure. Or, further, while the Club of Rome's model hypothesizes exponential growth for industrial and agricultural needs, it places arbitrary, non-exponential limits on the technical progress that might accommodate these needs. The Reverend Thomas Malthus made a similar point two centuries ago without benefit of computer printouts. Malthus argued that people tend to multiply exponentially, while the food supply at best increases at a constant rate. He expected that starvation and war would periodically redress the balance. But there is no particular criterion beyond myopia on which to base that speculation. Malthus was wrong. Food capacity has kept up with population. While no one knows for certain, technical progress shows no sign of slowing down. The best econometric estimates suggest that it is indeed growing exponentially. What we need is more economic growth, not less more and better technology, and not the impossible and absurd attempt to scrap technology and return to the primitive tribe. Improved technology and greater capital investment will lead to higher living standards for all, and provide greater material comforts, as well as the leisure to pursue and enjoy the spiritual side of life. There is precious little culture or civilization available for people who must work long hours to eke out a subsistence living. The real problem is that productive capital investment is being siphoned off by taxes, restrictions, and government contracts for unproductive and wasteful government expenditures, including military and space boondoggling. Furthermore, the precious technical resource of scientists and engineers is being ever more intensively diverted to government instead of to civilian consumer production. What we need is for government to get out of the way, remove its incubus of taxation and expenditures from the economy, and allow productive and technical resources once again to devote themselves fully to increasing the well-being of the mass of consumers. We need growth, higher living standards, and a technology and capital equipment that meet consumer wants and demands. But we can only achieve these by removing the incubus of statism and allowing the energies of all of the population to express themselves in the free market economy. We need an economic and technological growth that emerges freely, as Jane Jacobs has shown, from the free market economy and not the distortions and wastes imposed upon the world economy from the liberal force-feeding of the 1950s. We need, in short, a truly free-market libertarian economy. Conservation of Resources As we have mentioned, the self-same liberals who claim that we have entered the post-scarcity age and are in no further need of economic growth are in the forefront of the complaint that capitalist greed is destroying our scarce natural resources. The gloom and doom soothsayers of the Club of Rome, for example, by simply extrapolating current trends of resource use, confidently predict the exhaustion of vital raw materials within 40 years. 
but confident and completely faulty predictions of exhaustion of raw materials have been made countless times in recent centuries. What the soothsayers have overlooked is the vital role that the free market economic mechanism plays in conserving and adding to natural resources. Let us consider, for example, a typical copper mine. Why has copper ore not been exhausted long before now by the inexorable demands of our industrial civilization? Why is it that copper miners, once they have found and opened a vein of ore, do not mine all the copper immediately? Why, instead, do they conserve the copper mine, add to it, and extract the copper gradually from year to year? Because the mine owners realize that, for example, if they triple this year's production of copper, they may indeed triple this year's income, but they will also be depleting the mine, and therefore the future income they will be able to derive from it. On the market, this loss of future income is immediately reflected in the monetary value, the price of the mine as a whole. This monetary value, reflected in the selling price of the mine, and then of individual shares of mining stock, is based on the expected future income to be earned from the production of the copper. Any depletion of the mine, then, will lower the value of the mine, and hence the price of the mining stock. Every mine owner, then, has to weigh the advantages of immediate income from copper production against the loss in the capital value of the mine as a whole, and hence against the loss in the value of his shares. The mine owner's decisions are determined by their expectations of future copper yields and demands, the existing and expected rates of interest, etc., Suppose, for example, that copper is expected to be rendered obsolete in a few years by a new synthetic metal. In that case, copper mine owners will rush to produce more copper now when it is more highly valued, and save less for the future when it will have little value, thereby benefiting the consumers and the economy as a whole by producing copper now when it is more intensely needed. But on the other hand, if a copper shortage is expected in the future, mine owners will produce less now and wait to produce more later when copper prices are higher, thereby benefiting society by producing more in the future when it will be needed more intensely. Thus we see that the market economy contains a marvelous built-in mechanism whereby the decisions of resource owners on present as against future production will benefit not only their own income and wealth, but the mass of consumers and the economy as a whole. But there is much more to this free market mechanism. Suppose that a growing shortage of copper is now expected in the future. The result is that more copper will be withheld now and saved for future production. The price of copper now will rise. The increase in copper prices will have several conserving effects. In the first place, the higher price of copper is a signal to the users of copper that it is scarcer and more expensive. The copper users will then conserve the use of this more expensive metal. They will use less copper, substituting cheaper metals or plastics, and copper will be conserved more fully and saved for those uses for which there is no satisfactory substitute. Moreover, the greater cost of copper will stimulate a. a rush to find new copper ores, and b. 
a search for less expensive substitutes, perhaps by new technological discoveries. Higher prices for copper will also stimulate campaigns for saving and recycling the metal. This price mechanism of the free market is precisely the reason that copper and other natural resources have not disappeared long ago. As Passel, Roberts, and Ross say in their critique of the Club of Rome, natural resource reserves and needs in the model are calculated in the absence of prices as a variable in the limits projection of how resources will be used. In the real world, rising prices act as an economic signal to conserve scarce resources, providing incentives to use cheaper materials in their place, stimulating research efforts on new ways to save on resource inputs, and making renewed exploration attempts more profitable. In fact, in contrast to the gloom and doomers, raw material and natural resource prices have remained low and have generally declined relative to other prices. To liberal and Marxist intellectuals, this is usually a sign of capitalist exploitation of the underdeveloped countries which are often the producers of the raw materials. But it is a sign of something completely different of the fact that natural resources have not been growing scarcer but more abundant, hence their relatively lower cost. The development of cheap substitutes, for example plastics, synthetic fibers, has kept natural resources cheap and abundant, and in a few decades we can expect that modern technology will develop a remarkably cheap source of energy, nuclear fusion, a development which will automatically yield a great abundance of raw materials for the work that will be needed. The development of synthetic materials and of cheaper energy highlights a vital aspect of modern technology the doomsayers overlook, that technology and industrial production create resources which had never existed as effective resources. For example, before the development of the kerosene lamp, and especially the automobile, petroleum was not a resource but an unwanted waste, a giant liquid black weed. It was only the development of modern industry that converted petroleum into a useful resource. Furthermore, modern technology, through improved geological techniques and through the incentives of the market, has been finding new petroleum reserves at a rapid rate. Predictions of imminent exhaustion of resources, as we have noted, are nothing new. In 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt, calling a governor's conference on natural resources, warned of their imminent exhaustion. At the same conference, steel industrialist Andrew Carnegie predicted the exhaustion of the Lake Superior Iron Range by 1940, while railroad magnate James J. Hill forecast the exhaustion of much of our timber resources in ten years. Not only that, Hill even predicted an imminent shortage of wheat production in the United States, in a country where we are still grappling with the wheat surpluses generated by our farm subsidy program. Current forecasts of doom are made on the same basis, a grievous underweighting of the prospects of modern technology and an ignorance of the workings of the market economy. It is true that several particular natural resources have suffered in the past and now from depletion, but in each case the reason has not been capitalist greed, 
On the contrary, the reason has been the failure of government to allow private property in the resource. In short, a failure to pursue the logic of private property rights far enough. One example has been timber resources. In the American West and in Canada, most of the forests are owned not by private owners, but by the federal or provincial government. The government then leases their use to private timber companies. In short, private property is permitted only in the annual use of the resource, but not in the forest, the resource itself. In this situation, the private timber company does not own the capital value, and therefore does not have to worry about depletion of the resource itself. The timber company has no economic incentive to conserve the resource, replant trees, etc. Its only incentive is to cut as many trees as quickly as possible, since there is no economic value to the timber company in maintaining the capital value of the forest. In Europe, where private ownership of forests is far more common, there is little complaint of destruction of timber resources. For wherever private property is allowed in the forest itself, it is to the benefit of the owner to preserve and restore tree growth while he is cutting timber, so as to avoid depletion of the forest's capital value. Thus, in the United States, a major culprit has been the Forest Service of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which owns forests and leases annual rights to cut timber, with resulting devastation of the trees. In contrast, private forests, such as those owned by large lumber firms like Georgia Pacific and U.S. Plywood, scientifically cut and reforest their trees in order to maintain their future supply. Another unhappy consequence of the American government's failure to allow private property in a resource was the destruction of the western grasslands in the late 19th century. Every viewer of western movies is familiar with the mystique of the open range and the often violent wars among cattlemen, sheepmen, and farmers over parcels of ranch land. The open range was the failure of the federal government to apply the policy of homesteading to the changed conditions of the drier climate west of the Mississippi. In the east, the 160 acres granted free to homesteading farmers on government land constituted a viable technological unit for farming in a wetter climate. But in the dry climate of the West, no successful cattle or sheep ranch could be organized on a mere 160 acres. But the federal government refused to expand the 160-acre unit to allow the homesteading of larger cattle ranches. Hence, the open range, on which private cattle and sheep owners were able to roam unchecked on government-owned pasture land. But this meant that no one owned the pasture, the land itself. It was therefore to the economic advantage of every cattle or sheep owner to graze the land and use up the grass as quickly as possible. Otherwise, the grass would be grazed by some other sheep or cattle owner. The result of this tragically short-sighted refusal to allow private property in grazing land itself was an overgrazing of the land the ruining of the grassland by grazing too early in the season, and the failure of anyone to restore or replant the grass. Anyone who bothered to restore the grass would have had to look on helplessly while someone else grazed his cattle or sheep. Hence the overgrazing of the West, and the onset of the Dust Bowl.
Hence also the illegal attempts by numerous cattlemen, farmers, and sheepmen to take the law into their own hands and fence off the land into private property, and the range wars that often followed. Professor Samuel P. Hayes, in his authoritative account of the conservation movement in America, writes of the range problem, Much of the Western livestock industry depended for its forage upon the open range, owned by the federal government, but free for anyone to use. Congress had never provided legislation regulating grazing or permitting stockmen to acquire rangelands. Cattle and sheepmen roamed the public domain. Cattlemen fenced range for their exclusive use, but competitors cut the wire. Resorting to force and violence, sheepherders and cowboys solved their disputes over grazing lands by slaughtering rival livestock and murdering rival stockmen. Absence of the most elementary institutions of property law created confusion, bitterness, and destruction. Amid this turmoil, the public range rapidly deteriorated. Originally plentiful and lush, the forage supply was subjected to intense pressure by increasing use. The public domain became stocked with more animals than the range could support. Since each stockman feared that others would beat him to the available forage, he grazed early in the year and did not permit the young grass to mature and reseed. Under such conditions, the quality and quantity of available forage rapidly decreased. Vigorous perennials gave way to annuals, and annuals to weeds. Hayes concludes that public domain rangelands may have been depleted by over two-thirds by this process, as compared to their virgin condition. There is a vitally important area in which the absence of private property in the resource has been and is causing not only depletion of resources, but also a complete failure to develop vast potential resources. This is the potentially enormously productive ocean resource. The oceans are in the international public domain. That is, no person, company, or even national government is allowed property rights in parts of the ocean. As a result, the oceans have remained in the same primitive state as was the land in the pre-civilized days before the development of agriculture. The way of production for primitive man was hunting and gathering, the hunting of wild animals and the gathering of fruits, berries, nuts, and wild seeds and vegetables. Primitive man worked passively within his environment, instead of acting to transform it. Hence, he just lived off the land without attempting to remold it. As a result, the land was unproductive, and only a relatively few tribesmen could exist at a bare subsistence level. It was only with the development of agriculture, the farming of the soil, and the transformation of the land through farming— that productivity and living standards could take giant leaps forward. And it was only with agriculture that civilization could begin. But to permit the development of agriculture, there had to be private property rights, first in the fields and crops, and then in the land itself. With respect to the ocean, however, we are still in the primitive, unproductive hunting-and-gathering stage. Anyone can capture fish in the ocean or extract its resources, but only on the run, only as hunters and gatherers. No one can farm the ocean 
no one can engage in aquaculture. In this way, we are deprived of the use of the immense fish and mineral resources of the seas. For example, if anyone tried to farm the sea and to increase the productivity of the fisheries by fertilizers, he would immediately be deprived of the fruits of his efforts, because he could not keep other fishermen from rushing in and seizing the fish. And so, no one tries to fertilize the oceans, as the land is fertilized. Furthermore, there is no economic incentive. In fact, there is every disincentive for anyone to engage in technological research in the ways and means of improving the productivity of the fisheries, or in extracting the mineral resources of the oceans. There will only be such incentive when property rights in parts of the ocean are as fully allowed as property rights in the land. Even now, there is a simple but effective technique that could be used for increasing fish productivity. Parts of the ocean could be fenced off electronically, and through this readily available electronic fencing, fish could be segregated by size. By preventing big fish from eating smaller fish, the production of fish could be increased enormously. And if private property in parts of the ocean were permitted, a vast flowering of aquaculture would create and multiply ocean resources in numerous ways we cannot now even foresee. National governments have tried vainly to cope with the problem of fish depletion by placing irrational and uneconomic restrictions on the total size of the catch or on the length of the allowable season. In the cases of salmon, tuna, and halibut, technological methods of fishing have thereby been kept primitive and unproductive by unduly shortening the season and injuring the quality of the catch, and by stimulating overproduction and underuse during the year of the fishing fleets. And of course, such governmental restrictions do nothing at all to stimulate the growth of aquaculture. As Professors North and Miller write, Fishermen are poor because they are forced to use inefficient equipment and to fish only a small fraction of the time by the governmental regulations, and of course there are far too many of them. The consumer pays a much higher price for red salmon than would be necessary if efficient methods were used. Despite the ever-growing intertwining bonds of regulations, the preservation of the salmon run is still not assured. The root of the problem lies in the current non-ownership arrangement. It is not in the interests of any individual fisherman to concern himself with perpetuation of the salmon run. Quite the contrary, it is rather in his interests to catch as many fish as he can during the season. In contrast, North and Miller point out that private property rights in the ocean, under which the owner would use the least costly and most efficient technology, and preserve and make productive the resource itself, is now more feasible than ever. The invention of modern electronic sensing equipment has now made the policing of large bodies of water relatively cheap and easy. The growing international conflicts over parts of the ocean only further highlight the importance of private property rights in this vital area. For as the United States and other nations assert their sovereignty 200 miles from their shores, and as private companies and governments squabble over areas of the ocean, and as trawlers, fishing nets, oil drillers, and mineral diggers war over the same areas of the ocean, 
Property rights become increasingly and patently more important. As Francis Christie writes, Coal is mined in shafts below the sea floor. Oil is drilled from platforms fixed to the bottom rising above the water. Minerals can be dredged from the surface of the ocean bed. Sedentary animals are scraped from the bed on which telephone cables may lie. Bottom-feeding animals are caught in traps or trawls. Mid-water species may be taken by hook and line or by trawls which occasionally interfere with submarines. Surface species are taken by net and harpoon, and the surface itself is used for shipping as well as the vessels engaged in extracting resources. This growing conflict leads Christie to predict that the seas are in a stage of transition. They are moving from a condition in which property rights are almost non-existent to a condition in which property rights of some form will become appropriated or made available. Eventually, concludes Christie, as the sea's resources become more valuable, exclusive rights will be acquired. Pollution All right. Even if we concede that full private property in resources and the free market will conserve and create resources and do it far better than government regulation, what of the problem of pollution? Wouldn't we be suffering aggravated pollution from unchecked capitalist greed? There is, first of all, this stark empirical fact. Government ownership, even socialism, has proved to be no solution to the problem of pollution. Even the most starry-eyed proponents of government planning concede that the poisoning of Lake Baikal in the Soviet Union is a monument to heedless industrial pollution of a valuable natural resource. But there is far more to the problem than that. Note, for example, the two crucial areas in which pollution has become an important problem, the air and the waterways particularly the rivers. But these are precisely two of the vital areas in society in which private property has not been permitted to function. First, the rivers. The rivers and the oceans, too, are generally owned by the government. Private property, certainly complete private property, has not been permitted in the water. In essence, then, government owns the rivers. But government ownership is not true ownership, because the government officials, while able to control the resource, cannot themselves reap their capital value on the market. Government officials cannot sell the rivers or sell stock in them. Hence, they have no economic incentive to preserve the purity and value of the rivers. Rivers are, then, in the economic sense, unowned. Therefore, government officials have permitted their corruption and pollution. Anyone has been able to dump polluting garbage and wastes in the waters. But consider what would happen if private firms were able to own the rivers and the lakes. If a private firm owned Lake Erie, for example, then anyone dumping garbage in the lake would be promptly sued in the courts for their aggression against private property and would be forced by the courts to pay damages and to cease and desist from any further aggression. Thus, only private property rights will ensure an end to pollution invasion of resources. Only because the rivers are unowned is there no owner to rise up and defend his precious resource from attack. 
If, in contrast, anyone should dump garbage or pollutants into a lake which is privately owned, as are many smaller lakes, he would not be permitted to do so for very long. The owner would come roaring to its defense. As Professor Dolan writes, With a General Motors owning the Mississippi River, you can be sure that stiff effluent charges would be assessed on industries and municipalities along its banks, and that the water would be kept clean enough to maximize revenues from leases granted to firms seeking rights to drinking water, recreation, and commercial fishing. If government as owner has allowed the pollution of the rivers, government has also been the single major active polluter, especially in its role as municipal sewage disposer. There already exist low-cost chemical toilets which can burn off sewage without polluting air, ground, or water. But who will invest in chemical toilets when local governments will dispose of sewage free to their customers? This example points up a problem similar to the case of the stunting of aquaculture technology by the absence of private property. If governments, as owners of the rivers, permit pollution of water, then industrial technology will and has become a water-polluting technology. If production processes are allowed to pollute the rivers unchecked by their owners, then that is the sort of production technology we will have. If the problem of water pollution can be cured by private property rights in water, how about air pollution? How can libertarians possibly come up with a solution for this grievous problem? Surely there can't be private property in the air. But the answer is, yes, there can. We have already seen how radio and TV frequencies can be privately owned. So could channels for airlines. Commercial airline routes, for example, could be privately owned. There is no need for a civil aeronautics board to parcel out and restrict routes between various cities. But in the case of air pollution, we are dealing not so much with private property in the air as with protecting private property in one's lungs, fields, and orchards. The vital fact about air pollution is that the polluter sends unwanted and unbidden pollutants, from smoke to nuclear radiation to sulfur oxides, through the air and into the lungs of innocent victims, as well as onto their material property. All such emanations which injure person or property constitute aggression against the private property of the victims. Air pollution, after all, is just as much aggression as committing arson against another's property or injuring him physically. Air pollution that injures others is aggression, pure and simple. The major function of government, of courts and police, is to stop aggression. Instead, the government has failed in this task and has failed grievously to exercise its defense function against air pollution. It is important to realize that this failure has not been a question purely of ignorance, a simple time lag between recognizing a new technological problem and facing up to it. For if some of the modern pollutants have only recently become known, factory smoke and many of its bad effects have been known ever since the Industrial Revolution, known to the extent that the American courts during the late and as far back as the early 19th century made the deliberate decision to allow property rights to be violated by industrial smoke. 
To do so, the courts had to, and did, systematically change and weaken the defenses of property right embedded in Anglo-Saxon common law. Before the mid and late 19th century, any injurious air pollution was considered a tort, a nuisance against which the victim could sue for damages, and against which he could take out an injunction to cease and desist from any further invasion of his property rights. But during the 19th century, the courts systematically altered the law of negligence and the law of nuisance to permit any air pollution which was not unusually greater than any similar manufacturing firm, one that was not more extensive than the customary practice of fellow polluters. As factories began to arise and emit smoke, blighting the orchards of neighboring farmers, the farmers would take the manufacturers to court, asking for damages and injunctions against further invasion of their property. But the judges said, in effect, sorry, we know that industrial smoke, that is, air pollution, invades and interferes with your property rights. But there is something more important than mere property rights, and that is public policy, the common good. And the common good decrees that industry is a good thing, industrial progress is a good thing, and therefore your mere private property rights must be overridden on behalf of the general welfare. And now, all of us are paying the bitter price for this overriding of private property in the form of lung disease and countless other ailments, and all for the common good. That this principle has guided the courts during the Air Age as well may be seen by a decision of the Ohio courts in Antonic v. Chamberlain, 1947. The residents of a suburban area near Akron sued to enjoin the defendants from operating a privately owned airport. The grounds were invasion of property rights through excessive noise. Refusing the injunction, the court declared, in our business of judging in this case, while sitting as a court of equity, we must not only weigh the conflicts of interests between the airport owner and the nearby landowners, but we must further recognize the public policy of the generation in which we live. We must recognize that the establishment of an airport is of great concern to the public, and if such an airport is abated or its establishment prevented, the consequences will be not only a serious injury to the owner of the port property, but may be a serious loss of a valuable asset to the entire community. To cap the crimes of the judges, legislatures, federal and state, moved in to cement the aggression by prohibiting victims of air pollution from engaging in class-action suits against polluters. Obviously, if a factory pollutes the atmosphere of a city where there are tens of thousands of victims, it is impractical for each victim to sue to collect his particular damages from the polluter, although an injunction could be used effectively by one small victim. The common law, therefore, recognizes the validity of class-action suits, in which one or a few victims can sue the aggressor not only on their own behalf, but on behalf of the entire class of similar victims. But the legislatures systematically outlawed such class-action suits in pollution cases. For this reason, a victim may successfully sue a polluter who injures him individually in a one-to-one -one private nuisance suit. But he is prohibited by law from acting against a mass polluter who is injuring a large number of people in a given area. 
As Frank Bubb writes, it is as if the government were to tell you that it will attempt to protect you from a thief who steals only from you, but it will not protect you if the thief also steals from everyone else in the neighborhood. Noise, too, is a form of air pollution. Noise is the creation of sound waves which go through the air and then bombard and invade the property and persons of others. Only recently have physicians begun to investigate the damaging effects of noise on the human physiology. Again, a libertarian legal system would permit damage and class action suits and injunctions against excessive and damaging noise, against noise pollution. The remedy against air pollution is therefore crystal clear, and it has nothing to do with multi-billion dollar palliative government programs at the expense of the taxpayers, which do not even meet the real issue. The remedy is simply for the courts to return to their function of defending person and property rights against invasion, and therefore to enjoin anyone from injecting pollutants into the air. But what of the pro-pollution defenders of industrial progress? And what of the increased costs that would have to be borne by the consumer? And what of our present polluting technology? The argument that such an injunctive prohibition against pollution would add to the costs of industrial production is as reprehensible as the pre-Civil War argument that the abolition of slavery would add to the costs of growing cotton, and that therefore abolition, however morally correct, was impractical. For this means that the polluters are able to impose all of the high costs of pollution upon those whose lungs and property rights they have been allowed to invade with impunity. Furthermore, the cost and technology argument overlooks the vital fact that if air pollution is allowed to proceed with impunity, there continues to be no economic incentive to develop a technology that will not pollute. On the contrary, the incentive would continue to cut, as it has for a century, precisely the other way. Suppose, for example, that in the days when automobiles and trucks were first being used, the courts had ruled as follows. Ordinarily, we would be opposed to trucks invading people's lawns as an invasion of private property, and we would insist that trucks confine themselves to the roads, regardless of traffic congestion. But trucks are vitally important to the public welfare and therefore we decree that trucks should be allowed to cross any lawns they wish, provided they believe that this would ease their traffic problems. If the courts had ruled in this way, then we would now have a transportation system in which lawns would be systematically desecrated by trucks, and any attempt to stop this would be decried in the name of modern transportation needs. The point is that this is precisely the way that the courts ruled on air pollution, pollution which is far more damaging to all of us than trampling on lawns. In this way, the government gave the green light from the very start to a polluting technology. It is no wonder, then, that this is precisely the kind of technology we have. The only remedy is to force the polluting invaders to stop their invasion and thereby to redirect technology into non-polluting or even anti-polluting channels. Already, even at our necessarily primitive stage in anti-pollution technology, techniques have been developed to combat air and noise pollution. 
Mufflers can be installed on noisy machines that emit sound waves precisely contracyclical to the waves of the machines, and thereby can cancel out these racking sounds. Air wastes can even now be recaptured as they leave the chimney and be recycled to yield products useful to industry. Thus, sulfur dioxide, a major noxious air pollutant, can be captured and recycled to produce economically valuable sulfuric acid. The highly polluting spark ignition engine will either have to be cured by new devices or replaced altogether by such non-polluting engines as diesel, gas turbine, or steam, or by an electric car. And as libertarian systems engineer Robert Poole Jr. points out, the costs of installing the non- or anti-polluting technology would then ultimately be borne by the consumers of the firm's products, that is, by those who choose to associate with the firm, rather than being passed on to innocent third parties in the form of pollution, or as taxes. Robert Poole cogently defines pollution as the transfer of harmful matter or energy to the person or property of another without the latter's consent. The libertarian and the only complete solution to the problem of air pollution is to use the courts and the legal structure to combat and prevent such invasion. There are recent signs that the legal system is beginning to change in this direction. New judicial decisions and repeal of laws disallowing class action suits. But this is only a beginning. Among conservatives, in contrast to libertarians, there are two ultimately similar responses to the problem of air pollution. One response, by Ayn Rand and Robert Moses, among others, is to deny that the problem exists and to attribute the entire agitation to leftists who want to destroy capitalism and technology on behalf of a tribal form of socialism. While part of this charge may be correct, denial of the very existence of the problem is to deny science itself and to give a vital hostage to the leftist charge that defenders of capitalism place property rights above human rights. Moreover, a defense of air pollution does not even defend property rights. On the contrary, it puts these conservatives' stamp of approval on those industrialists who are trampling upon the property rights of the mass of the citizenry. A second and more sophisticated conservative response is by such free-market economists as Milton Friedman. The Friedmanites concede the existence of air pollution, but propose to meet it not by a defense of property rights, but rather by a supposedly utilitarian cost-benefit calculation by government, which will then make and enforce a social decision on how much pollution to allow. This decision would then be enforced either by licensing a given amount of pollution, the granting of pollution rights, by a graded scale of taxes against it, or by the taxpayers paying firms not to pollute. Not only would these proposals grant an enormous amount of bureaucratic power to government in the name of safeguarding the free market, they would continue to override property rights in the name of a collective decision enforced by the state. This is far from any genuine free market, and reveals that, as in many other economic areas, it is impossible to really defend freedom and the free market without insisting on defending the rights of private property. 
Friedman's grotesque dictum that those urban inhabitants who don't wish to contract emphysema should move to the country is starkly reminiscent of Marie Antoinette's famous let-them-eat-cake and reveals a lack of sensitivity to human or property rights. Friedman's statement, in fact, is of a piece with the typically conservative if-you-don't-like-it-here-leave, a statement that implies that the government rightly owns the entire land area of here and that anyone who objects to its rule must therefore leave the area. Robert Poole's libertarian critique of the Friedmanite proposals offers a refreshing contrast. Unfortunately, it is an example of the most serious failing of the conservative economists. Nowhere in the proposal is there any mention of rights. This is the same failing that has undercut advocates of capitalism for 200 years, Even today, the term laissez-faire is apt to bring forth images of 18th-century English factory towns engulfed in smoke and grimy with soot. The early capitalists agreed with the courts that smoke and soot were the price that must be paid for the benefits of industry. Yet laissez-faire without rights is a contradiction in terms. The laissez-faire position is based on and derived from man's rights, and can endure only when rights are held inviolable. Now, in an age of increasing awareness of the environment, this old contradiction is coming back to haunt capitalism. It is true that air is a scarce resource, as the Friedmanites say, but one must then ask why it is scarce. If it is scarce because of a systematic violation of rights, then the solution is not to raise the price of the status quo, thereby sanctioning the rights violations, but to assert the rights and demand that they be protected. When a factory discharges a great quantity of sulfur dioxide molecules that enter someone's lungs and cause pulmonary edema, the factory owners have aggressed against him as much as if they had broken his leg. The point must be emphasized because it is vital to the libertarian laissez-faire position. A laissez-faire polluter is a contradiction in terms, and must be identified as such. A libertarian society would be a full liability society, where everyone is fully responsible for his actions and any harmful consequences they might cause. In addition to betraying its presumed function of defending private property, government has contributed to air pollution in a more positive sense, It was not so long ago that the Department of Agriculture conducted mass sprayings of DDT by helicopter over large areas, overriding the wishes of individual objecting farmers. It still continues to pour tons of poisonous and carcinogenic insecticides all over the South in an expensive and vain attempt to eradicate the fire ant and the Atomic Energy Commission has poured radioactive wastes into the air and into the ground by means of its nuclear power plants and through atomic testing. Municipal power and water plants and the plants of licensed monopoly utility companies mightily pollute the atmosphere. One of the major tasks of the state in this area is therefore to stop its own poisoning of the atmosphere. Thus, when we peel away the confusions and the unsound philosophy of the modern ecologists, we find an important bedrock case against the existing system, 
But the case turns out to be not against capitalism, private property, growth, or technology per se. It is a case against the failure of government to allow and to defend the rights of private property against invasion. If property rights were to be defended fully against private and governmental invasion alike, we would find here, as in other areas of our economy and society, that private enterprise and modern technology would come to mankind not as a curse, but as its salvation. Chapter 14. War and Foreign Policy Isolationism, Left and Right Isolationism was coined as a smear term to apply to opponents of American entry into World War II. Since the word was often applied through guilt by association to mean pro-Nazi, isolationist took on a right-wing as well as a generally negative flavor. If not actively pro-Nazi, isolationists were, at the very least, narrow-minded ignoramuses, ignorant of the world around them, in contrast to the sophisticated, worldly, caring internationalists who favored American crusading around the globe. In the last decade, of course, anti-war forces have been considered leftists, and interventionists from Lyndon Johnson to Jimmy Carter and their followers have constantly tried to pin the isolationist, or at least neo-isolationist, label on today's left wing. Left or Right During World War I, opponents of the war were bitterly attacked, just as now, as leftists, even though they included in their ranks libertarians and advocates of laissez-faire capitalism. In fact, the major center of opposition to the American war with Spain and the American war to crush the Philippine rebellion at the turn of the century was laissez-faire liberals, men like the sociologist and economist William Graham Sumner and the Boston merchant Edward Atkinson, who founded the Anti-Imperialist League. Furthermore, Atkinson and Sumner were squarely in the great tradition of the classical English liberals of the 18th and 19th centuries, and in particular such laissez-faire extremists as Richard Cobden and John Bright of the Manchester School. Cobden and Bright took the lead in vigorously opposing every British war and foreign political intervention of their era, and for his pains, Cobden was known not as an isolationist, but as the international man. Until the smear campaign of the late 1930s, opponents of war were considered the true internationalists, men who opposed the aggrandizement of the nation-state and favored peace, free trade, free migration, and peaceful cultural exchanges among peoples of all nations. Foreign intervention is international only in the sense that war is international. Coercion, whether the threat of force or the outright movement of troops, will always cross frontiers between one nation and another. Isolationism has a right-wing sound. Neutralism and peaceful coexistence sound leftish, but their essence is the same. Opposition to war and political intervention between countries. This has been the position of anti-war forces for two centuries, whether they were the classical liberals of the 18th and 19th centuries, the leftists of World War I and the Cold War, or the rightists of World War II. 
In very few cases have these anti-interventionists favored literal isolation. What they have generally favored is political non-intervention in the affairs of other countries, coupled with economic and cultural internationalism, in the sense of peaceful freedom of trade, investment, and interchange between the citizens of all countries. And this is the essence of the libertarian position as well. Limiting Government Libertarians favor the abolition of all states everywhere, and the provision of legitimate functions now supplied poorly by governments, police, courts, etc., by means of the free market. Libertarians favor liberty as a natural human right, and advocate it not only for Americans, but for all peoples. In a purely libertarian world, therefore, there would be no foreign policy, because there would be no states, no governments with a monopoly of coercion over particular territorial areas. But since we live in a world of nation-states, and since this system is hardly likely to disappear in the near future, what is the attitude of libertarians toward foreign policy in the current state-ridden world? Pending the dissolution of states, libertarians desire to limit, to whittle down, the area of government power in all directions and as much as possible. We have already demonstrated how this principle of destatizing might work in various important domestic problems, where the goal is to push back the role of government and to allow the voluntary and spontaneous energies of free persons full scope through peaceful interaction, notably in the free market economy. In foreign affairs, the goal is the same, to keep government from interfering in the affairs of other governments or other countries. Political isolationism and peaceful coexistence, refraining from acting upon other countries, is then the libertarian counterpart to agitating for laissez-faire policies at home. The idea is to shackle government from acting abroad, just as we try to shackle government at home. Isolationism, or peaceful coexistence, is the foreign policy counterpart of severely limiting government at home. Specifically, the entire land area of the world is now parceled out among various states, and each land area is ruled by a central government with monopoly of violence over that area. In relations between states, then, the libertarian goal is to keep each of these states from extending their violence to other countries, so that each state's tyranny is at least confined to its own bailiwick. For the libertarian is interested in reducing as much as possible the area of state aggression against all private individuals. The only way to do this in international affairs is for the people of each country to pressure their own state to confine its activities to the area it monopolizes, and not to attack other states or aggress against their subjects. In short, the objective of the libertarian is to confine any existing state to as small a degree of invasion of person and property as possible. And this means the total avoidance of war. The people under each state should pressure their respective states not to attack one another, or, if a conflict should break out, to withdraw from it as quickly as physically possible. Let us assume for the moment a world with two hypothetical countries, 
Graustark and Belgravia. Each is ruled by its own state. What happens if the government of Graustark invades the territory of Belgravia? From the libertarian point of view, two evils immediately occur. First, the Graustark army begins to slaughter innocent Belgravian civilians, persons who are not implicated in whatever crimes the Belgravian government might have committed. War, then, is mass murder, and this massive invasion of the right to life, of self-ownership, of numbers of people, is not only a crime, but, for the libertarian, the ultimate crime. Second, since all governments obtain their revenue from the thievery of coercive taxation, any mobilization and launching of troops inevitably involve an increase in tax coercion in Graustark. For both reasons, because interstate wars inevitably involve both mass murder and an increase in tax coercion, the libertarian opposes war. Period. It was not always thus. During the Middle Ages, the scope of wars was far more limited. Before the rise of modern weapons, armaments were so limited that governments could, and often did, strictly confine their violence to the armies of the rival governments. It is true that tax coercion increased, but at least there was no mass murder of the innocents. Not only was firepower low enough to confine violence to the armies of the contending sides, but in the pre-modern era, there was no central nation-state that spoke inevitably in the name of all inhabitants of a given land area. If one set of kings or barons fought another, it was not felt that everyone in the area must be a dedicated partisan. Moreover, instead of mass conscript armies enslaved to their respective rulers, armies were small bands of hired mercenaries, Often a favorite sport for the populace was to observe a battle from the safety of the town ramparts, and war was regarded as something of a sporting match. But with the rise of the centralizing state and of modern weapons of mass destruction, the slaughter of civilians, as well as conscript armies, have become a vital part of interstate warfare. Suppose that despite possible libertarian opposition, war has broken out. Clearly, the libertarian position should be that, so long as the war continues, the scope of assault upon innocent civilians must be diminished as much as possible. Old-fashioned international law had two excellent devices to accomplish this goal, the laws of war and the laws of neutrality, or neutrals' rights. The laws of neutrality were designed to keep any war confined to the warring states themselves, without attacks upon non-warring states, and, particularly, aggression against the peoples of other nations. Hence the importance of such ancient and now almost forgotten American principles as freedom of the seas, or severe limitations upon the rights of warring states to blockade neutral trade with the enemy country. In short, the libertarian tries to induce neutral states to remain neutral in any interstate conflict, and to induce the warring states to observe fully the rights of neutral citizens. The laws of war, for their part, were designed to limit as much as possible the invasion by warring states of the rights of civilians in their respective countries. As the British jurist F. J. P. Veal put it, 
The fundamental principle of this code was that hostilities between civilized peoples must be limited to the armed forces actually engaged. It drew a distinction between combatants and non-combatants by laying down that the sole business of the combatants is to fight each other, and consequently that non-combatants must be excluded from the scope of military operations. In the modified form of prohibiting the bombardment of all cities not in the front line, this rule held in Western European wars in recent centuries until Britain launched the strategic bombing of civilians in World War II. Now, of course, the entire concept is scarcely remembered, since the very nature of modern nuclear warfare rests upon the annihilation of civilians. To return to our hypothetical Graustark and Belgravia, suppose that Graustark has invaded Belgravia, and that a third government, Waldavia, now leaps into the war in order to defend Belgravia against Graustarkian aggression. Is this action justifiable? Here, indeed, is the germ of the pernicious 20th century theory of collective security, the idea that when one government aggresses against another, it is the moral obligation of the other governments of the world to band together to defend the victimized state. There are several fatal flaws in this concept of collective security against aggression. One is that when Waldavia, or any other states, leap into the fray, they are themselves expanding and compounding the extent of the aggression, because they are, one, unjustly slaughtering masses of Graustarkian civilians, and two, increasing tax coercion over Waldavian citizens. Furthermore, three, in this age when states and subjects are closely identifiable, Waldavia is thereby leaving Waldavian civilians open to retaliation by Graustarkian bombers or missiles. Thus, entry into the war by the Waldavian government puts into jeopardy the very lives and properties of Waldavian citizens which the government is supposed to be protecting. Finally, four, conscription enslavement of Waldavian citizens will usually intensify. If this kind of collective security should really be applied on a worldwide scale, with all the Waldavias rushing into every local conflict and escalating them, every local skirmish would soon be raised into a global conflagration. There is another crucial flaw in the collective security concept. The idea of entering a war in order to stop aggression is clearly an analogy from aggression by one individual upon another. Smith is seen to be beating up Jones, aggressing against him. Nearby police then rush to the defense of the victim Jones. They are using police action to stop aggression. It was in pursuit of this myth, for example, that President Truman persisted in referring to American entry into the Korean War as a police action, a collective UN effort to repel aggression. But aggression only makes sense on the individual Smith-Jones level, as does the very term police action. These terms make no sense whatever on an interstate level. First, we have seen that governments entering a war thereby become aggressors themselves against innocent civilians, indeed become mass murderers. The correct analogy to individual action would be Smith beats up Jones 
The police rush in to help Jones, and in the course of trying to apprehend Smith, the police bomb a city block and murder thousands of people, or spray machine gun fire into an innocent crowd. This is a far more accurate analogy, for that is what a warring government does, and in the 20th century it does so on a monumental scale. But any police agency that behaves this way itself becomes a criminal aggressor, often far more so than the original Smith who began the affair. But there is yet another fatal flaw in the analogy with individual aggression. When Smith beats up Jones or steals his property, we can identify Smith as an aggressor upon the personal or property right of his victim. But when the Graustarkian state invades the territory of the Belgravian state, it is impermissible to refer to aggression in an analogous way. For the libertarian, no government has a just claim to any property or sovereignty right in a given territorial area. The Belgravian state's claim to its territory is therefore totally different from Mr. Jones' claim to his property although the latter might also, on investigation, turn out to be the illegitimate result of theft. No state has any legitimate property. All of its territory is the result of some kind of aggression and violent conquest. Hence the Graustarkian state's invasion is necessarily a battle between two sets of thieves and aggressors. The only problem is that innocent civilians on both sides are being trampled upon. Aside from this general caveat on governments, the so-called aggressor state often has a quite plausible claim on its victim. Plausible, that is, within the context of the nation-state system. Suppose that Graustark has crossed the Belgravian border because Belgravia had, a century earlier, invaded Graustark and seized its northeastern provinces— the inhabitants of these provinces are culturally, ethnically, and linguistically Graustarkian. Graustark now invades in order to be reunited at last with its fellow Graustarkians. In this situation, by the way, the libertarian, while condemning both governments for making war and killing civilians, would have to side with Graustark as having the more just or the less unjust claim. Let us put it this way. In the unlikely event that the two countries could return to pre-modern warfare, with a. weapons limited so that no civilians were injured in their persons or property, b. volunteer rather than conscript armies, and also c. financing by voluntary methods instead of taxation, the libertarian could then, given our context, side unreservedly with Graustark. Of all the recent wars, none has come closer, though not completely so, to satisfying these three criteria for a just war than the Indian War of late 1971 for the liberation of Bangladesh. The government of Pakistan had been created as a last terrible legacy of Imperial Britain to the Indian subcontinent. In particular, the nation of Pakistan consisted of imperial rule by the Punjabis of West Pakistan over the more numerous and productive Bengalis of East Pakistan, and also over the Patans of the northwest frontier. The Bengalis had long been yearning for independence from their imperial oppressors, 
In early 1971, Parliament was suspended as a result of Bengali victory in the elections. From then on, Punjabi troops systematically slaughtered the civilian Bengal population. Indian entry into the conflict aided the popular Bengali resistance forces of the Mukti Bahini. While taxes and conscription were, of course, involved, the Indian armies did not use their weapons against Bengali civilians. On the contrary, here was a genuine revolutionary war of the Bengali public against a Punjabi occupying state. Only Punjabi soldiers were on the receiving end of Indian bullets. This example points up another characteristic of warfare, that revolutionary guerrilla war can be far more consistent with libertarian principles than any interstate war. By the very nature of their activities, guerrillas defend the civilian population against the depredations of a state. Hence, guerrillas, inhabiting as they do the same country as the enemy state, cannot use nuclear or other weapons of mass destruction. Further, since guerrillas rely for victory on the support and aid of the civilian population, they must, as a basic part of their strategy, spare civilians from harm and pinpoint their activities solely against the state apparatus and its armed forces. Hence, guerrilla war returns us to the ancient and honorable virtue of pinpointing the enemy and sparing innocent civilians. And guerrillas, as part of their quest for enthusiastic civilian support, often refrain from conscription and taxation and rely on voluntary support for men and materiel. The libertarian qualities of guerrilla warfare reside only on the revolutionary side. For the counter-revolutionary forces of the state, it is quite a different story. While the state cannot go to the length of nuking its own subjects, it does of necessity rely primarily on campaigns of mass terror, killing, terrorizing, and rounding up the mass of civilians. Since guerrillas, to be successful, must be supported by the bulk of the population, the state, in order to wage its war, must concentrate on destroying that population, or must herd masses of civilians into concentration camps in order to separate them from their guerrilla allies. This tactic was used by the Spanish general Butcher Whaler against the Cuban rebels in the 1890s, was continued by the American troops in the Philippines, and by the British in the Boer War and continues to be used down to the recent ill-fated strategic hamlet policy in South Vietnam. The libertarian foreign policy, then, is not a pacifist policy. We do not hold, as do the pacifists, that no individual has the right to use violence in defending himself against violent attack. What we do hold is that no one has the right to conscript, tax or murder others, or to use violence against others in order to defend himself. Since all states exist and have their being in aggression against their subjects and in the acquiring of their present territory, and since interstate wars slaughter innocent civilians, such wars are always unjust, although some may be more unjust than others. Guerrilla warfare against states at least has the potential for meeting libertarian requirements by pinpointing the guerrilla's battle against state officials and armies, 
and by their use of voluntary methods to staff and finance their struggle. American Foreign Policy We have seen that libertarians have as their prime responsibility the focusing on the invasions and aggressions of their own state. The libertarians of Graustark must center their attentions on attempting to limit and whittle down the Graustark state. The Waldavian libertarians must try to check the Waldavian state, and so on. In foreign affairs, the libertarians of every country must press their government to refrain from war and foreign intervention, and to withdraw from any war in which they may be engaged. If for no other reason, then, libertarians in the United States must center their critical attention on the imperial and warlike activities of their own government. But there are still other reasons for libertarians here to focus upon the invasions and foreign interventions of the United States. For empirically, taking the twentieth century as a whole, the single most warlike, most interventionist, most imperialist government has been the United States. Such a statement is bound to shock Americans, subject as we have been for decades to intense propaganda by the establishment on the invariable saintliness, peaceful intentions, and devotion to justice of the American government in foreign affairs. The expansionist impulse of the American state began to take increasing hold in the late 19th century, leaping boldly overseas with America's war against Spain, dominating Cuba, grabbing Puerto Rico and the Philippines, and brutally suppressing a Filipino rebellion for independence. The imperial expansion of the United States reached full flower in World War I, when President Woodrow Wilson's leap into the fray prolonged the war and the mass slaughter, and unwittingly bred the grisly devastation that led directly to the Bolshevik triumph in Russia and the Nazi victory in Germany. It was Wilson's particular genius to supply a pietistic and moralistic cloak for a new American policy of worldwide intervention and domination, a policy of trying to mold every country in the American image, suppressing radical or Marxist regimes on the one hand and old-fashioned monarchist governments on the other. It was Woodrow Wilson who was to fix the broad features of American foreign policy for the rest of this century. Almost every succeeding president has considered himself a Wilsonian and followed his policies. It was no accident that both Herbert Hoover and Franklin D. Roosevelt, so long thought of as polar opposites, played important roles in America's first global crusade of World War I and that both men harked back to their experience in World War I intervention and planning as the guideposts for their future foreign and domestic policies. And it was one of Richard Nixon's first acts as president to place Woodrow Wilson's picture upon his desk. In the name of national self-determination and collective security against aggression, the American government has consistently pursued a goal and a policy of world domination, and of the forcible suppression of any rebellion against the status quo anywhere in the world. In the name of combating aggression everywhere, of being the world's policeman, it has itself become a great and continuing aggressor. Anyone who balks at such a description of American policy should simply consider what the typical American reaction is to any 
domestic or foreign crisis anywhere on the globe. Even at some remote site that cannot by any stretch of the imagination be considered a direct or even indirect threat to the lives and security of the American people. The military dictator of Bumblestan is in danger. Perhaps his subjects are tired of being exploited by him and his colleagues. The United States then becomes gravely concerned. Articles by journalists friendly to the State Department or the Pentagon spread the alarm about what might happen to the stability of Bumblestan and its surrounding area if the dictator should be toppled. For it so happens that he is a pro-American or pro-Western dictator. That is, he is one of ours instead of theirs. Millions or even billions of dollars' worth of military and economic aid are then rushed by the United States to prop up the Bumblestanny Field Marshal. If our dictator is saved, then a sigh of relief is heaved, and congratulations are passed around at the saving of our state. The continuing or intensified oppression of the American taxpayer and of the Bumblestanian citizens are, of course, not considered in the equation. Or, if it should happen that the Bumblestanny dictator may fall, hysteria might hit the American press and officialdom for the moment. But then, after a while, the American people seem to be able to live their lives, after losing Bumblestan, about as well as before, perhaps even better, if it means a few billion less in foreign aid extracted from them to prop up the Bumblestanny state. If it is understood and expected, then, that the United States will try to impose its will on every crisis everywhere in the world, then this is clear indication that America is the great interventionary and imperial power. The one place where the United States does not now attempt to work its will is the Soviet Union and the communist countries. But, of course, it has tried to do so in the past. Woodrow Wilson, along with Britain and France, tried for several years to crush Bolshevism in the cradle, with American and Allied troops being sent to Russia to aid the Tsarist white forces in trying to defeat the Reds. After World War II, the United States tried its best to oust the Soviets from Eastern Europe, and succeeded in pushing them out of Azerbaijan in northwestern Iran. It also helped the British to crush a communist regime in Greece. The United States tried its best to maintain Chiang Kai-shek's dictatorial rule in China, flying many of Chiang's troops northward to occupy Manchuria as the Russians pulled out after World War II, and it continues to prevent the Chinese from occupying their offshore islands, Quimoy and Matsu. After virtually installing the dictator Batista in Cuba, the United States tried desperately to oust the communist Castro regime by actions ranging from the CIA-engineered Bay of Pigs invasion to CIA mafia attempts to assassinate Castro. Of all America's recent wars, certainly the most traumatic for Americans and their attitude toward foreign policy was the Vietnam War. America's imperial war in Vietnam was, indeed, a microcosm of what has been tragically wrong with American foreign policy in this century. American intervention in Vietnam did not begin, as most people believe, with Kennedy or Eisenhower or even Truman. 
It began no later than the date when the American government, under Franklin Roosevelt, on November 26, 1941, delivered a sharp and insulting ultimatum to Japan to get its armed forces out of China and Indochina, from what would later be Vietnam. This U.S. ultimatum set the stage inevitably for Pearl Harbor. Engaged in a war in the Pacific to oust Japan from the Asian continent, the United States and its OSS, predecessor to the CIA, favored and aided Ho Chi Minh's communist-run national resistance movement against the Japanese. After World War II, the communist Viet Minh was in charge of all northern Vietnam. But then France, previously the imperial ruler of Vietnam, betrayed its agreement with Ho and massacred Viet Minh forces. In this double cross, France was aided by Britain and the United States. When the French lost to the reconstituted Viet Minh guerrilla movement under Ho, the United States endorsed the Geneva Agreement of 1954, under which Vietnam was to be quickly reunited as one nation for it was generally recognized that the post-war occupation divisions of the country into North and South were purely arbitrary and merely for military convenience. But, having by trickery managed to oust the Viet Minh from the southern half of Vietnam, the United States proceeded to break the Geneva Agreement and to replace the French and their puppet emperor, Bao Dai, by its own clients, No Ding Diem and his family who were installed in dictatorial rule over South Vietnam. When Diem became an embarrassment, the CIA engineered a coup to assassinate Diem and replace him with another dictatorial regime. To suppress the Viet Cong, the communist-led national independence movement in the South, the United States rained devastation on South and North Vietnam alike, bombing and murdering a million Vietnamese, and dragging half a million American soldiers into the quagmires and jungles of Vietnam. Throughout the tragic Vietnamese conflict, the United States maintained the fiction that it was a war of aggression by the communist North Vietnamese state against a friendly and pro-Western, whatever that term may mean, South Vietnamese state, which had called for our aid. Actually, the war was really a doomed but lengthy attempt by an imperial United States to suppress the wishes of the great bulk of the Vietnamese population and to maintain unpopular client dictators in the southern half of the country by virtual genocide, if necessary. Americans are not accustomed to applying the term imperialism to the actions of the U.S. government, but the word is a particularly apt one. In its broadest sense, imperialism may be defined as aggression by State A against the people of Country B, followed by the subsequent coercive maintenance of such foreign rule. In our example above, the permanent rule by the Graustark state over formerly northeastern Belgravia would be an example of such imperialism. But imperialism does not have to take the form of direct rule over the foreign population. In the 20th century, the indirect form of neo-imperialism has increasingly replaced the old-fashioned direct kind. It is more subtle and less visible, but no less effective a form of imperialism. In this situation, the imperial state rules the foreign population through its effective control over native client rulers. 
This version of modern Western imperialism has been trenchantly defined by the libertarian historian Leonard Ligio. The imperialist power of the Western countries imposed on the world's peoples a double or reinforced system of exploitation, imperialism, by which the power of the Western governments maintains the local ruling class in exchange for the opportunity to superimpose Western exploitation upon existing exploitation by local states. This view of America as a long-time imperial world power has taken hold among historians in recent years as the result of compelling and scholarly work by a distinguished group of new left revisionist historians inspired by Professor William Appleman Williams. But this was also the view of conservative as well as classical liberal isolationists during World War II and in the early days of the Cold War. Isolationist Criticisms The last anti-interventionist and anti-imperialist thrust of the old conservative and classical liberal isolationists came during the Korean War. Conservative George Morgenstern, chief editorial writer of the Chicago Tribune and author of the first revisionist book on Pearl Harbor, published an article in the right-wing Washington weekly Human Events, which detailed the grisly imperialist record of the United States government from the Spanish-American War down to Korea. Morgan Stern noted that the exalted nonsense by which President McKinley had justified the war against Spain was familiar to anyone who later attended the evangelical rationalizations of Wilson for intervening in the European War, of Roosevelt promising the millennium, of Eisenhower treasuring the crusade in Europe, that somehow went sour, or of Truman, Stevenson, Paul Douglas, or the New York Times preaching the holy war in Korea. In a widely noted speech at the height of the American defeat in North Korea at the hands of the Chinese in late 1950, conservative isolationist Joseph P. Kennedy called for U.S. withdrawal from Korea. Kennedy proclaimed that, I naturally opposed communism. But I said if portions of Europe or Asia wish to go communistic, or even have communism thrust upon them, we cannot stop it. The result of the Cold War, the Truman Doctrine, and the Marshall Plan, Kennedy charged, was disaster, a failure to purchase friends, and a threat of land war in Europe or Asia. Kennedy warned that half of this world will never submit to dictation by the other half. What business is it of ours to support French colonial policy in Indochina or to achieve Mr. Singman Rhee's concepts of democracy in Korea? Shall we now send the Marines into the mountains of Tibet to keep the Dalai Lama on his throne? Economically, Kennedy added, we have been burdening ourselves with unnecessary debts as a consequence of Cold War policy. If we continue to weaken our economy with lavish spending either on foreign nations or in foreign wars, we run the danger of precipitating another 1932 and of destroying the very system which we are trying to save. Kennedy concluded that the only rational alternative for America is to scrap the Cold War foreign policy altogether, to get out of Korea and out of Berlin and Europe. The United States could not possibly contain Russian armies if they chose to march through Europe, and if Europe should then turn communist, 
communism may break of itself as a unified force. The more people that it will have to govern, the more necessary it becomes for those who govern to justify themselves to those being governed. The more peoples that are under its yoke, the greater are the possibilities of revolt. And here, at a time when cold warriors were forecasting a world communist monolith as an eternal fact of life, Joseph Kennedy cited Marshal Tito as pointing the way for the eventual breakup of the communist world. Thus, Mao in China is not likely to take his orders from Stalin. Kennedy realized that this policy will, of course, be criticized as appeasement. But is it appeasement to withdraw from unwise commitments? If it is wise in our interest not to make commitments that endanger our security, and this is appeasement, then I am for appeasement. Kennedy concluded that the suggestions I make would conserve American lives for American ends, not waste them in the freezing hills of Korea or on the battle-scarred plains of western Germany. One of the most trenchant and forceful attacks on American foreign policy to emerge from the Korean War was leveled by the veteran classical liberal journalist Garrett Garrett. Garrett began his pamphlet, The Rise of Empire, 1952, by declaring, We have crossed the boundary that lies between republic and empire. Explicitly linking this thesis with his notable pamphlet of the 1930s, The Revolution Was, which had denounced the advent of executive and status tyranny within the republican form under the New Deal, Garrett once more saw a revolution within the form of the old constitutional republic. Garrett, for example, called Truman's intervention in Korea without a declaration of war a usurpation of congressional power. In his pamphlet, Garrett adumbrated the criteria, the hallmarks for the existence of empire. The first is the dominance of the executive power, a dominance reflected in the president's unauthorized intervention in Korea. The second is the subordination of domestic to foreign policy. The third, the ascendancy of the military mind. The fourth, a system of satellite nations. And the fifth, a complex of vaunting and fear, a vaunting of unlimited national might combined with a continuing fear, fear of the enemy, of the barbarian, and of the unreliability of the satellite allies. Garrett found each one of these criteria to apply fully to the United States. Having discovered that the United States had developed all the hallmarks of empire, Garrett added that the United States, like previous empires, feels itself to be a prisoner of history. For beyond fear lies collective security and the playing of the supposedly destined American role upon the world stage. Garrett concluded, It is our turn. Our turn to do what? Our turn to assume the responsibilities of moral leadership in the world. Our turn to maintain a balance of power against the forces of evil everywhere, in Europe and Asia and Africa, in the Atlantic and in the Pacific, by air and by sea, evil in this case being the Russian barbarian. Our turn to keep the peace of the world. Our turn to save civilization. Our turn to serve mankind. But this is the language of empire.
The Roman Empire never doubted that it was the defender of civilization. Its good intentions were peace, law, and order. The Spanish Empire added salvation. The British Empire added the noble myth of the white man's burden. We have added freedom and democracy. Yet the more that may be added to it, the more it is the same language still, a language of power. War as the Health of the State Many libertarians are uncomfortable with foreign policy matters and prefer to spend their energies either on fundamental questions of libertarian theory or on such domestic concerns as the free market or privatizing postal service or garbage disposal. Yet an attack on war or a warlike foreign policy is of crucial importance to libertarians. There are two important reasons. One has become a cliché, but is all too true nevertheless the overriding importance of preventing a nuclear holocaust. To all the long-standing reasons moral and economic against an interventionist foreign policy has now been added the imminent, ever-present threat of world destruction. If the world should be destroyed, all the other problems and all the other isms, socialism, capitalism, liberalism, or libertarianism, would be of no importance whatsoever. Hence the prime importance of a peaceful foreign policy and of ending the nuclear threat. The other reason is that, apart from the nuclear menace, war, in the words of the libertarian Randolph Bourne, is the health of the state. War has always been the occasion of a great, and usually permanent, acceleration and intensification of state power over society. War is the great excuse for mobilizing all the energies and resources of the nation in the name of patriotic rhetoric under the aegis and dictation of the state apparatus. It is in war that the state really comes into its own, swelling in power, in number, in pride, in absolute dominion over the economy and the society. Society becomes a herd, seeking to kill its alleged enemies, rooting out and suppressing all dissent from the official war effort, happily betraying truth for the supposed public interest. Society becomes an armed camp, with the values and the morals, as the libertarian Albert J. Nock once phrased it, of an army on the march. It is particularly ironic that war always enables the state to rally the energies of its citizens under the slogan of helping it to defend the country against some bestial outside menace. For the root myth that enables the state to wax fat off war is the canard that war is a defense by the state of its subjects. The facts, however, are precisely the reverse— for if war is the health of the state, it is also its greatest danger. A state can only die by defeat in war or by revolution. In war, therefore, the state frantically mobilizes its subjects to fight for it against another state, under the pretext that it is fighting to defend them. In the history of the United States, war has generally been the main occasion for the often permanent intensification of the power of the state over society. In the War of 1812 against Great Britain, as we have indicated above, the modern inflationary fractional reserve banking system first came into being on a large scale, as did protective tariffs, 
internal federal taxation, and a standing army and navy. And a direct consequence of the wartime inflation was the re-establishment of a central bank, the second bank of the United States. Virtually all of these statist policies and institutions continued permanently after the war was over. The Civil War and its virtual one-party system led to the permanent establishment of a neo-mercantilist policy of big government and the subsidizing of various big business interests through protective tariffs, huge land grants, and other subsidies to railroads, federal excise taxation, and a federally controlled banking system. It also brought the first imposition of federal conscription and an income tax, setting dangerous precedents for the future. World War I brought the decisive and fateful turn from a relatively free and laissez-faire economy to the present system of corporate state monopoly at home and permanent global intervention abroad. The collectivist economic mobilization during the war, headed by War Industries Board Chairman Bernard Baruch, fulfilled the emerging dream of big business leaders and progressive intellectuals for a cartelized and monopolized economy planned by the federal government in cozy collaboration with big business leadership. And it was precisely this wartime collectivism that nurtured and developed a nationwide labor movement that would eagerly take its place as junior partner in the new corporate state economy. This temporary collectivism, furthermore, served as a permanent beacon and model for big business leaders and corporatist politicians as the kind of permanent peacetime economy that they would like to impose on the United States. As food czar, secretary of commerce, and later as president, Herbert C. Hoover helped bring this continuing monopolized statist economy into being, and the vision was fulfilled in a recrudescence of wartime agencies and even wartime personnel by Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. World War I also brought a permanent Wilsonian global intervention abroad, the fastening of the newly imposed Federal Reserve System, and a permanent income tax on society. High federal budgets, massive conscription, and intimate connections between economic boom, war contracts, and loans to Western nations. World War II was the culmination and fulfillment of all these trends. Franklin D. Roosevelt finally fastened upon American life the heady promise of the Wilsonian domestic and foreign program. Permanent partnership of big government, big business, and big unions. A continuing and ever-expanding military-industrial complex. Conscription. Continuing and accelerating inflation. And an endless and costly role as counter-revolutionary policemen for the entire world. The Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter world, and there is little substantive difference among any of these administrations, is corporate liberalism, the corporate state fulfilled. It is particularly ironic that conservatives, at least in rhetoric supporters of a free market economy, should be so complacent and even admiring of our vast military-industrial complex there is no greater single distortion of the free market in present-day America. The bulk of our scientists and engineers has been diverted from basic research for civilian ends, from increasing productivity and the standard of living of consumers, into wasteful, inefficient, and non-productive military and space boondoggles. 
These boondoggles are every bit as wasteful, but infinitely more destructive than the vast pyramid building of the Pharaoh. It is no accident that Lord Kane's economics have proved to be the economics par excellence of the corporate liberal state. For Keynesian economists place equal approval upon all forms of government spending, whether on pyramids, missiles, or steel plants. By definition, all of these expenditures swell the gross national product, regardless of how wasteful they may be. It is only recently that many liberals have begun to awaken to the evils of the waste, inflation, and militarism that Keynesian corporate liberalism has brought to America. As the scope of government spending, military and civilian alike, has widened, science and industry have been skewed more and more into unproductive goals and highly inefficient processes. The goal of satisfying consumers as efficiently as possible has been increasingly replaced by the currying of favors by government contractors, often in the form of highly wasteful cost-plus contracts. Politics, in field after field, has replaced economics in guiding the activities of industry. Furthermore, as entire industries and regions of the country have come to depend upon government and military contracts, a huge vested interest has been created in continuing the programs, heedless of whether they retain even the most threadbare excuse of military necessity. Our economic prosperity has been made to depend on continuing the narcotic of unproductive and anti-productive government spending. One of the most perceptive and prophetic critics of America's entry into World War II was the classical liberal writer John T. Flynn. In his As We Go Marching, written in the midst of the war he had tried so hard to forestall, Flynn charged that the New Deal, culminating in its wartime embodiment, had finally established the corporate state that important elements of big business had been seeking since the turn of the 20th century. The general idea, Flynn wrote, was to reorder the society by making it a planned and coerced economy instead of a free one, in which business would be brought together into great guilds or an immense corporative structure combining the elements of self-rule and government supervision with a national economic policing system to enforce these decrees. This, after all, is not so very far from what business had been talking about. The New Deal had first attempted to create such a new society in the National Recovery Administration and the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, mighty engines of regimentation hailed by labor and business alike. Now the advent of World War II had re-established this collectivist program, an economy supported by great streams of debt under complete control, with nearly all the planning agencies functioning with almost totalitarian power under a vast bureaucracy. After the war, Flynn prophesied, the New Deal would attempt to expand this system permanently into international affairs. He wisely predicted that the great emphasis of vast governmental spending after the war would continue to be military, since this is the one form of government spending to which conservatives would never object, and which workers would also welcome for its creation of jobs. Thus, militarism is the one great glamorous public works project upon which a variety of elements in the community can be brought into agreement.
Flynn predicted that America's post-war policy would be internationalist in the sense of being imperialist. Imperialism is, of course, international in the sense that war is international, and it will follow from the policy of militarism. We will do what other countries have done. We will keep alive the fears of our people of the aggressive ambitions of other countries, and we will ourselves embark upon imperialistic enterprises of our own. Imperialism will ensure for the United States the existence of perpetual enemies, of waging what Charles A. Beard was later to call perpetual war for perpetual peace. For, Flynn pointed out, we have managed to acquire bases all over the world. There is no part of the world where trouble can break out where we cannot claim that our interests are menaced. Thus menaced, there must remain when the war is over a continuing argument in the hands of the imperialists for a vast naval establishment and a huge army ready to attack anywhere or to resist an attack from all the enemies we shall be obliged to have. One of the most moving portrayals of the change in American life wrought by World War II was written by John Dos Passos, a lifelong radical and individualist who was pushed from extreme left to extreme right by the march of the New Deal. Dos Passos expressed his bitterness in his post-war novel The Grand Design. At home, we organized blood banks and civilian defense and imitated the rest of the world by setting up concentration camps, only we called them relocation centers, and stuffing into them American citizens of Japanese ancestry without benefit of habeas corpus. The President of the United States talked to the sincere Democrat, and so did the members of Congress. In the administration, there were devout believers in civil liberty— now we're busy fighting a war. We'll deploy all four freedoms later on, they said. War is a time of Caesars. And the American people were supposed to say thank you for the century of the common man turned over for relocation behind barbed wire, so help him God. We learned. There are things we learned to do. But we have not learned, in spite of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the great debates at Richmond and Philadelphia, how to put power over the lives of men into the hands of one man and to make him use it wisely. Soviet Foreign Policy In a previous chapter, we have already dealt with the problem of national defense abstracting from the question of whether the Russians are really hell-bent upon a military attack upon the United States. Since World War II, American military and foreign policy, at least rhetorically, has been based upon the assumption of a looming threat of Russian attack, an assumption that has managed to gain public approval for global American intervention and for scores of billions in military expenditures. But how realistic, how well-grounded, is this assumption? First, there is no doubt that the Soviets, along with all other Marxist-Leninists, would like to replace all existing social systems by communist regimes. But such a sentiment, of course, scarcely implies any sort of realistic threat of attack, just as an ill wish in private life can hardly be grounds for realistic expectation of imminent aggression. On the contrary, Marxism-Leninism itself believes that a victory of communism is inevitable, 
not on the wings of outside force, but rather from accumulating tensions and contradictions within each society. So Marxism-Leninism considers internal revolution, or in the current Euro-Communist version, democratic change, for installing communism to be inevitable. At the same time, it holds any coercive external imposition of communism to be at best suspect, and at worst disruptive and counterproductive of genuine organic social change. Any idea of exporting communism to other countries on the backs of the Soviet military is totally contradictory to Marxist-Leninist theory. We are not saying, of course, that Soviet leaders will never do anything contrary to Marxist-Leninist theory. But to the extent that they act as ordinary rulers of a strong Russian nation-state, the case for an imminent Soviet threat to the United States is gravely weakened. For the sole alleged basis of such a threat, as conjured up by our cold warriors, is the Soviet Union's alleged devotion to Marxist-Leninist theory and to its ultimate goal of world communist triumph. If the Soviet rulers were simply to act as Russian dictators consulting only their own nation-state interests, then the entire basis for treating the Soviets as a uniquely diabolic source of imminent military assault crumbles to the ground. When the Bolsheviks took power in Russia in 1917, they had given little thought to a future Soviet foreign policy, for they were convinced that communist revolution would soon follow in the advanced industrial countries of Western Europe. When such hopes were dashed after the end of World War I, Lenin and his fellow Bolsheviks adopted the theory of peaceful coexistence as the basic foreign policy for a communist state. The idea was this. As the first successful communist movement, Soviet Russia would serve as a beacon for and supporter of other communist parties throughout the world. But, the Soviet state qua state would devote itself to peaceful relations with all other countries and would not attempt to export communism through interstate warfare. The idea here was not just to follow Marxist-Leninist theory, but was the highly practical course of holding the survival of the existing communist state as the foremost goal of foreign policy that is, never to endanger the Soviet state by courting interstate warfare. Other countries would be expected to become communist by their own internal processes. Thus, fortuitously, from a mixture of theoretical and practical grounds of their own, the Soviets arrived early at what libertarians consider to be the only proper and principled foreign policy, as time went on, furthermore, this policy was reinforced by a conservatism that comes upon all movements after they have acquired and retained power for any length of time, in which the interests of keeping power over one's nation-state begins to take more and more precedence over the initial idea of world revolution. This increasing conservatism under Stalin and his successors strengthened and reinforced the non-aggressive, peaceful coexistence policy. The Bolsheviks indeed began their success story by being literally the only political party in Russia to clamor from the beginning of World War I for an immediate Russian pullout from the war.
Indeed, they went further and courted enormous unpopularity among the public by calling for the defeat of their own government, revolutionary defeatism. When Russia began to suffer enormous losses, accompanied by massive military desertions from the front, and the war became extremely unpopular, the Bolsheviks, guided by Lenin, continued to be the only party to call for an immediate end to the war, the other parties still vowing to fight the Germans to the end. When the Bolsheviks took power, Lenin, over the hysterical opposition of even the majority of the Bolshevik Central Committee itself, insisted on concluding the appeasement peace of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. Here, Lenin succeeded in taking Russia out of the war, even at the price of granting to the victorious German army all the parts of the Russian Empire which it then occupied including White Russia and the Ukraine. Thus, Lenin and the Bolsheviks began their reign by being not simply a peace party, but virtually a peace-at-any-price party. After World War I and Germany's defeat, the new Polish state attacked Russia and succeeded in grabbing for itself a large chunk of White Russia and the Ukraine. Taking advantage of the turmoil and of the civil war within Russia at the end of the war, various other national groups, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, decided to break away from the pre-World War I Russian Empire and declare national independence. Now, while Leninism pays lip service to national self-determination, to Soviet rulers from the very beginning, it was clear that the boundaries of the old Russian state were supposed to remain intact. The Red Army reconquered the Ukraine, not only from the whites, but also from the Ukrainian nationalists and from the indigenously Ukrainian anarchist army of Nestor Makhno as well. For the rest, it was clear that Russia, like Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, was a revisionist country vis-à-vis -vis the post-war settlement at Versailles. That is, the lodestar of both Russian and German foreign policy was to recapture their pre-World War I borders, what they both considered the true borders of their respective states. It should be noted that every political party or tendency in Russia and Germany, whether ruling the state or in opposition, agreed with this aim of full restoration of national territory. But it should be emphasized, while Germany under Hitler took strong measures to recapture the lost lands, the cautious and conservative Soviet rulers did absolutely nothing. Only after the Stalin-Hitler Pact and the German conquest of Poland did the Soviets, now facing no danger in doing so, recapture their lost territories. Specifically, the Russians repossessed Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, as well as the old Russian lands of White Russia and the Ukraine that had been eastern Poland, and they were able to do so without a fight. The old pre-World War I Russia had now been restored, with the exception of Finland. But Finland was prepared to fight. Here the Russians demanded not the reincorporation of Finland as a whole, but only of parts of the Karelian Isthmus, which were ethnically Russian. When the Finns refused this demand, the Winter War, 1939-1940, between Russia and Finland ensued which ended with the Finns conceding only Russian Karelia.
On June 22, 1941, Germany, triumphant over everyone but England in the West, launched a sudden, massive, and unprovoked assault on Soviet Russia, an act of aggression aided and abetted by the other pro-German states in Eastern Europe, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Finland. This German and Allied invasion of Russia soon became one of the pivotal facts in the history of Europe since that date. So unprepared was Stalin for the assault, so trusting was he in the rationality of the German-Russian accord for peace in Eastern Europe, that he had allowed the Russian army to fall into disrepair. So unwarlike was Stalin, in fact, that Germany was almost able to conquer Russia in the face of enormous odds. Since Germany otherwise would have been able to retain control of Europe indefinitely, it was Hitler who was led by the siren call of anti-communist ideology to throw away a rational and prudent course and launch what was to be the beginning of his ultimate defeat. The mythology of the Cold Warriors often concedes that the Soviets were not internationally aggressive until World War II. Indeed, they are compelled to assert this point, since most Cold Warriors heartily approve the World War II alliance of the United States with Russia against Germany. It was during and immediately after the war, they assert, that Russia became expansionist and drove its way into Eastern Europe. What this charge overlooks is the central fact of the German and associated assault upon Russia in June 1941. There is no doubt that Germany and her allies launched this war. Hence, in order to defeat the invaders, it was obviously necessary for the Russians to roll back the invading armies and conquer Germany and the other warring countries of Eastern Europe. It is easier to make a case for the United States being expansionist for conquering and occupying Italy and parts of Germany than it is for Russia's actions. After all, the United States was never directly attacked by the Germans. During World War II, the United States, Britain, and Russia, the three major allies, had agreed on joint three-power military occupation of all the conquered territories. The United States was the first to break the agreement during the war by allowing Russia no role whatever in the military occupation of Italy. Despite this serious breach of agreement, Stalin displayed his consistent preference for the conservative interests of the Russian nation-state over cleaving to revolutionary ideology by repeatedly betraying indigenous communist movements. In order to preserve peaceful relations between Russia and the West, Stalin consistently tried to hold back the success of various communist movements. He was successful in France and Italy, where communist partisan groups might easily have seized power in the wake of the German military retreat. But Stalin ordered them not to do so, and instead persuaded them to join coalition regimes headed by anti-communist parties. In both countries, the communists were soon ousted from the coalition. In Greece, where the communist partisans almost did seize power, Stalin irretrievably weakened them by abandoning them and urging them to turn over power to newly invading British troops. In other countries, particularly ones where communist partisan groups were strong, the communists flatly refused Stalin's requests. 
In Yugoslavia, the victorious Tito refused Stalin's demand that Tito subordinate himself to the anti-communist Mihailovic in a governing coalition. Mao refused a similar Stalin demand that he subordinate himself to Chiang Kai-shek. There is no doubt that these rejections were the beginning of the later extraordinarily important schisms within the world communist movement. Russia, therefore, governed Eastern Europe as military occupier after winning a war launched against her. Russia's initial goal was not to communize Eastern Europe on the backs of the Soviet army. Her goal was to gain assurances that Eastern Europe would not be the broad highway for an assault on Russia, as it had been three times in half a century, the last time in a war in which over 20 million Russians had been slaughtered. In short, Russia wanted countries on her border which would not be anti-communist in a military sense, and which would not be used as a springboard for another invasion. Political conditions in Eastern Europe were such that only in more modernized Finland did non-communist politicians exist whom Russia could trust to pursue a peaceful line in foreign affairs. And in Finland, this situation was the work of one far-seeing statesman, the agrarian leader Julio Pasekivi. It was because Finland, then and since, has firmly followed the Pasekivi line, that Russia was willing to pull its troops out of Finland and not to insist on the communization of that country, even though it had fought two wars with Finland in the previous six years. Even in the other Eastern European countries, Russia clung to coalition governments for several years after the war and only fully communized them in 1948, after three years of unrelenting American Cold War pressure to try to oust Russia from these countries. In other areas, Russia readily pulled its troops out of Austria and out of Azerbaijan. The Cold Warriors find it difficult to explain Russian actions in Finland. If Russia is always hell-bent to impose communist rule wherever it can, why the soft line on Finland? The only plausible explanation is that its motivation is security for the Russian nation-state against attack, with the success of world communism playing a very minor role in its scale of priorities. In fact, the Cold Warriors have never been able either to explain or absorb the fact of deep schisms in the world communist movement. For if all communists are governed by a common ideology, then every communist everywhere should be part of one unified monolith, and one which, given the early success of the Bolsheviks, would make them subordinates or agents of Moscow. If communists are mainly motivated by their bond of Marxism-Leninism, how come the deep China-Russia split, in which Russia, for example, keeps one million troops at the ready on the China-Russia frontier? How come the enmity between the Yugoslav and Albanian communist states? How come the actual military conflict between the Cambodian and Vietnamese communists? The answer, of course, is that once a revolutionary movement seizes state power, it begins very quickly to take on the attributes of a ruling class, with a class interest in retaining state power. The world revolution begins to pale in their outlook to insignificance. And since state elites can and do have conflicting interests in power and wealth, 
it is not surprising that intercommunist conflicts have become endemic. Since their victory over German and associated military aggression in World War II, the Soviets have continued to be conservative in their military policy. Their only use of troops has been to defend their territory in the communist bloc, rather than to extend it further. Thus, when Hungary threatened to leave the Soviet bloc in 1956, or Czechoslovakia in 1968, the Soviets intervened with troops, reprehensibly, to be sure, but still acting in a conservative and defensive rather than expansionist manner. The Soviets apparently gave considerable thought to invading Yugoslavia when Tito took it out of the Soviet bloc, but were deterred by the formidable qualities for guerrilla fighting of the Yugoslav army. In no case has Russia used troops to extend its bloc or to conquer more territories. Professor Stephen F. Cohen, director of the program in Russian studies at Princeton, has recently delineated the nature of Soviet conservatism in foreign affairs. That a system born in revolution and still professing revolutionary ideas should have become one of the most conservative in the world may seem preposterous. But all those factors variously said to be most important in Soviet politics have contributed to this conservatism. The bureaucratic tradition of Russian government before the revolution, the subsequent bureaucratization of Soviet life, which proliferated conservative norms and created an entrenched class of zealous defenders of bureaucratic privilege, the geriatric nature of the present-day elite, and even the official ideology whose thrust turned many years ago from the creation of a new social order to extolling the existing one. In other words, the main thrust of Soviet conservatism today is to preserve what it already has at home and abroad, not to jeopardize it. A conservative government is, of course, capable of dangerous militaristic actions, as we saw in Czechoslovakia. But these are acts of imperial protectionism, a kind of defensive militarism, not a revolutionary or aggrandizing one. It is certainly true that for most Soviet leaders, as presumably for most American leaders, détente is not an altruistic endeavor, but the pursuit of national interests. In one sense this is sad, but it is probably also true that mutual self-interest provides a more durable basis for détente than lofty and finally empty altruism. Similarly, as impeccable an anti-Soviet source as former CIA director William Colby finds the overwhelming concern of the Soviets to be the defensive goal of avoiding another catastrophic invasion of their territory. As Colby testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, you will find a concern, even a paranoia, over there, the Soviets' own security you will find the determination that they shall never again be invaded and put through the kinds of turmoil that they have been under, and many different invasions. I think that they want to overprotect themselves to make certain that that does not happen. Even the Chinese, for all their bluster, have pursued a conservative and pacific foreign policy. Not only have they failed to invade Taiwan, recognized internationally as part of China, but they have even allowed the small offshore islands of Kumoi and Matsu to remain in Chiang Kai-shek's hands.
No moves have been made against the British and Portuguese-occupied enclaves of Hong Kong and Macau, and China even took the unusual step of declaring a unilateral ceasefire and withdrawal of forces to its border after having triumphed easily over Indian arms in their escalated border war. Avoiding a priori history There is still one thesis common to Americans and even to some libertarians that may prevent them from absorbing the analysis of this chapter. The myth propounded by Woodrow Wilson that democracies must inevitably be peace-loving, while dictatorships are inevitably warlike. This thesis was, of course, highly convenient for covering Wilson's own culpability for dragging America into a needless and monstrous war. But apart from that, there is simply no evidence for this assumption. Many dictatorships have turned inward, cautiously confining themselves to preying on their own people. Examples range from pre-modern Japan to communist Albania to innumerable dictatorships in the Third World today. Uganda's Idi Amin, perhaps the most brutal and repressive dictator in today's world, shows no signs whatever of jeopardizing his regime by invading neighboring countries. On the other hand, such an indubitable democracy as Great Britain spread its coercive imperialism across the globe during the 19th and earlier centuries. The theoretical reason why focusing on democracy or dictatorship misses the point is that states, all states, rule their population and decide whether or not to make war. And all states, whether formally a democracy or dictatorship or some other brand of rule, are run by a ruling elite. Whether or not these elites, in any particular case, will make war upon another state is a function of a complex interweaving web of causes, including temperament of the rulers, the strength of their enemies, the inducements for war, public opinion, While public opinion has to be gauged in either case, the only real difference between a democracy and a dictatorship on making war is that in the former, more propaganda must be beamed at one's subjects to engineer their approval. Intensive propaganda is necessary in any case, as we can see by the zealous opinion-molding behavior of all modern warring states. But the democratic state must work harder and faster. And also, the democratic state must be more hypocritical in using rhetoric designed to appeal to the values of the masses. Justice, freedom, national interest, patriotism, world peace, etc. So, in democratic states, the art of propagandizing their subjects must be a bit more sophisticated and refined. But this, as we have seen, is true of all governmental decisions, not just war or peace. For all governments, but especially democratic governments, must work hard at persuading their subjects that all of their deeds of oppression are really in their subjects' best interests. What we have said about democracy and dictatorship applies equally to the lack of correlation between degrees of internal freedom in a country and its external aggressiveness. Some states have proved themselves perfectly capable of allowing a considerable degree of freedom internally while making aggressive war abroad. Other states have shown themselves capable of totalitarian rule internally while pursuing a pacific foreign policy. The examples of Uganda, Albania, 
China, Great Britain, etc., apply equally well in this comparison. In short, libertarians and other Americans must guard against a priori history, in this case against the assumption that, in any conflict, the state which is more democratic or allows more internal freedom is necessarily or even presumptively the victim of aggression by the more dictatorial or totalitarian state. There is simply no historical evidence whatever for such a presumption. In deciding on relative rights and wrongs, on relative degrees of aggression in any dispute in foreign affairs, there is no substitute for a detailed, empirical, historical investigation of the dispute itself. It should occasion no great surprise, then, if such an investigation concludes that a democratic and relatively far freer United States has been more aggressive and imperialistic in foreign affairs than a relatively totalitarian Russia or China. Conversely, hailing a state for being less aggressive in foreign affairs in no way implies that the observer is in any way sympathetic to that state's internal record. It is vital. Indeed, it is literally a life-and-death matter that Americans be able to look as coolly and clear-sightedly, as free from myth at their government's record in foreign affairs as they are increasingly able to do in domestic politics. For war and a phony external threat have long been the chief means by which the state wins back the loyalty of its subjects. As we have seen, War and militarism were the gravediggers of classical liberalism. We must not allow the state to get away with this ruse ever again. A Foreign Policy Program To conclude our discussion, the primary plank of a libertarian foreign policy program for America must be to call upon the United States to abandon its policy of global interventionism to withdraw immediately and completely, militarily and politically, from Asia, Europe, Latin America, the Middle East, from everywhere. The cry among American libertarians should be for the United States to withdraw now, in every way that involves the U.S. government. The United States should dismantle its bases, withdraw its troops, stop its incessant political meddling, and abolish the CIA. It should also end all foreign aid, which is simply a device to coerce the American taxpayer into subsidizing American exports and favored foreign states, all in the name of helping the starving peoples of the world. In short, the United States government should withdraw totally to within its own boundaries and maintain a policy of strict political isolation or neutrality everywhere. The spirit of this ultra-isolationist libertarian foreign policy was expressed during the 1930s by retired Marine Corps Major General Smedley D. Butler. In the fall of 1936, General Butler proposed a now-forgotten constitutional amendment, an amendment which would delight libertarian hearts if it were once again to be taken seriously. Here is Butler's proposed constitutional amendment in its entirety. 1. The removal of members of the land-armed forces from within the continental limits of the United States and the Panama Canal Zone for any cause whatsoever is hereby prohibited. 2. 
The vessels of the United States Navy or of the other branches of the armed service are hereby prohibited from steaming, for any reason whatsoever except on an errand of mercy, more than 500 miles from our coast. 3. Aircraft of the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps is hereby prohibited from flying, for any reason whatsoever, more than 750 miles beyond the coast of the United States. Disarmament Strict isolationism and neutrality, then, is the first plank of a libertarian foreign policy in addition to recognizing the chief responsibility of the American state for the Cold War and for its entry into all the other conflicts of this century. Given isolation, however, what sort of arms policy should the United States pursue? Many of the original isolationists also advocated a policy of arming to the teeth, but such a program in a nuclear age continues the grave risk of global holocaust, a mightily armed state, and the enormous waste and distortions that unproductive government spending imposes on the economy. Even from a purely military point of view, the United States and the Soviet Union have the power to annihilate each other many times over, and the United States could easily preserve all of its nuclear retaliatory power by scrapping every armament except Polaris submarines, which are invulnerable and armed with nuclear missiles with multi-targeted warheads. But for the libertarian, or indeed for anyone worried about massive nuclear destruction of human life, even disarming down to Polaris submarines is hardly a satisfactory settlement. World peace would continue to rest on a shaky balance of terror, a balance that could always be upset by accident or by the actions of madmen in power. No. For anyone to become secure from the nuclear menace, it is vital to achieve worldwide nuclear disarmament, a disarmament toward which the SALT Agreement of 1972 and the SALT II negotiations are only a very hesitant beginning. Since it is in the interest of all people, and even of all state rulers, not to be annihilated in a nuclear holocaust, this mutual self-interest provides a firm, rational basis for agreeing upon and carrying out a policy of joint and worldwide general and complete disarmament of nuclear and other modern weapons of mass destruction. Such joint disarmament has been feasible ever since the Soviet Union accepted Western proposals to this effect on May 10, 1955, an acceptance which only gained a total and panicky Western abandonment of their own proposals. The American version has long held that while we have wanted disarmament plus inspection, the Soviets persist in wanting only disarmament without inspection. The actual picture is very different. Since May 1955, the Soviet Union has favored any and all disarmament and unlimited inspection of whatever has been disarmed, whereas the Americans have advocated unlimited inspection, but accompanied by little or no disarmament. This was the burden of President Eisenhower's spectacular but basically dishonest Open Skies proposal which replaced the disarmament proposals we quickly withdrew after the Soviet acceptance of May 1955. Even now that open skies have been essentially achieved through American and Russian space satellites, 
The 1972 controversial SALT agreement involves no actual disarmament, only limitations on further nuclear expansion. Furthermore, since American strategic might throughout the world rests on nuclear and air power, there is good reason to believe in Soviet sincerity in any agreement to liquidate nuclear missiles or offensive bombers. Not only should there be joint disarmament of nuclear weapons, but also of all weapons capable of being fired massively across national borders, in particular bombers. It is precisely such weapons of mass destruction as the missile and the bomber which can never be pinpoint targeted to avoid their use against innocent civilians. In addition, the total abandonment of missiles and bombers would enforce upon every government, especially including the American, a policy of isolation and neutrality. Only if governments are deprived of weapons of offensive warfare will they be forced to pursue a policy of isolation and peace. Surely, in view of the black record of all governments, including the American, it would be folly to leave these harbingers of mass murder and destruction in their hands, and to trust them never to employ those monstrous weapons. If it is illegitimate for government ever to employ such weapons, why should they be allowed to remain fully loaded in their none-too-clean hands? The contrast between the conservative and the libertarian positions on war and American foreign policy was starkly expressed in an interchange between William F. Buckley, Jr. and the libertarian Ronald Hamoway in the early days of the contemporary libertarian movement. Scorning the libertarian critique of conservative foreign policy postures, Buckley wrote, There is room in any society for those whose only concern is for tablet-keeping, but let them realize that it is only because of the conservatives' disposition to sacrifice in order to withstand the Soviet enemy that they are able to enjoy their monasticism and pursue their busy little seminars on whether or not to demunicipalize the garbage collectors. To which Hamoui trenchantly replied, It might appear ungrateful of me, but I must decline to thank Mr. Buckley for saving my life. It is further my belief that if his viewpoint prevails, and that if he persists in his unsolicited aid, the result will almost certainly be my death, and that of tens of millions of others in nuclear war, or my imminent imprisonment as an un-American. I hold strongly to my personal liberty, and it is precisely because of this that I insist that no one has the right to force his decisions on another. Mr. Buckley chooses to be dead rather than read. So do I. But I insist that all men be allowed to make that decision for themselves. A nuclear holocaust will make it for them. To which we might add that anyone who wishes is entitled to make the personal decision of better dead than red, or give me liberty or give me death. What he is not entitled to do is to make these decisions for others, as the pro-war policy of conservatism would do. What conservatives are really saying is, better them dead than red, and give me liberty or give them death which are the battle cries not of noble heroes, but of mass murderers. In one sense alone is Mr. Buckley correct. 
In the nuclear age, it is more important to worry about war and foreign policy than about demunicipalizing garbage disposal, as important as the latter may be. But if we do so, we come ineluctably to the reverse of the Buckleyite conclusion. We come to the view that since modern air and missile weapons cannot be pinpoint targeted to avoid harming civilians, their very existence must be condemned, and nuclear and air disarmament becomes a great and overriding good to be pursued for its own sake, more avidly even than the demunicipalization of garbage. Chapter 15. A Strategy for Liberty Education, Theory, and Movement And so we have it, a body of truth, sound in theory and capable of application to our political problems, the new libertarianism. But now that we have the truth, how can we achieve victory? We face the great strategic problem of all radical creeds throughout history. How can we get from here to there? from our current state-ridden and imperfect world to the great goal of liberty. There is no magic formula for strategy. Any strategy for social change, resting as it does on persuasion and conversion, can only be an art rather than an exact science. But having said this, we are still not bereft of wisdom in the pursuit of our goals. There can be a fruitful theory or, at the very least, theoretical discussion of the proper strategy for change. On one point there can scarcely be disagreement. A prime and necessary condition for libertarian victory, or indeed for victory for any social movement, from Buddhism to vegetarianism, is education, the persuasion and conversion of large numbers of people to the cause. Education, in turn, has two vital aspects— calling people's attention to the existence of such a system, and converting people to the libertarian system. If our movement consisted only of slogans, publicity, and other attention-getting devices, then we might be heard by many people, but it would soon be discovered that we had nothing to say, and so the hearing would be fitful and ephemeral. Libertarians must, therefore, engage in hard thinking and scholarship, put forth theoretical and systematic books, articles, and journals, and engage in conferences and seminars. On the other hand, a mere elaboration of the theory will get nowhere if no one has ever heard of the books and articles. Hence the need for publicity, slogans, student activism, lectures, radio and TV spots, etc. True education cannot proceed without theory and activism without an ideology and people to carry that ideology forward. Thus, just as the theory needs to be carried to the attention of the public, so does the theory need people to hold the banner, discuss, agitate, and carry the message forward and outward to the public. Once again, both theory and movement become futile and sterile without each other, the theory will die on the vine without a self-conscious movement which dedicates itself to advancing the theory and the goal. The movement will become mere pointless motion if it loses sight of the ideology and the goal in view. Some libertarian theorists feel that there is something impure or disreputable about a living movement with acting individuals, 
But how can liberty be achieved without libertarians to advance the cause? On the other hand, some militant activists, in their haste for action, any action, scorn what seems to be parlor discussions of theory, yet their action becomes futile and wasted energy if they have only a dim idea of what they are being active about. Furthermore, one often hears libertarians, as well as members of other social movements, bewail that they are only talking to themselves with their books and journals and conferences, that few people of the outside world are listening. But this frequent charge gravely misconceives the many-sided purpose of education in the broadest sense. It is not only necessary to educate others. Continual self-education is also and equally necessary. The core of libertarians must always try to recruit others to their ranks, to be sure, but they must also keep their own ranks vibrant and healthy. Education of ourselves accomplishes two vital goals. One is the refining and advancing of the libertarian theory, the goal and purpose of our whole enterprise. Libertarianism, while vital and true, cannot be merely graven in stone tablets. It must be a living theory, advancing through writing and discussion, and through refuting and combating errors as they arise. The libertarian movement has dozens of small newsletters and magazines, ranging from mimeographed sheets to slick publications, constantly emerging and dying. This is a sign of a healthy, growing movement, a movement that consists of countless individuals thinking, arguing, and contributing. But there is another critical reason for talking to ourselves, even if that were all the talking that was going on, and that is reinforcement the psychologically necessary knowledge that there are other people of like mind to talk to, argue with, and generally communicate and interact with. At present, the libertarian creed is still that of a relatively small minority, and furthermore, it proposes radical changes in the status quo. Hence, it is bound to be a lonely creed and the reinforcement of having a movement of talking to ourselves, can combat and overcome that isolation. The contemporary movement is now old enough to have had a host of defectors. Analysis of these defections shows that in almost every case, the libertarian has been isolated, cut off from fellowship and interaction with his colleagues. A flourishing movement with a sense of community and esprit de corps is the best antidote for giving up liberty as a hopeless or impractical cause. Are we utopians? All right, we are to have education through both theory and a movement, but what then should be the content of that education? Every radical creed has been subjected to the charge of being utopian, and the libertarian movement is no exception. Some libertarians themselves maintain that we should not frighten people off by being too radical, and that therefore the full libertarian ideology and program should be kept hidden from view. These people counsel a Fabian program of gradualism, concentrating solely on a gradual whittling away of state power. An example would be in the field of taxation. Instead of advocating the radical measure of abolition of all taxation, or even of abolishing income taxation, we should confine ourselves to a call for tiny improvements, say for a 2% cut in income tax. 
In the field of strategic thinking, it behooves libertarians to heed the lessons of the Marxists, because they have been thinking about strategy for radical social change longer than any other group. Thus, the Marxists see two critically important strategic fallacies that deviate from the proper path. One they call left-wing sectarianism. The other, and opposing deviation, is right-wing opportunism. The critics of libertarian extremist principles are the analog of the Marxian right-wing opportunists. The major problem with the opportunists is that by confining themselves strictly to gradual and practical programs, programs that stand a good chance of immediate adoption, they are in grave danger of completely losing sight of the ultimate objective, the libertarian goal. He who confines himself to calling for a 2% reduction in taxes helps to bury the ultimate goal of abolition of taxation altogether. By concentrating on the immediate means, he helps liquidate the ultimate goal, and therefore the point of being a libertarian in the first place. If libertarians refuse to hold aloft the banner of the pure principle of the ultimate goal, who will? The answer is no one. Hence, another major source of defection from the ranks in recent years has been the erroneous path of opportunism. A prominent case of defection through opportunism is someone we shall call Robert, who became a dedicated and militant libertarian back in the early 1950s. Reaching quickly for activism and immediate gains, Robert concluded that the proper strategic path was to play down all talk of the libertarian goal, and in particular to play down libertarian hostility to government. His aim was to stress only the positive and the accomplishments that people could achieve through voluntary action. As his career advanced, Robert began to find uncompromising libertarians an encumbrance, so he began systematically to fire anyone in his organization caught being negative about government. It did not take very long for Robert to abandon the libertarian ideology openly and explicitly, and to call for a partnership between government and private enterprise, between coercion and the voluntary. In short, to take his place openly in the establishment. Yet in his cups, Robert will even refer to himself as an anarchist, but only in some abstract cloudland totally unrelated to the world as it is. The free-market economist F. A. Hayek, himself in no sense an extremist, has written eloquently of the vital importance for the success of liberty of holding the pure and extreme ideology aloft as a never-to-be-forgotten creed. Hayek has written that one of the great attractions of socialism has always been the continuing stress on its ideal goal an ideal that permeates, informs, and guides the actions of all those striving to attain it. Hayek then adds, We must make the building of a free society once more an intellectual adventure, a deed of courage. What we lack is a liberal utopia, a program which seems neither a mere defense of things as they are, nor a diluted kind of socialism but a truly liberal radicalism, which does not spare the susceptibility of the mighty, including the trade unions, which is not too severely practical, and which does not confine itself to what appears today as politically possible. We need intellectual leaders who are prepared to resist the blandishments of power and influence, 
and who are willing to work for an ideal, however small may be the prospects of its early realization. They must be men who are willing to stick to principles and to fight for their full realization, however remote. Free trade and freedom of opportunity are ideals which still may rouse the imaginations of large numbers. But a mere reasonable freedom of trade, or a mere relaxation of controls, is neither intellectually respectable nor likely to inspire any enthusiasm. The main lesson which the true liberal must learn from the success of the socialists is that it was their courage to be utopian which gained them the support of the intellectuals, and thereby an influence on public opinion which is daily making possible what only recently seemed utterly remote. Those who have concerned themselves exclusively with what seemed practicable in the existing state of opinion have constantly found that even this has rapidly become politically impossible as the result of changes in a public opinion which they have done nothing to guide. Unless we can make the philosophic foundations of a free society once more a living intellectual issue— and its implementation, a task which challenges the ingenuity and imagination of our liveliest minds. The prospects of freedom are indeed dark. But if we can regain that belief in the power of ideas which was the mark of liberalism at its best, the battle is not lost. Hayek is here highlighting an important truth, and an important reason for stressing the ultimate goal— the excitement and enthusiasm that a logically consistent system can inspire. Who, in contrast, will go to the barricades for a 2% tax reduction? There is another vital tactical reason for cleaving to pure principle. It is true that day-to-day -day social and political events are the resultants of many pressures, the often unsatisfactory outcome of the push and pull of conflicting ideologies and interests, but if only for that reason, it is all the more important for the libertarian to keep upping the ante. The call for a 2% tax reduction may achieve only the slight moderation of a projected tax increase. A call for a drastic tax cut may indeed achieve a substantial reduction. And over the years, it is precisely the strategic role of the extremist to keep pushing the matrix of day-to-day -day action further and further in his direction. The socialists have been particularly adept at this strategy. If we look at the socialist program, advanced 60 or even 30 years ago, it will be evident that measures considered dangerously socialistic a generation or two ago are now considered an indispensable part of the mainstream of the American heritage. In this way, the day-to-day -day compromises of supposedly practical politics get pulled inexorably in the collectivist direction. There is no reason why the libertarian cannot accomplish the same result. In fact, one of the reasons that the conservative opposition to collectivism has been so weak is that conservatism by its very nature offers not a consistent political philosophy, but only a practical defense of the existing status quo, enshrined as embodiments of the American tradition. Yet as statism grows and accretes, it becomes by definition increasingly entrenched, and therefore traditional. Conservatism can then find no intellectual weapons to accomplish its overthrow.
Cleaving to principle means something more than holding high and not contradicting the ultimate libertarian ideal. It also means striving to achieve that ultimate goal as rapidly as is physically possible. In short, the libertarian must never advocate or prefer a gradual, as opposed to an immediate and rapid, approach to his goal. For by doing so, he undercuts the overriding importance of his own goals and principles. And if he himself values his own goals so lightly, how highly will others value them? In short, to really pursue the goal of liberty, the libertarian must desire it attained by the most effective and speediest means available. It was in this spirit that the classical liberal Leonard E. Reed, advocating immediate and total abolition of price and wage controls after World War II, declared in a speech, If there were a button on this rostrum, the pressing of which would release all wage and price controls instantaneously, I would put my finger on it and push. The libertarian, then, should be a person who would push the button, if it existed, for the instantaneous abolition of all invasions of liberty. Of course, he knows, too, that such a magic button does not exist, but his fundamental preference colors and shapes his entire strategic perspective. Such an abolitionist perspective does not mean, again, that the libertarian has an unrealistic assessment of how rapidly his goal will, in fact, be achieved. Thus, the libertarian abolitionist of slavery, William Lloyd Garrison, was not being unrealistic when, in the 1830s, he first raised the glorious standard of immediate emancipation of the slaves. His goal was the morally proper one, and his strategic realism came in the fact that he did not expect his goal to be quickly reached. We have seen in Chapter 1 that Garrison himself distinguished, Urge immediate abolition as earnestly as we may. It will, alas, be gradual abolition in the end. We have never said that slavery would be overthrown by a single blow. That it ought to be, we shall always contend. Otherwise, as Garrison trenchantly warned, gradualism in theory is perpetuity in practice. Gradualism in theory indeed undercuts the goal itself by conceding that it must take second or third place to other non- or anti-libertarian considerations. For a preference for gradualism implies that these other considerations are more important than liberty— Thus suppose that the abolitionist of slavery had said, I advocate an end to slavery, but only after ten years' time. But this would imply that abolition eight or nine years from now, or a fortiori immediately, would be wrong, and that therefore it is better for slavery to be continued a while longer. But this would mean that considerations of justice have been abandoned, and that the goal itself is no longer held highest by the abolitionist or libertarian. In fact, for both the abolitionist and libertarian, this would mean they are advocating the prolongation of crime and injustice. While it is vital for the libertarian to hold his ultimate and extreme ideal aloft, this does not, contrary to Hayek, make him a utopian. The true utopian is one who advocates a system that is contrary to the natural law of human beings and of the real world. 
A utopian system is one that could not work even if everyone were persuaded to try to put it into practice. The utopian system could not work, that is, could not sustain itself in operation. The utopian goal of the left, communism, the abolition of specialization and the adoption of uniformity, could not work, even if everyone were willing to adopt it immediately. It could not work because it violates the very nature of man and the world, especially the uniqueness and individuality of every person, of his abilities and interests, and because it would mean a drastic decline in the production of wealth, so much so as to doom the great bulk of the human race to rapid starvation and extinction. In short, the term utopian in popular parlance confuses two kinds of obstacles in the path of a program radically different from the status quo. One is that it violates the nature of man and of the world, and therefore could not work once it was put into effect. This is the utopianism of communism. The second is the difficulty in convincing enough people that the program should be adopted. The former is a bad theory because it violates the nature of man. The latter is simply a problem of human will, of convincing enough people of the rightness of the doctrine. Utopian, in its common pejorative sense, applies only to the former. In the deepest sense, then, the libertarian doctrine is not utopian, but eminently realistic, because it is the only theory that is really consistent with the nature of man and the world. The libertarian does not deny the variety and diversity of man. He glories in it, and seeks to give that diversity full expression in a world of complete freedom. And in doing so, he also brings about an enormous increase in productivity and in the living standards of everyone, an eminently practical result, generally scorned by true utopians as evil materialism. The libertarian is also eminently realistic because he alone understands fully the nature of the state and its thrust for power. In contrast, it is the seemingly far more realistic conservative believer in limited government who is the truly impractical utopian. This conservative keeps repeating the litany that the central government should be severely limited by a constitution. Yet at the same time that he rails against the corruption of the original Constitution and the widening of federal power since 1789, the conservative fails to draw the proper lesson from that degeneration. The idea of a strictly limited constitutional state was a noble experiment that failed, even under the most favorable and propitious circumstances. If it failed then, why should a similar experiment fare any better now? No, it is the conservative laissez-faireist, the man who puts all the guns and all the decision-making power into the hands of the central government, and then says, limit yourself. It is he who is truly the impractical utopian. There is another deep sense in which libertarians scorn the broader utopianism of the left. The left utopians invariably postulate a drastic change in the nature of man. To the left, Man has no nature. The individual is supposed to be infinitely malleable by his institutions, and so the communist ideal, or the transitional socialist system, is supposed to bring about the new communist man. 
The libertarian believes that in the ultimate analysis, every individual has free will and molds himself. It is therefore folly to put one's hope in a uniform and drastic change in people brought about by the projected new order. The libertarian would like to see a moral improvement in everyone, although his moral goals scarcely coincide with those of the socialists. He would, for example, be overjoyed to see all desire for aggression by one man against another disappear from the face of the earth. But he is far too much of a realist to put his trust in this sort of change. Instead, the libertarian system is one that will at once be far more moral and work much better than any other, given any existing human values and attitudes. The more the desire for aggression disappears, of course, the better any social system will work, including the libertarian. The less need there will be, for example, for any resort to police or to the courts. But the libertarian system places no reliance on any such change. If, then, the libertarian must advocate the immediate attainment of liberty and abolition of statism, and if gradualism in theory is contradictory to this overriding end, what further strategic stance may a libertarian take in today's world? Must he necessarily confine himself to advocating immediate abolition? Are transitional demands, steps toward liberty in practice, necessarily illegitimate? No, for this would fall into the other self-defeating strategic trap of left-wing sectarianism. For while libertarians have too often been opportunists who lose sight of or undercut their ultimate goal, some have erred in the opposite direction, fearing and condemning any advances toward the idea as necessarily selling out the goal itself. The tragedy is that these sectarians, in condemning all advances that fall short of the goal, serve to render vain and futile the cherished goal itself. For much as all of us would be overjoyed to arrive at total liberty at a single bound, the realistic prospects for such a mighty leap are limited. If social change is not always tiny and gradual, neither does it usually occur in a single leap. In rejecting any transitional approaches to the goal, then, these sectarian libertarians make it impossible for the goal itself ever to be reached. Thus the sectarians can eventually be as fully liquidationist of the pure goal as the opportunists themselves. Sometimes, curiously enough, the same individual will undergo alterations from one of these opposing errors to the other, in each case scorning the proper strategic path. Thus despairing after years of futile reiteration of his purity while making no advances in the real world, the left sectarian may leap into the heady thickets of right opportunism in the quest for some short-run advance, even at the cost of his ultimate goal. Or the right opportunist, growing disgusted at his own or his colleagues' compromise of their intellectual integrity and their ultimate goals, may leap into left sectarianism and decry any setting of strategic priorities toward those goals. In this way, the two opposing deviations feed on and reinforce each other, and are both destructive of the major task of effectively reaching the libertarian goal. How then can we know whether any halfway measure or transitional demand should be hailed as a step forward or condemned as an opportunistic betrayal?
There are two vitally important criteria for answering this crucial question. One, that whatever the transitional demands, the ultimate end of liberty be always held aloft as the desired goal. And two, that no steps or means ever explicitly or implicitly contradict the ultimate goal. A short-run demand may not go as far as we would like, but it should always be consistent with the final end. If not, the short-run goal will work against the long-run purpose, and opportunistic liquidation of libertarian principle will have arrived. An example of such counterproductive and opportunistic strategy may be taken from the tax system. The libertarian looks forward to eventual abolition of taxes. It is perfectly legitimate for him, as a strategic measure in that desired direction, to push for a drastic reduction or repeal of the income tax. But the libertarian must never support any new tax or tax increase. For example, he must not, while advocating a large cut in income taxes, also call for its replacement by a sales or other form of tax. The reduction, or better, the abolition of a tax, is always a non-contradictory reduction of state power and a significant step toward liberty. But its replacement by a new or increased tax elsewhere does just the opposite, for it signifies a new and additional imposition of the state on some other front. The imposition of a new or higher tax flatly contradicts and undercuts the libertarian goal itself. Similarly, in this age of permanent federal deficits, we are often faced with the practical problem, should we agree to a tax cut, even though it may well result in an increased government deficit? Conservatives, who, from their particular perspective, prefer budget balancing to tax reduction, invariably oppose any tax cut which is not immediately and strictly accompanied by an equivalent or greater cut in government expenditures. But since taxation is an illegitimate act of aggression, any failure to welcome a tax cut, any tax cut, with alacrity, undercuts and contradicts the libertarian goal. The time to oppose government expenditures is when the budget is being considered or voted upon. Then the libertarian should call for drastic slashes in expenditures as well. In short, government activity must be reduced whenever it can. Any opposition to a particular cut in taxes or expenditures is impermissible, for it contradicts libertarian principles and the libertarian goal. A particularly dangerous temptation for practicing opportunism is the tendency of some libertarians, especially in the Libertarian Party, to appear responsible and realistic by coming up with some sort of four-year plan for destatization. The important point here is not the number of years in the plan, but the idea of setting forth any sort of comprehensive and planned program of transition to the goal of total liberty. For example, that in year one, Law A should be repealed, Law B modified, Tax C cut by 10%, etc. In year two, Law D should be repealed, Tax C cut by a further 10%, etc. The grave problem with such a plan, the severe contradiction with libertarian principle, is that it strongly implies, for example, that Law D should not be repealed until the second year of the planned program. 
Hence, the trap of gradualism in theory would be fallen into on a massive scale. The would-be libertarian planners would have fallen into a position of seeming to oppose any faster pace toward liberty than is encompassed by their plan. And indeed, there is no legitimate reason for a slower than a faster pace. Quite the contrary. There is another grave flaw in the very idea of a comprehensive planned program toward liberty. For the very care and studied pace, the very all-embracing nature of the program, implies that the state is not really the common enemy of mankind, that it is possible and desirable to use the state for engineering a planned and measured pace toward liberty. The insight that the state is the major enemy of mankind, on the other hand, leads to a very different strategic outlook, namely that libertarians should push for and accept with alacrity any reduction of state power or activity on any front. Any such reduction at any time should be a welcome decrease of crime and aggression. Therefore, the libertarians' concern should not be to use the state to embark on a measured course of destatization, but rather to hack away at any and all manifestations of statism whenever and wherever he or she can. In keeping with this analysis, the National Committee of the Libertarian Party in October 1977 adopted a declaration of strategy which included the following. We must hold high the banner of pure principle and never compromise our goal. The moral imperative of libertarian principle demands that tyranny, injustice, the absence of full liberty and violation of rights continue no longer. Any intermediate demand must be treated, as it is in the Libertarian Party platform, as pending achievement of the pure goal and inferior to it. Therefore, any such demand should be presented as leading toward our ultimate goal, not as an end in itself. Holding high our principles means avoiding completely the quagmire of self-imposed obligatory gradualism. We must avoid the view that in the name of fairness, abating suffering, or fulfilling expectations, we must temporize and stall on the road to liberty. Achieving liberty must be our overriding goal. We must not commit ourselves to any particular order of destatization, for that would be construed as our endorsing the continuation of statism and the violation of rights. Since we must never be in the position of advocating the continuation of tyranny, we should accept any and all destatization measures wherever and whenever we can. Thus, the libertarian must never allow himself to be trapped into any sort of proposal for positive governmental action. In his perspective, the role of government should only be to remove itself from all spheres of society just as rapidly as it can be pressured to do so. Neither should there be any contradictions in rhetoric. The libertarian should not indulge in any rhetoric, let alone any policy recommendations, which would work against the eventual goal. Thus suppose that a libertarian is asked to give his views on a specific tax cut. Even if he does not feel that he can at the moment call loudly for tax abolition, the one thing that he must not do is add to his support of a tax cut such unprincipled rhetoric as, well, of course, some taxation is essential, etc. 
Only harm to the ultimate objective can be achieved by rhetorical flourishes which confuse the public and contradict and violate principle. Is Education Enough? All libertarians of whatever faction or persuasion lay great stress on education, on convincing an ever larger number of people to become libertarians, and hopefully highly dedicated ones. The problem, however, is that the great bulk of libertarians hold a very simplistic view of the role and scope of such education. They do not, in short, even attempt to answer the question, After education, what? What then? What happens after X number of people are convinced? And how many need to be convinced to press on to the next stage? Everyone? A majority? Many people? The implicit view of many libertarians is that only education is needed, because everyone is an equally likely prospect for conversion. Everyone can be converted. While logically, of course, this is true, sociologically this is a feeble strategy indeed. Libertarians of all people should recognize that the state is a parasitic enemy of society, and that the state creates an elite of rulers who dominate the rest of us and extract their income by coercion. Convincing the ruling groups of their own iniquity, while logically possible and perhaps even feasible in one or two instances, is almost impossible in practice. How much chance is there, for example, of convincing the executives of General Dynamics or of Lockheed that they should not take government largesse? How much likelihood is there that the President of the United States will read this book or any other piece of libertarian literature and then exclaim, They're right. I've been wrong. I resign. Clearly, the chances of converting those who are waxing fat by means of state exploitation are negligible, to say the least. Our hope is to convert the mass of the people who are being victimized by state power, not those who are gaining by it. But when we say this, we are also saying that beyond the problem of education lies the problem of power. After a substantial number of people have been converted, there will be the additional task of finding ways and means to remove state power from our society. Since the state will not gracefully convert itself out of power, other means than education, means of pressure, will have to be used. What particular means or what combination of means, whether by voting, alternative institutions untouched by the state, or massive failure to cooperate with the state, depends on the conditions of the time and what will be found to work or not to work. In contrast to matters of theory and principle, the particular tactics to be used, so long as they are consistent with the principles and ultimate goal of a purely free society, are a matter of pragmatism, judgment, and the inexact art of the tactician. Which Groups? But education is the current strategic problem for the foreseeable and indefinite future. An important strategic question is who. If we cannot hope to convert our rulers in substantial numbers, who are the most likely prospects for conversion? Which social, occupational, economic, or ethnic classes? Conservatives have often placed their central hopes in big businessmen. This view of big business was most starkly expressed in Ayn Rand's dictum that big business is America's most persecuted minority. 
persecuted? With a few honorable exceptions, big business jostles one another eagerly to line up at the public trough. Does Lockheed or General Dynamics or AT&T or Nelson Rockefeller feel persecuted? Big business support for the corporate welfare warfare state is so blatant and so far-ranging, on all levels from the local to the federal, that even many conservatives have had to acknowledge it, at least to some extent. How then explain such fervent support from America's most persecuted minority? The only way out for conservatives is to assume, A, that these businessmen are dumb and don't understand their own economic interests, and or, B, that they have been brainwashed by left liberal intellectuals who have poisoned their souls with guilt and misguided altruism. Neither of these explanations will wash, however, as only a glance at AT&T or Lockheed will amply show. Big businessmen tend to be admirers of statism, to be corporate liberals, not because their souls have been poisoned by intellectuals, but because a good thing has thereby been coming their way. Ever since the acceleration of statism at the turn of the 20th century, big businessmen have been using the great powers of state contracts, subsidies, and cartelization to carve out privileges for themselves at the expense of the rest of the society. It is not too far-fetched to assume that Nelson Rockefeller is guided far more by self-interest than he is by woolly-headed altruism. It is generally admitted even by liberals, for example, that the vast network of government regulatory agencies is being used to cartelize each industry on behalf of the large firms and at the expense of the public. But to salvage their New Deal worldview, liberals have to console themselves with the thought that these agencies and similar reforms enacted during the progressive Wilson or Rooseveltian periods were launched in good faith with the public wheel grandly in view. The idea and genesis of the agencies and other liberal reforms were therefore good. It was only in practice that the agencies somehow slipped into sin and into subservience to private corporate interests. But what Kolko, Weinstein, Domhoff, and other revisionist historians have shown clearly and thoroughly is that this is a piece of liberal mythology. In reality, all of these reforms on the national and local levels alike were conceived, written, and lobbied for by these very privileged groups themselves. The work of these historians reveals conclusively that there was no golden age of reform before sin crept in. Sin was there from the beginning, from the moment of conception. The liberal reforms of the progressive New Deal welfare state were designed to create what they did in fact create, a world of centralized statism, of partnership between government and industry, a world which subsists in granting subsidies and monopoly privileges to business and other favored groups. Expecting the Rockefellers or the legion of other favored big businessmen to convert to a libertarian or even a laissez-faire view is a vain and empty hope. But this is not to say that all big businessmen, or businessmen in general, must be written off. Contrary to the Marxists, not all businessmen, or even big businessmen, constitute a homogeneous economic class with identical class interests. On the contrary, when the CAB confers monopoly privileges on a few large airlines, or when the FCC confers a monopoly on AT&T, 
There are numerous other firms and businessmen, small and large, who are injured and excluded from the privileges. The conferring of a monopoly of communications on AT&T by the FCC, for example, for a long while kept the now rapidly growing data communications industry stagnating in infancy. It was only an FCC decision to allow competition that enabled the industry to grow by leaps and bounds. Privilege implies exclusion, so there will always be a host of businessmen and businesses, large and small, who will have a solid economic interest in ending state control over their industry. There are, therefore, a host of businessmen, especially those remote from the privileged Eastern establishment, who are potentially receptive to free market and libertarian ideas. Which groups, then, could we expect to be particularly receptive to libertarian ideas? Where, as the Marxists would put it, is our proposed agency for social change? This is, of course, an important strategic question for libertarians, since it gives us leads on where to direct our educational energies. Campus youth is one group that has been prominent in the rising libertarian movement. This is not surprising. College is the time when people are most open to reflection and to considering basic questions of our society. As youth enamored of consistency and unvarnished truth, as collegians accustomed to a world of scholarship and abstract ideas, and not yet burdened with the care and the often narrower vision of adult employment, these youngsters provide a fertile field for libertarian conversion. We can expect far greater growth of libertarianism on the nation's campuses in the future, a growth that is already being matched by the adherence of an expanding number of young scholars, professors, and graduate students. Youth in general should also be attracted by the libertarian position on subjects that are often closest to their concerns, specifically our call for complete abolition of the draft, withdrawal from the Cold War, civil liberties for everyone, and legalization of drugs and other victimless crimes. The media, too, have proved to be a rich source of favorable interest in the new libertarian creed not simply for its publicity value, but because the consistency of libertarianism attracts a group of people who are most alert to new social and political trends, and who, while originally liberals, are most alert to the growing failures and breakdowns of establishment liberalism. Media people generally find that they cannot be attracted to a hostile conservative movement which automatically writes them off as leftists and which takes uncongenial positions on foreign policy and civil liberties. But these same media persons can be and are favorably disposed to a libertarian movement which wholeheartedly agrees with their instincts on peace and personal liberty, and then links up their opposition to big government in these areas to government intervention in the economy and in property rights. More and more media people are making these new and illuminating connections, and they, of course, are extremely important in their influence and leverage on the rest of the public. What of middle America, that vast middle class and working class that constitute the bulk of the American population, and which is often at polar opposites from campus youth? Do we have any appeal for them? Logically, our appeal to middle America should be even greater. We direct ourselves squarely to the aggravated and chronic discontent that afflicts the mass of the American people 
rising taxes, inflation, urban congestion, crime, welfare scandals. Only libertarians have concrete and consistent solutions to these pressing ills, solutions that center on getting them out from under government in all these areas and turning them over to private and voluntary action. We can show that government and statism have been responsible for these evils, and that getting coercive government off our backs will provide the remedies. To small businessmen, we can promise a truly free enterprise world, shorn of monopoly privilege, cartels, and subsidies engineered by the state and the establishment. And to them, and to the big businessmen outside the monopoly establishment, we can promise a world where their individual talents and energies can at last have full room to expand, and to provide improved technology and increased productivity for them and for us all. To various ethnic and minority groups, we can show that only under liberty is there full freedom for each group to cultivate its concerns and to run its own institutions, unimpeded and uncoerced by majority rule. In short, the potential appeal of libertarianism is a multi-class appeal. It is an appeal that cuts across race, occupation, economic class, and the generations— any and all people not directly in the ruling elite are potentially receptive to our message. Every person or group that values its liberty or prosperity is a potential adherent to the libertarian creed. Liberty, then, has the potential for appealing to all groups across the public spectrum. Yet it is a fact of life that when things are going smoothly, most people fail to develop any interest in public affairs. For radical social change, a change to a different social system to take place, there must be what is called a crisis situation. There must, in short, be a breakdown of the existing system which calls forth a general search for alternative solutions. When such a widespread search for social alternatives takes place, then activists of a dissenting movement must be available to supply that radical alternative to relate the crisis to the inherent defects of the system itself, and to point out how the alternative system would solve the existing crisis and prevent any similar breakdowns in the future. Hopefully, the dissenters would also have provided a track record of predicting and warning against the crisis that now exists. Furthermore, one of the characteristics of crisis situations is that even the ruling elites begin to weaken their support for the system. Because of the crisis, even part of the state begins to lose its zest and enthusiasm for rule. In short, a failure of nerve by segments of the state occurs. Thus, in these situations of breakdown, even members of the ruling elite may convert to an alternative system, or, at the least, may lose their enthusiasm for the existing one. Thus the historian Lawrence Stone stresses, as a requirement for radical change, a decay in the will of the ruling elite. The elite may lose its manipulative skill, or its military superiority, or its self-confidence, or its cohesion. It may become estranged from the non-elite, or overwhelmed by a financial crisis. It may be incompetent, or weak, or brutal. Why Liberty Will Win 
Having set forth the libertarian creed and how it applies to vital current problems, and having sketched which groups in society that creed can be expected to attract and at what times, we must now assess the future prospects for liberty. In particular, we must examine the firm and growing conviction of the present author not only that libertarianism will triumph eventually and in the long run, but also that it will emerge victorious in a remarkably short period of time. For I am convinced that the dark night of tyranny is ending, and that a new dawn of liberty is now at hand. Many libertarians are highly pessimistic about the prospects for liberty, and if we focus on the growth of statism in the twentieth century, and on the decline of classical liberalism that we adumbrated in the introductory chapter, it is easy to fall prey to a pessimistic prognosis. This pessimism may deepen further if we survey the history of man and see the black record of despotism, tyranny, and exploitation in civilization after civilization. We could be pardoned for thinking that the classical liberal upsurge of the 17th through the 19th centuries in the West would prove to be an atypical burst of glory in the grim annals of past and future history. But this would be succumbing to the fallacy of what the Marxists call Impressionism, a superficial focus on the historical events themselves without a deeper analysis of the causal laws and trends at work. The case for libertarian optimism can be made in a series of what might be called concentric circles, beginning with the broadest and longest-run considerations and moving to the sharpest focus on short-run trends. In the broadest and longest-run sense, libertarianism will win eventually because it, and only it, is compatible with the nature of man and of the world. Only liberty can achieve man's prosperity, fulfillment, and happiness. In short, libertarianism will win because it is true, because it is the correct policy for mankind, and truth will eventually out. But such long-run considerations may be very long indeed, and waiting many centuries for truth to prevail may be small consolation for those of us living at any particular moment in history. Fortunately, there is a shorter-run reason for hope, particularly one that allows us to dismiss the grim record of pre-18th-century history as no longer relevant to the future prospects of liberty. Our contention here is that history made a great leap a sea change, when the classical liberal revolutions propelled us into the Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries. For in the pre-industrial world, the world of the old order and the peasant economy, there was no reason why the reign of despotism could not continue indefinitely, for many centuries. The peasants grew the food, and the kings, nobles, and feudal landlords extracted all of the peasants' surplus above what was necessary to keep them all alive and working. As brutish, exploitative, and dismal as agrarian despotism was, it could survive for two main reasons. One, the economy could readily be maintained, even though at subsistence level, and two, because the masses knew no better, had never experienced a better system and hence could be induced to keep serving as beasts of burden for their lords. But the Industrial Revolution was a great leap in history, because it created conditions and expectations which were irreversible. 
For the first time in the history of the world, the Industrial Revolution created a society where the standard of living of the masses leapt up from subsistence and rose to previously unheard-of heights. The population of the West, previously stagnant, now proliferated to take advantage of the greatly increased opportunities for jobs and the good life. The clock cannot be turned back to a pre-industrial age. Not only would the masses not permit such a drastic reversal of their expectations for a rising standard of living, but return to an agrarian world would mean the starvation and death of the great bulk of the current population. We are stuck with the industrial age, whether we like it or not. But if that is true, then the cause of liberty is secured. For economic science has shown, as we have partially demonstrated in this book, that only freedom and a free market can run an industrial economy. In short, while a free economy and a free society would be desirable and just in a pre-industrial world, in an industrial world it is also a vital necessity. For, as Ludwig von Mises and other economists have shown, in an industrial economy statism simply does not work. Hence, given a universal commitment to an industrial world, it will eventually, and a much sooner eventually than the simple emergence of truth, become clear that the world will have to adopt freedom and the free market as the requisite for industry to survive and flourish. It was this insight that Herbert Spencer and other 19th-century libertarians were perceiving in their distinction between the military and the industrial society between a society of status and a society of contract. In the 20th century, Mises demonstrated a. that all statist intervention distorts and cripples the market, and leads, if not reversed, to socialism, and b. that socialism is a disaster because it cannot plan an industrial economy for lack of profit and loss incentives, and for lack of a genuine price system or property rights in capital, land, and other means of production. In short, as Mises predicted, neither socialism nor the various intermediary forms of statism and interventionism can work. Hence, given a general commitment to an industrial economy, these forms of statism would have to be discarded and be replaced by freedom and free markets. Now this was a much shorter run than simply waiting for the truth. But to the classical liberals at the turn of the twentieth century, the Sumners, Spencers, and Paretos, it seemed like an unbearably long run indeed. And they cannot be blamed, for they were witnessing the decline of classical liberalism and the birth of the new despotic forms which they opposed so strongly and steadfastly. They were, alas, present at the creation the world would have to wait, if not centuries, then at least decades, for socialism and corporate statism to be shown up as utter failures. But the long run is now here. We do not have to prophesy the ruinous effects of statism. They are here at every hand. Lord Keynes once scoffed at criticisms by free-market economists that his inflationist policies would be ruinous in the long run, in his famous reply, he chortled that, in the long run, we are all dead. But now Keynes is dead, and we are alive, living in his long run. The status chickens have come home to roost. At the turn of the twentieth century, and for decades thereafter, things were not nearly that clear. 
Statist intervention in its various forms tried to preserve and even extend an industrial economy, while scuttling the very requirements of freedom and the free market, which, in the long run, are necessary for its survival. For half a century, statist intervention could wreak its depredations through planning, controls, high and crippling taxation, and paper money inflation without causing clear and evident crises and dislocations. For the free market industrialization of the 19th century had created a vast cushion of fat in the economy against such depredations. The government could impose taxes, restrictions, and inflation upon the system and not reap rapid and evidently bad effects. But now statism has advanced so far and been in power so long that the cushion is worn thin. As Mises pointed out as long ago as the 1940s, the reserve fund created by laissez-faire has been exhausted, so that now whatever the government does brings about an instant negative feedback ill effects that are evident to all, even to many of the most ardent apologists for statism. In the communist countries of Eastern Europe, the communists themselves have increasingly perceived that socialist central planning simply does not work for an industrial economy. Hence the rapid retreat in recent years away from central planning and toward free markets, especially in Yugoslavia. In the Western world, too, state capitalism is everywhere in crisis, as it becomes clear that, in the most profound way, the government has run out of money. Increasing taxes will cripple industry and incentives beyond repair, while increased creation of new money will lead to a disastrous runaway inflation. And so we hear more and more about the necessity of lowered expectations from government, from among the state's once most ardent champions. In West Germany, the Social Democratic Party has long since abandoned the call for socialism. In Great Britain, suffering from a tax-crippled economy and aggravated inflation, what even the British are calling the English disease, the Tory party, for years in the hands of dedicated statists, has now been taken over by a free-market-oriented faction, while even the Labour Party has been drawing back from the planned chaos of galloping statism. But it is in the United States that we can be particularly optimistic, for here we can narrow the circle of optimism to a short-run dimension. Indeed, we can confidently say that the United States has now entered a permanent crisis situation, and we can even pinpoint the years of origin of that crisis, 1973 to 1975. Happily for the cause of liberty, not only has a crisis of statism arrived in the United States, but it has fortuitously struck across the board of society, in many different spheres of life, at about the same time. Hence these breakdowns of statism have had a synergistic effect, reinforcing each other in their cumulative impact. And not only have they been crises of statism, but they are perceived by everyone to be caused by statism, and not by the free market, public greed, or whatever. And finally, these crises can only be alleviated by getting the government out of the picture. All we need are libertarians to point the way. Let us quickly run down these areas of systemic crisis and see how many of them dovetailed in 1973 to 1975 and in the years since. 
From the fall of 1973 through 1975, the United States experienced an inflationary depression after 40 years of alleged Keynesian fine-tuning, which was supposed to eliminate both problems for all time. It was also in this period that inflation reached frightening double-digit proportions. It was, furthermore, in 1975 that New York City experienced its first great debt crisis, a crisis that resulted in partial default. The dread name, default, was avoided, to be sure. The virtual act of bankruptcy was instead called a stretch-out, forcing short-term creditors to accept long-term New York City bonds. This crisis is only the first of many state and local bond defaults across the country for state and local governments will be increasingly forced into unpleasant crisis choices between radical cuts in expenditure, higher taxes that will drive businesses and middle-class citizens out of the area, and defaulting on debt. Since the early 1970s, too, it has become increasingly clear that high taxes on income, savings, and investment have been crippling business activity and productivity. Accountants are only now beginning to realize that these taxes, combined especially with inflationary distortions of business calculation, have led to an increasing scarcity of capital and to an imminent danger of consuming America's vital stock of capital without even realizing it. Tax rebellions are sweeping the country, reacting against high property, income, and sales taxes, and it is safe to say that any further increases in taxes would be politically suicidal for politicians at every level of government. The Social Security system, once so sacred in American opinion that it was literally above criticism, is now seen to be as fully in disrepair as libertarian and free market writers have long warned. Even the establishment now recognizes that the Social Security system is bankrupt, that it is in no sense a genuine insurance scheme. Regulation of industry is increasingly seen to be such a failure that even such statists as Senator Edward Kennedy have been calling for deregulation of the airlines. There has even been considerable talk about abolition of the ICC and CAB. On the social front, the once sacrosanct public school system has come under increasing fire. Public schools, necessarily making educational decisions for the entire community, have been generating intense social conflicts over race, sex, religion, and the content of learning. Government practices on crime and incarceration are under increasing fire. The libertarian Dr. Thomas Zaz has almost single-handedly managed to free many citizens from involuntary commitment while the government now concedes that its cherished policy of trying to rehabilitate criminals is an abject failure. There has been a total breakdown of enforcement of such drug laws as prohibition of marijuana and laws against various forms of sexual relations. Sentiment is rising across the nation for repeal of all victimless crime laws, that is, laws that designate crimes where there are no victims. It is increasingly seen that attempts at enforcement of these laws can only bring about hardship and a virtual police state. The time is fast approaching when prohibitionism in areas of personal morality will be seen to be as ineffective and unjust as it was in the case of alcohol. 
Along with the disastrous consequences of statism on the economic and social fronts, there came the traumatic defeat in Vietnam, culminating in 1975. The utter failure of American intervention in Vietnam has led to a growing re-examination of the entire interventionist foreign policy that the United States has been pursuing since Woodrow Wilson and Franklin D. Roosevelt. The growing view that American power must be cut back, that the American government cannot successfully run the world, is the neo-isolationist analog of cutting back the interventions of big government at home. While America's foreign policy is still aggressively globalist, this neo-isolationist sentiment did succeed in limiting American intervention in Angola during 1976. Perhaps the best sign of all, the most favorable indication of the breakdown of the mystique of the American state, of its moral groundwork, was the Watergate exposures of 1973 and 1974. It is Watergate that gives us the greatest single hope for the short-run victory of liberty in America. For Watergate, as politicians have been warning us ever since, destroyed the public's faith in government, and it was high time, too. Watergate engendered a radical shift in the deep-seated attitudes of everyone, regardless of their explicit ideology, toward government itself. For in the first place, Watergate awakened everyone to the invasions of personal liberty and private property by government, to its bugging, drugging, wiretapping, mail-covering, agents provocateurs, even assassinations. Watergate at last de-sanctified our previously sacrosanct FBI and CIA and caused them to be looked at clearly and coolly. But more important, by bringing about the impeachment of the president, Watergate permanently de-sanctified an office that had come to be virtually considered as sovereign by the American public. No longer will the president be considered above the law. No longer will the president be able to do no wrong. But most important of all, government itself has been largely de-sanctified in America. No one trusts politicians or government anymore. All government is viewed with abiding hostility, thus returning us to that state of healthy distrust of government that marked the American public and the American revolutionaries of the 18th century. For a while, it looked as if Jimmy Carter might be able to accomplish his declared task of bringing back people's faith and trust in government. But thanks to the Burt Lance fiasco and to other peccadilloes, Carter has fortunately failed. The permanent crisis of government continues. The conditions are therefore ripe, now and in the future in the United States, for the triumph of liberty. All that is needed is a growing and vibrant libertarian movement to explain this systemic crisis and to point out the libertarian path out of our government-created morass, but as we have seen at the beginning of this work, that is precisely what we have been getting. And now we come at last to our promised answer to the question we posed in our introductory chapter. Why now? If America has a deep-seated heritage of libertarian values, why have they surfaced now, in the last four or five years? Our answer is that the emergence and rapid growth of the libertarian movement is no accident that it is a function of the crisis situation that struck America in 1973 to 1975 and has continued ever since.
Crisis situations always stimulate interest and a search for solutions. And this crisis has inspired numbers of thinking Americans to realize that government has gotten us into this mess, and that only liberty, the rolling back of government, can get us out. We are growing because the conditions are ripe. In a sense, as on the free market, demand has created its own supply. And so that is why the Libertarian Party received 174,000 votes in its first try for national office in 1976. And that is why the authoritative newsletter on Washington politics, The Barron Report, a report that is in no sense libertarian-oriented, denied in a recent issue media claims of a current trend toward conservatism in the electorate. The report points out, to the contrary, that if any trend in opinion is evident, it's toward libertarianism, the philosophy that argues against government intervention and for personal rights. The report adds that libertarianism has an appeal to both ends of the political spectrum. Conservatives welcome that trend when it indicates public skepticism over federal programs, Liberals welcome it when it shows growing acceptance of individual rights in such areas as drugs, sexual behavior, etc., and increasing reticence of the public to support foreign intervention. Toward a Free America The libertarian creed, finally, offers the fulfillment of the best of the American past, along with the promise of a far better future. Even more than conservatives, who are often attached to the monarchical traditions of a happily obsolete European past, libertarians are squarely in the great classical liberal tradition that built the United States and bestowed on us the American heritage of individual liberty, a peaceful foreign policy, minimal government, and a free market economy. Libertarians are the only genuine current heirs of Jefferson, Paine, Jackson, and the abolitionists. And yet, while we are more truly traditional and more rootedly American than the conservatives, we are in some ways more radical than the radicals. Not in the sense that we have either the desire or the hope of remolding human nature by the path of politics, but in the sense that only we provide the really sharp and genuine break with the encroaching statism of the twentieth century. The old left wants only more of what we are suffering from now. The new left, in the last analysis, proposes only still more aggravated statism or compulsory egalitarianism and uniformity. Libertarianism is the logical culmination of the now-forgotten old right of the 1930s and 40s, opposition to the New Deal, war, centralization, and state intervention. Only we wish to break with all aspects of the liberal state, with its welfare and its warfare, its monopoly privileges and its egalitarianism, its repression of victimless crimes, whether personal or economic. Only we offer technology without technocracy, growth without pollution, liberty without chaos, law without tyranny, the defense of property rights in one's person and in one's material possessions. Strands and remnants of libertarian doctrines are indeed all around us, in large parts of our glorious past, and in values and ideas in the confused present. 
But only libertarianism takes these strands and remnants and integrates them into a mighty, logical, and consistent system. The enormous success of Karl Marx and Marxism has been due not to the validity of his ideas, all of which, indeed, are fallacious, but to the fact that he dared to weave socialist theory into a mighty system. Liberty cannot succeed without an equivalent and contrasting systematic theory, and until the last few years, despite our great heritage of economic and political thought and practice, we have not had a fully integrated and consistent theory of liberty. We now have that systematic theory. We come fully armed with our knowledge, prepared to bring our message and to capture the imagination of all groups and strands in the population. All other theories and systems have clearly failed. Socialism is in retreat everywhere, and notably in Eastern Europe. Liberalism has bogged us down in a host of insoluble problems. Conservatism has nothing to offer but sterile defense of the status quo. Liberty has never been fully tried in the modern world. Libertarians now propose to fulfill the American dream and the world dream of liberty and prosperity for all mankind. The Ludwig von Mises Institute hopes that you have enjoyed this audiobook. For a world of free market literature, media, and discussion, visit Mises.org.